the human race inherits a history of injustice. This is the reality of where we are. We can say that the Baha'i faith, and in particular the Gitabi Akdas, contains an analysis and understanding of our history and appreciation for the current condition of the human race, a vision of the ultimate future of the human race, and finally a program for effecting the transition from the present configuration to that future vision. So let me repeat that. Contains an analysis of the past, an analysis of the present condition, a vision of the future, and a program or a process uh, for uh, the transition, for attaining that future uh, vision, beginning with the current configuration as analyzed by Baha'u'llah. I don't know. It's Now, the Kitabi Akdas and all of the Baha'i writings view religion as the fundamental relationship of human existence. Religion, true religion, is a relationship between God, the highest thing in existence, and the human being, which is the highest thing in creation. In other words, in the passage which Dr. Danish read last night uh, from page 65 of the Gleaning, which is quoted in part in this uh, material that I've given you, Baha'u'llah says that everything in creation reflects some attributes of God, but only the human being reflects to some extent, all of the attributes of God. So this amounts to a logical definition of the human being. <laughs> you know, history of philosophy shows a succession of attempts, some of them rather comical, uh, to define the human being. Uh, the beginning, the Greeks defined the human being as a featherless biped. And of course, then... Uh, some wag observed that a plucked chicken satisfies this definition. Uh, and therefore, there's no difference between uh, a human being and a plucked chicken uh, if we take this definition. Well, this is obviously a very superficial uh, um, definition of the human being and trying to define the human being in a, in a physical term. Um, Aristotle did somewhat better than that. He said that the human being was a rational animal. But of course, we know from the Baha'i faith that uh, the human being is not an animal in the first place. And in the second place, rationality is only one of the defining attributes of the human being. 
not the only one. It's a, certainly a very major one. That's why I say that Aristotle did much better than others. But still, it's inadequate as a definition of the human being. But here, Baha'u'llah gives us, in this passage in the Gleaning, which Dr. Danish read last night, uh, he gives us a logical, spiritual definition of the human being. The human being is that creature, that created being of God, which has the capacity to reflect to some extent, because it's not perfectly, but to reflect to some extent every attribute of God. And he says in this passage, Baha'u'llah goes on to say, alone among all created things hath man been singled out for so great a favor, so enduring a bounty. And so this is then a definition of the human being. A definition of something is what? A defining attribute of something is an attribute of the thing which singles out that thing from all other things in existence. Okay? Uh, this is something we can discuss in more detail later on. A For example, uh, we could define, say, the city of London, England. We could say the city of London, England, is the capital city of England. Now, that attribute of London singles out London among all other cities in the world. There is only one capital city of London, of England, excuse me. Now, that doesn't define London in all of its totality. That doesn't tell you where it's situated, how many people are in it, what the class structure is, and so forth and so forth. What is the cultural life there? There's an infinity of attributes of London that you cannot deduce in any way from just the fact that it is the capital city of England. But that one attribute, being the capital city of England, is a defining attribute of London. Another defining attribute would be to say, London is that city which is situated at such and such a latitude and such and such a longitude. In other words, geographically, you fix it. You determine where it is. That would also define London uh, unequivocally. So we must distinguish between defining attributes and comprehensive attributes. Now, Baha'u'llah tells us that we can never give a comprehensive definition of God. But God has many defining attributes. Uh, God is the unique creator, right? There's only one creator, and God is that creator. Uh, God is the only uncaused cause, as Aristotle demonstrates and as Avicenna demonstrated. Um, God is the only creator of human life on this planet. God is the only absolute being, the only perfect being the only all-knowing being, and so forth and so on. So in other words, there are many defining attributes of God. And that's why I start with the example of something as, as banal as the city of London, just to show you that this fact of having a defining attribute does not limit the thing. It simply determines the thing from among all other things. Uh, as a matter of fact, not only can we not give a comprehensive definition of God? Abdu'l-Baha, in some answered questions, explained to us that 
we cannot give a comprehensive definition even of limited physical reality. In other words, the complexity of even a simple physical reality like this, uh, like that table, uh, we, the human being, cannot give a comprehensive definition of that thing. No matter how many attributes we say of it, uh, we will never exhaust its attributes because even this table has a, an infinite complexity when viewed in all of its dimensions, as modern physics shows us, for example. So, uh, as it turns out, comprehensive definitions are possible only of abstract logical entities of the sort that exist in mathematics. Um, so, so I'm not saying that this is a comprehensive definition of the human being, but it is a logical definition of the human being, which Baha'u'llah gives. Namely, the human being is that unique entity created by God and which has the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. Nothing else in creation has this capacity. Nothing else in creation, neither in the spiritual world, neither in the physical world, has that capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. Now, let's examine this notion of reflection a little bit. So, just before I go on, let me say this. So, this then answers this age-old question of what is the human being? This gives a definition of the human being which can never be refuted or challenged. And notice that this definition of the human being defines the human being in his essence because it is obviously conceivable uh, that uh, human life on other planets or in other systems uh, could have, in some ways, a very different physical form. Uh, we can imagine, for example, that life could be based on something other than carbon. It could be based on silicon or something like that. Uh, so one could imagine that the physical human being could exist uh, in, uh, in another form. But the human being, these would be still be human beings in the very precise sense that they would have souls which have the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. I don't mean to suggest that I necessarily think that there are human beings in other bizarre forms. I'm simply pointing out that this definition of the human being as a spiritual reality defines the human being in his essence. It's a once and for all definition. It will always be true as true under all physical conditions that one could conceive and so forth. Now, Let's think about what this means to reflect all of the attributes of God. Let's think what this means. Baha'u'llah teaches us to think of God as the sun, the source of light, and the attributes of God as the rays of the sun, the Holy Spirit. Now we know that the rays of the sun <coughs> which appear in their pure form as white light, actually have an infinity of color involved in them, the whole spectrum of colors. But this spectrum of colors, this infinity of different attributes, does not appear in the light in its pure form. In other words, 
when the light comes from the sun, when it's generated by the sun, it appears as a pure white light. There is no differentiation of attributes in the essence of God himself. This Abdu'l Baha makes very clear, beginning with the first tablets that Abdu'l Baha is known to have written, which he wrote at the age of 15, which is the commentary on the Hadith, I was a hidden treasure. Uh, and this tablet is the most philosophical of Abdu'l Baha's work. And very interestingly, the conditions under which this was written, I just mentioned this, um, historically it was in the Baghdad period. And one of the learned, he was not a mullah, but he was a learned man, came to Baha'u'llah, and he asked Baha'u'llah to elucidate this tradition, uh, a hadith of Muhammad, uh, in which Muhammad said, speaking in the voice of God, I was a hidden treasure and desired to be known, hence I created thee. And uh, Baha'u'llah said, the master will answer this. He immediately turned and said, the master will answer this. The master was 15 years old, whereupon Abdu'l Baha immediately sat down and composed this treatise. This treatise is in the most mature philosophical form. It is in every respect comparable to the most mature writings of Plato, of Aristotle, of Avicenna. And it in fact begins where the philosophical tradition of humanity ends at that point. In other words, it begins exactly at the summit of everything that came before the Baha'i faith. And so those of us in the West who don't have access to all of the writings of Abdu'l Baha, we tend to judge Abdu'l Baha's style from the um, general style of his talks, such as in Promulgation of Universal Peace. Um, and we tend to think of his style as being somewhat general and sort of uh, not very philosophical or scientific in the way he talks about things in this very general, easy way. Uh, though when you begin to examine, you realize the rigorous logic that underlies these things. But this was the more mature style of Abdu Baha. The original style of Abdu Baha represented a slightly more mature style than everything that had come before it. In other words, Abdu Baha started at the summit. The, the original style of Abdu Baha was the summit of everything that had gone before it, from beginning up until that point. And so, the, his, the later works of Abdu'l Baha actually reflect a style which goes beyond everything that had come previously. So that's just an interesting uh, sort of aside about this. And in this tablet, Abdu'l Baha explains that there is no differentiation of attributes within the essence of God. In other words, we cannot apply any attribute to God himself. Because to apply an attribute to God would be to say, in effect, that something pre-exists God. It is God who defines attributes, not attributes who define God. In other words, 
if we say that God is good? What does this mean? This sounds as if it means there is a category of existence called goodness and that God has to fit into this. You see? If you say that God is all-knowing, well, this sounds like, well, there's a category of existence called the the knowing beings and the non-knowing beings, and God has to fit into the knowing one. Finally, he he is the, the, the most knowing, but still, he is in this category. Whereas God, in fact, as Abdu'l-Baha explains very clearly in this habit, precedes all categories. He generates the categories. So what is good, good is what God decrees. That is good which God has decreed to be good. That is intelligent which God decrees or makes to be intelligent, etc., etc. In other words, all categories of existence all attributes are generated by God. And there is no differentiation of attributes within the essence of God. So these, of course, are some very metaphysical statements. But if we think of this analogy of the sun and the rays, I think it's very clear. In other words, you can see that in the sun itself, the sun generates these pure white light. You don't see the different colors, blue and red and green, in the light itself within the sun. These attributes that are inherent in the light, they are there. It's that they're not differentiated. You understand? Abdu'l-Bah is not saying that these attributes are not in God. He says that they're not differentiated in the level of the essence of God. We have to be very careful that uh, not to, uh, you know, there's very precise terminology that's involved. Now, Abdu'l-Bah explains in the Tablet of the Universe, among other places, that differentiation occurs only when the attributes of God become incident in created reality. So, let's look around us at the physical world. We see different colors. We see green grass, green trees, my blue jacket, and so on. We see differentiation of colors. Now, what is the basis of this differentiation of color? The basis is the limitation of the created world. That is, why does this jacket look blue? Why does it look blue? Physically, it looks blue for exactly the following reason. The nature of this cloth in this jacket is such that when white light is incident on the cloth, the cloth absorbs all of the light except the blue. In other words, there's a whole spectrum of light, the red, the green, the yellow. All of that other spectrum is absorbed by this. Only the blue is reflected. And therefore, you see this as blue. The same is true for green or whatever. So things appear to be differentiated, that is, blue, green, yellow, because of their limitations, because of their incapacity to reflect everything that is incident upon them. They can only reflect something of what is incident upon them. Now, now let's compare with a mirror. What is the logical definition of a mirror? 
the logical definition of a mirror is a mirror is that physical substance which reflects all of the light that is incident upon it and absorbs none of the light. Okay? That's a logical definition of a mirror. I mean, we could define a mirror physically as a flat thing that's covered with mercury or whatever you want to say, okay? But there again, that would be like the Federalist biped because I could have a mirror made out of wood or a mirror made out of all sorts of things. So a mirror is, logically speaking, a physical substance which has the capacity to reflect all of the light that is incident upon it, which absorbs none of it. So, if I shine white light into a mirror, what I see reflected from the mirror is white light. In other words, the property of the mirror is to reflect everything that is incident upon it. Now, this is the human soul. This is the human soul. This is this reality of the human being which has the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God, that is, to reflect in some degree all of the light of God that is incident upon it. Now, I say in some degree, of course, a perfect mirror would reflect perfectly all of the light, but we could imagine also an imperfect mirror uh, that is not completely smooth, uh, and so, therefore, it is going to reflect, re refract the light in various ways. Or another analogy which Abdu Baha uses, which is very, uh, which is very uh, powerful, is a prism. You know that a prism, if you shine white light onto a prism, it splits the light up into the spectrum of colors. You see all the colors reflected in the prism. But each prism is an individual physical object. No two prisms will refract the light in exactly the same way. In other words, one prism would give more uh, weight to the red part of the spectrum and another prism more to the green part of the spectrum. So this is the individuality of our souls. In other words, every human soul reflects in some degree, all of the attributes of God, but not in the same proportion. There's individuality in the way this is done. And this is like so many different prisms. So to sum up the human reality, we can say that there are two ways in which we are the same and one way in which we are different from each other. This is very clear from the writing. The first way in which we are the same is that all human souls are created of the same substance. Well, we know the hidden word which says this. Know the, why we have created you all from the same substance, that no man shall exalt himself above his neighbor. So, my soul is not made of better stuff than your soul. In other words, all our souls are made of the same substance. There's no inherent superiority in the, 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 what my soul is made out of with respect to what your soul is made of. This is the first point of unity. The second point of unity is this defining attribute of the human being that I've been talking about, namely that the human being has the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. And this is clear over and over again in the writings. Every human soul has the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. It's not just the statement that Dr. Danish read last night. Uh, these are literally hundreds, 
places in the writings where he repeats in different ways exactly the same thing. The human soul alone of all human realities reflects all of the attributes of God. So this again, you see, it could have, logically it could have been different, right? It could be that God created us so that your soul could reflect certain attributes and mine and certain others, and we could say, well, generally speaking, all of the attributes are reflected in some human being, but not necessarily in a given human being. But no, that's not the case. Every individual human soul has the capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. However, there is a third respect in which human souls differ, and that is that the degree or proportion in which we reflect, our souls reflect these attributes, is different. This is the individual difference. That is innate. And you can reread the chapter in some answered questions about the causes and the difference in the character of men, where Abdu Baha makes it absolutely clear that there are innate differences in spiritual capacity. Okay? There's no doubt about this. Uh, so Abdu Baha is not a Lockean. He is not a Humean. He is not a um, Skinnerian. Uh, okay? He... Uh, <laughs> In fact, in, in another uh, passage, um, I think it's from the Tablet of August Forel, but in any case, it's in um, the in Baha'i World Faith. Uh, Abdu Baha specifically contrasts the teachings of the prophets with that scientific that uh, notion, which was then current in science, namely that all human beings have the same capacity at the beginning, and it's only experience that makes them different. This idea goes back to Locke and to the late Renaissance psychologist Rousseau Locke and so on who held this uh, super egalitarian notion that there were no individual differences, the notion of the tabula rasa that uh, everybody starts out like a blank sheet on which experience writes. And Abdu'l-Bahá specifically cites this and he says, this is the teaching of some philosophers and some psychologists but the prophets of God teach, know that there are innate individual differences. And so this is quite clear. And in the same passage in some answered questions, Abdu'l-Bahá, and the one I referred to in the, the, the chapter on the causes of the difference in the character of human being, Abdu'l-Bahá makes it very clear. He says, if you take two children from the same family, in other words, with the same parent, eating the same food, uh, living in the same environment, going to the same school with the same teachers. In other words, he mentions all the genetic variables, all the social variables that you can think of. He says, if all of these are the same, he said, still you will find some who are very bright in the sciences and others who are not so uh, well, you know, um, uh, able in the sciences and so on and so on. Uh, so he makes it very clear that there are innate differences. But then he goes on to make the point, which is, which is obvious, that these differences do not imply superiority or inferiority. In other words, this is another notion which I don't want to get into now. Well, maybe I will in a, in a few minutes, but I don't want to get directly into it. Um, you see, we 
immediately react to this notion of the human being as, in some sense, unfair. We say that that means that God made uh, made you smart and me stupid. Uh, but you see, uh, intelligence in science, which is Abdu'l-Bahá's example in that particular case, is uh, is just one example of a difference. In other words, Suppose you are smarter than me, but I'm a better ballet dancer than you are. I mean, you could just as well feel uh, it's not fair that God made me a better ballet dancer and you uh, an uncoordinated oaf, you know. In other words, uh, it is we who make these comparisons, and it is society, this competitive society we live in, which arranges these judgments into a hierarchy of values and says, that those who possess certain capacities are better than others. That's not God that's doing that. Okay. But we'll talk more about this later. This is very relevant to the Kitabiyatza, as a matter of fact. Uh, but just let me suggest for the moment, and we can get into this later on, that the perception that there's some injustice in God's having created individual differences proceeds not from the reality of the human being, but it proceeds from an extremely limited, materialistic, distorted conception of the human being that derives from an extreme competitiveness that, for certain reasons, which I'll talk about later, has been generated by uh, modern society. Okay? Extreme individualism and extreme competitiveness. But, we can refute this notion in a simply logical way in the following, that there are an infinity of attributes of God. And what Baha'u'llah says is that the proportion in which we reflect these attributes is different from each between each individual. Like, again, the prism. Two prisms which each reflect the whole spectrum of light, but one prism will show more of the red, the other will show more of the blue. And now you come to the question, which is better, blue or red? And you see immediately that has no, that has no sense. It's just exactly like Abdu'l-Bahá's example of the garden of flowers. And which flower is better, the red or the yellow, or the one that smells one way or the one that smells the other way? Difference does not imply superiority or inferiority. This is the basic notion which the Baha'i faith teaches and which only the Baha'is have the capacity to understand at this stage in history. Nobody else understands this fact. It is so ingrained in the cultures that exist that difference immediately implies inferiority or superiority. The minute difference is perceived, the next question people ask is, which is better? Right? As soon as there's a recognition of difference, the next question people ask without even thinking whether this is an appropriate question is, okay, well, if that person is white and that person is black, well, which is better, white or black? You know, The fact that things can simply be different without being arranged in some hierarchy is simply uh, foreign to the modern cultural notion. So I'm suggesting that this is a cultural bias which leads us to perceive these innate differences in a negative way. And this is one of the things which uh, it will be important in coming to grips with the Kitabiyatras. Because the Kitabiyatras is based on the reality of the human being, not on some cultural perception of the human being. 
it's based on the reality, as Hussein was saying last night. Uh, it is based on the reality, the full spectrum of the human reality, uh, and it's not based on some patty cake image of the human being that has been invented by uh, some limited group of psychologists or philosophers or, or anything else. And because it is based on the human reality, it is true. <laughs> it is true in the quite literal scientific sense. In fact, uh, if you'll notice the title of my article that I've given you, the subtitle is The Causality Principle in the World of Being. And this is what we will be seeing this week, is that the Kitabi Akdas is the counterpart for the spiritual world to science in the material world. The Kitabi Akdas gives us the scientific understanding of the operation of the law of cause and effect in the spiritual world. That's exactly what the, the Kitabi Akdas does. Okay? So the Kitabi Akdas is not a book of rules. It is not a book of convention. It is not a book of exhortations about you should be a good boy and act in such and such a way. It is telling you this is the law of cause and effect in spiritual reality. If you want to live in harmony with your reality, then this is the way to do it. If you don't want to, don't do it. God is sufficiently, is independent of his creatures. He has no need of their worship. If you don't want to obey the laws, of, you know, you don't want to be faithful to your wife, okay, don't be faithful to your wife. You'll suffer. I mean, you'll louse up your marriage and so on and so on. You will suffer a humiliating torment in the next world. But if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. You know, it's not going not, not to hurt anybody else. Uh, and so on and so on. So uh, there it is. There it is. It is the choice sealed wine. It is the law of cause and effect in spirituality, which is being given to us. It is being given to us the understanding of the law of cause and effect in spiritual reality based on the God-created reality of the human being. That's what the Gitaviyakas is. And that's why it is, as Shoghi Findi says of it, uh, the consummation of all the holy books of the past. Um, what uh, I, I've quoted that passage, you know that it's in the, uh, it's from God Passes By, and it's quoted in the uh, introduction. Right, it's on page 204 of this. Uh, the principal repository of that law which the prophet Isaiah had anticipated and which the writer of the apocalypse had described as the new heaven and the new earth, as the tabernacle of God, as the holy city, as the bride, the new Jerusalem coming down from God, the most holy book, whose provisions must remain inviolate for no less than a thousand years, and whose system will embrace the entire planet, as the brightest emanation of the mind of Baha'u'llah, as the mother book of his dispensation and the charter of his new world order. So, this is why the Kitab Yagdas has this exalted status, because it is this key to understanding the law of cause and effect in the spiritual world.
Now, I begin by talking about history. Now, in the same passage on page 65 of the gleanings that Hussein read last night, uh, Baha'u'llah goes on to say the following thing. He says, first, alone of all created things, the human being has been singled out for this favor. And he said, then he says the following thing. He says, the purpose of God in endowing the human being with this capacity is so that the human being can know and love God. So in other words, not only did God create us this way, but there's a reason why he created us. And he created us this way so that we can know and love God. Uh, you have the gleanings there? Is that? Yeah. Okay. Why don't you read that? Uh, page 65. Page 65. You have the whole passage. But, but it, it, it's previous to this, just in the past, just before that. Says, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What he says is, first he talks about, the, the passage starts out about how it is that God has created. That God has brought from utter nothingness. You found it? Okay, it's worth it. All praise to the unity of God and all honor to him, the sovereign Lord, the incomparable and all-glorious ruler of the universe, who out of utter nothingness hath created the reality of all things. So he goes on about the greatness of God in creating. Nothing short of his all-encompassing grace, his all-pervading mercy could possibly have achieved it. Then he says, having created the world and all that liveth and moveth therein, he, through the direct and opera operation of his unconstrained and sovereign will, chose to confer upon man the unique distinction and capacity to know him and to love him, a capacity that must needs be regarded as the generating impulse and the primary purpose underlying the whole of creation. So, in other words, the only reason God created anything at all was so that he could create the human being which has this capacity to know him and love him. And this capacity to know and love God is, of course, the same as this capacity to reflect all of the attributes of God. Upon the inmost reality of each and every created thing, he has shed the light of one of his names. But upon the reality of man... He has focused the radiance of all his names and attributes and made it a mirror of his own self. Alone of all created things has man been singled out for so great a favor. So the purpose then in creating man was to make man a mirror of the image of God. In other words, we are created to be worthy partners in dialogue with God.
Yeah, you had a question. We will talk about this. When I get, on Sunday night, when I give the um, lecture on the structure of reality, I'll talk about this. Uh, it doesn't mean absolute nothingness, because as Abdu'l Baha says, as Aristotle already said before Abdu'l Baha, and as Abdu'l Baha reiterates, you couldn't have anything that comes from absolute nothingness. If there was absolute nothingness, there never would be anything. And, uh, Anything that exists cannot be annihilated because you can't transform existence into absolute non-existence either. So obviously he doesn't mean, you know. but in the first place, God always existed, right? So nothing that God made came from nothing. It came from God. Okay? Doesn't mean it's made out of God, but it means it came from God. But Baha'u'llah explains how God created actually. Okay? He started with a point, the point moved, he generated a line, he splits the line lengthwise, and then he causes the two lines to revolve around each other, which is simple harmonic motion. In other words, which generates the DNA, which generates uh, essentially fractals. In other words, it represents an infinite repetition of certain patterns, which produces differentiated reality. So this is explained in the writings of the faith, okay? So in a certain sense, the point is nothing because it has no dimension, but it's still an existent reality. So we have to understand what that means. But it doesn't mean absolute nothing. Okay. It does not mean absolute nothing. That's clear. Okay. So, so at least on Sunday night, uh, those of you who are interested, uh, we can discuss these things in much more detail. Okay, so so here we see then that the purpose of God in creating man was to create a worthy partner in dialogue with himself. This is the human destiny. Therefore, history, both collective history and individual history, is a history of the dialogue between us and God. That's what history is. You want to know what history is? Marx said history was a class struggle, okay? Other historians say that history is a chaos of events. Others say that history is uh, even the history of religion. History is the history of the dialogue between God and humanity. That's what history is. The history of every individual is the history of the dialogue between that individual and God. And the history of every culture is the history of the dialogue between that people or that culture and God. Now, just as... Now, in this tablet that I mentioned that Abdu'l Baha wrote the commentary on I Was a Hidden Treasure, you need your book back. Uh, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Just... Oh, yeah. He says that not only that there is differentiation of attributes in the level of creation, but he says that every human soul has a dominant attribute, that there is 
God has caused one attribute to be dominant in each human being. Now, um, this is simply a, 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 a somewhat philosophical way of saying what we already know from a common sense basis. Strong points and our weak points, right? As we all have our natural strong points and our natural weak points. We can see here's a person who from a very early age was very verbal, was very articulate, was very logical. Here's another person who was very creative, imaginative, artistic. Here's another person who is very active and dynamic and uh, inventive and manipulating the physical world in all sorts of ways and so on and so on. So we know this. I mean, we can see from the very early age that children show very marked tendencies. Uh, they have strong points and weak points. And uh, so uh, every individual has a dominant attribute, and we can say in the same way every culture has a dominant attribute. And again, you can see uh, why nationalism is such a pernicious thing because nationalism is, is in effect the following thing. Nationalism is where a cultural group takes their cultural strong point, forgets its obvious weak points, <laughs> and says that these strong points are a model for the whole rest of humanity, you know, and then proceeds to impose what they perceive their strong points to be on everybody else. Uh, so, you know, uh, the Germans were very smart people. They are very smart people, okay? But Hitler took this fact, uh, and he flattered the ego of the Germans, and he produced Nazism. Uh, he produced the illusion, the collective illusion, that the Germans were a master race and so on and so on. Well, this is just one very easy example, but, you know, look at what's going on in, in fundamentalist Islam today, and it's exactly the same thing. Uh, and uh, so every individual does this, every culture does this. This is this um, fact of taking one's dominant attribute of one's strong point and making of this a reason for pride and for exalting oneself over other people or over other cultures, if it's a collective phenomenon. Uh, whereas, from the point of view of the Baha'i faith, there is no universal person today, there is no universal personality in existence today, uh, there is no universal culture. In other words, our history has totally differentiated these attributes of God in such a way that each of the attributes is manifested to a very high degree in certain very specific ways. But no culture or no individual or no philosophy manifests all of these attributes in a complete way. Of course, there was a perfect person, and that's Abdu'l-Bahá. I mean, this is the importance of Abdu'l-Bahá as the perfect exemplar, is that Baha'u'lláh has given us not only the teachings, but he has, in fact, brought into being a prototype of universality, and that is Abdu'l-Bahá. And so this is why Abdu'l-Bahá is the center of the covenant, that is, the example for all time of um, true universality. 
So we have at least the fact that universality has been achieved, uh, but this represents the ideal towards which we are striving. So again, history is the history of a dialogue between God and man. Between God and the whole human race, local histories are histories between those peoples or cultures and God. Individual histories are the history of the dialogue between that individual and God. This history has taken place in such a way that it has brought to the fore in each case certain attributes and it has suppressed or neglected would perhaps be better, certain other attributes. In other words, it is an imbalanced history. And this is what I'm in when I say that we inherit a history of injustice. Justice means balance. Justice means giving the proper value, the inherent value to each thing recognizing the proportion between these values and giving the value to it. Another definition of justice, which is logically equivalent, but which perhaps is more emotionally interesting, is that justice is simply those conditions which allow love to be born and flourish. Now, when we have a history of injustice, this means that our history, our dialogue with God up until now, is shot through, is pervaded by these terrible imbalances, these injustices which we inherit. Let's take the most obvious case. I don't say it's the most important, but it's the most obvious. Namely, slavery. Slavery can be defined as a social pattern in which one social group systematically exploits another identifiable social group by, on the one hand, limiting the social prerogatives of the oppressed group, but at the same time, forcing the oppressed group to produce more than it consumes. So that's a logical definition of slavery. So slavery could be on any basis. I mean, religious, racial, uh, social, economic, whatever. Now, I say systematic exploitation because human relationships are always involve a certain amount of exploitation. I mean, even our casual relationships with each other, as long as we need something from each other, there's a certain amount of manipulation involved in any human relationship. I say a certain amount. I don't want to say, I'm not trying to say the old cynical thing that humans can't love and that humans can't, aren't capable of genuine self-sacrifice. I'm saying that as long as the human ego exists, there will always be some degree, even if it's only 1% or... There's always some degree of self-interest in any human transaction because we're not God. That's, I mean, that's what it means to be to be imperfect rather than perfect. 
Um, but again, in the past, these manipulative elements, these exploitative elements have been greater than they will be in the future as we spiritualize ourselves. So slavery is not just the existence of some exploitation. It is systematic. It is systematic, and it's where one identifiable social group systematically restricts the freedom of another group and forces that group to produce more than it consumes. Now, slavery in this precise sense has been the basis of every society up until the 19th century. There are no exceptions. Name one society that has not been founded on slavery. You can't because there isn't one. All right? Uh, none of the prophets of the past abolished slavery. Moses didn't abolish slavery. The, read the Old Testament. It's a, it's a veritable slave owner's manual. Okay? In other words, if this guy's slave hits this guy's slave, then this is what you do. Uh, nowhere does Moses say it's immoral to have slaves. You shouldn't have slaves. He doesn't say you should have them either. He just does not pronounce himself. But Moses did a very clever thing, however. He said, every seven days you will stop work. Every seven days you will stop work. Everybody. And he made this a moral principle on an equal with the most fundamental moral principles. One of the Ten Commandments. In other words, you should love your God with all your mind, your heart, and your soul. Uh, you should not covet your neighbor's wife or his possessions. You shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't kill. I mean, everybody would agree that these are very fundamental moral principles. And then, right in the middle, he has, and every seven days you stop work. Well, why didn't Moses just say, you know, it would be a good idea if every seven days or so you stopped work? Well, the point is that those who are at the top of the heap, the aristocrats in the society, don't have to stop work every seven days because they're not working anyway. All right? And since these are the decision makers in the society, if he had said, well, it's a good idea that you stop work every seven days, then okay, yeah, well, okay, we won't, we won't, we'll do even less on, on Saturday than we do <laughs> during the week. But he says, no, it's a command of God. Just as you shall not kill and you shall not steal, you shall stop work every seven days. So, this assured at least that the slaves were one-seventh free. In other words, every seven days, uh, they could not be forced to work for an entire 24 hours. And um, in 1966, when I, the first time I went to Russia, it was to a mathematics con conference in, in Moscow, uh, I had a guide who was obviously a KGB agent uh, who spoke very good English. Uh, and I spoke no Russian at the time and speak very little Russian now, though I'm struggling along with Vadim's help. Um, um, but uh, one Sunday, my guide and I were walking in the, in the center of Moscow, and I said, oh, "Why are all the uh, why are all the the shops closed?" So she said, "Well, it's Sunday." I said, "Yeah, well, so what?" Uh, so it's Sunday. I mean, what's what's that to you? 
says, well, they've always been closed on Sunday. And I said, look, I said, don't kid me. You know as well as I do that this practice started 3,500 years ago when a stutterer in a desert named Moses said that you shall stop work every seven days. And she says, yeah. And I said, uh, so, I said, here in an atheist country, you know, 3,500 years later, a country which loudly proclaims it has no need of God and that religion is a superstition, that this Moses has given, you know, the communist worker, you know, a rest every seven days. I said, that's a pretty remarkable thing. And so, so then she said, well, actually, Lenin tried to institute a 10-day week, but it didn't work. I said, well, I said, uh, the Russians may be communists. I said, they're not stupid, you know. <laughs> they can count, you know, every 10 days is not as much as every seven days, you know. So Lenin couldn't change the law of Moses, okay, even in the Soviet Union when he had absolute power, okay. He couldn't do it. I mean, he tried to start a 10-day week, and he couldn't do it. I mean, Stalin shot people who got to work five minutes late, but they never could change the law of Moses. I mean, this is true. This is, a, this is actually what happened. Still, right now, they, they closed the shop. I mean, they always did during the whole communist period. So so you can see that, that uh, even though Moses did not forbid slavery, Moses nonetheless instituted a law which relieved the condition of slavery in a very clever way. And to make it absolutely clear, I mean, you can read this, it's in the Bible. Uh, after Moses had given the Ten Commandments, two people were brought to Moses and said, uh, said Moses, uh, these two people were working on the Sabbath. They've broken the law of the Sabbath. What, we, what should we do? And so these guys were sort of standing there, you know, sort of, you know, yeah, well, yeah, we were doing a little work or whatever, you know. Uh, it's not such a big deal, you know. And so uh, Moses said they should be stoned to death. And they were taken out and immediately stoned to death. I imagine that not too many people broke the Sabbath from then on. You know. Now, you know, you say, well, this is brutal. You know, a prophet stoning people to death for working on the Sabbath. Well... The point again is that Moses was doing this to protect generations, uh, to alleviate generations, uh, the conditions of generations of workers for thousands of years, making this an absolute law. So this is what the prophets did. They did not forbid directly these injustices because they recognized that the condition of mankind at that time was such that man was not capable of manifesting in a balanced way perfect justice. So we inherit a history of injustice. Uh, another example of injustice is the oppression of women by men. This, in my personal opinion, is the greatest injustice that we inherit. Because 
I think it's much greater than racial prejudice and all of these other prejudices. I'm not d diminishing the, the negative effect of such prejudices as racial prejudice and class prejudice and so on, and they're horrible. I mean, you can look at the, the war in Yugoslavia and so on and see, you know, how terrible, how, perni how pernicious, you know, these prejudices are. And, um, but uh, nonetheless, um, um, I feel that the suppression of women by men is by far the most pernicious of all. Because this takes place in the intimacy of the most fundamental relationship. As we will see in the Kitabi Akdas, the most fundamental relationship which exists is between man and God. In other words, the fundamental dialogue is between us and God, as I said. History is a history of the dialogue between us and God. But the second most fundamental relationship that humans can have is between husband and wife, because the whole human race comes forth from this relationship. In other words, the couple is the basis of the family. The family is the, is the mold that stamps out the future generation. Now, if this relationship is skewed, if this relationship between the husband and wife is asymmetric, then it's going to stamp out an asymmetric, in other words, unjust. Again, lack of symmetry is the injustice, the imbalance. If this relationship is imbalanced, if it is asymmetric, then it's going to stamp out every generation in this mold. And that's the whole history of the human race. I mean, this relationship has never been balanced. It has always been asymmetric. It has always been skewed. As Abdu'l-Bahá says, he says it very explicitly. So we inherit a history of injustice. We inherit a history of injustice. Now, the next question is, what is the dynamics of injustice? From whence comes the injustice? I mean, we've talked about the fact of the injustice, okay? But what is the mainspring of this injustice? Well, Baha'u'llah tells us explicitly. It is the seeking of power. All injustice comes from the seeking of power. Now here again, we have to be very explicit in our terms. I am not saying that injustice comes from the exercise of power. Power is one of the attributes of God. We speak of the power of faith, the power of love. I'm not saying that power is immoral. Power is from God. I'm saying it is the seeking of power that produces injustice, not the exercise of power. In itself, the power can be exercised for good or for evil. Power is morally neutral. It can be used either for good or evil. But I'm saying the seeking of power is evil. Okay. Well, let's read one passage where Baha'u'llah says this. Uh, it's quoted in this. Uh, and uh, I have to... find it.
Okay, it's on page 228. On page 228. And amongst the realms of unity is the unity of rank and station. It redoundeth to the exaltation of the cause, glorifying it among all peoples. Ever since the seeking of preference and distinction came into play, the world hath been laid waste. It hath become desolate. Well, what is the seeking of preference and distinction? Notice, he doesn't say ever since preference and distinction came into play, the seeking of preference and distinction. The seeking of power. Those who have quaffed on the ocean of divine utterance and fixed their gaze upon the rim of glory should regard themselves as being on the same level as the others and in the same station. Were this matter to be definitively established and conclusively demonstrated through the power and might of God, the world would become as the Abha paradise. This is the vision of the future. In other words, when we defeat the seeking of power, this is the essential condition for bringing about this vision of the unity of mankind, the, the kingdom of God on earth. Indeed, man is noble inasmuch as each is a repository of the sign of God. There we go back to the creation of man again. In other words, in this created condition, man is noble because he reflects all of the attributes of God. Nevertheless, to regard oneself as superior in knowledge, learning, or virtue, or to exalt oneself, or to seek preference, is a grievous transgression. Uh, it's not just a little bit bad. It is a grievous transgression. Great is the blessedness of those who are adorned with the ornament of this unity, and have been graciously confirmed by God. Well, I could go on. There, there are literally hundreds of statements from Abdu'l-Baha and Baha'u'llah that confirm this thing. The source of injustice is the seeking of power. Now, to seek power means to make power an end. The proper use of power is to make power a means to the true end. What is the true end? The true end is love. Because love is the highest value. And love is, in fact, the only universal value. What do I mean by universal value? I mean a value which is applicable in all times, in all circumstances. There is no conceivable existential situation in which an increase in love will not be beneficial. In other words, it is good to eat nourishing food, but if you are sick or weak or you've already eaten a full meal or whatever, there are certain circumstances in which it is not good to eat, in which it is, in fact, harmful to eat. Uh, there are certain circumstances in which um, an increase in power, an increase in authority, or a decrease in power and authority are not good things. But there is no circumstance in which an increase in love is not beneficial. Love is, in fact, the only universal value. Well, Abdu'l-Bahá tells us this. This is on page 212 of the... Uh, booklet. <clears throat> you know this. This is Abdu'l-Bahá's uh, 
statement about love. I haven't quoted it fully. I've left out some things. Love is the mystery of divine revelation. Love is the breath of the Holy Spirit inspired into the human spirit. Love is the cause of the manifestation of the truth, God, in the phenomenal world. Love is the necessary tie proceeding from the realities of things through divine creation. Well, there it is. It's the fundamental universal law. Because it is the necessary tie proceeding from the realities of things through divine creation. In other words, it is the fundamental connection between each and every created thing. Love is the means of the most great happiness in both the material and spiritual world. Love is the greatest law in this vast universe of God. Well, there I don't even have to make a deduction. He says it. Love is the one law which calls us and controls us order among the existing atoms. Love is the cause of the civilization of nations in this mortal world. So, love is, as he says, the cause of happiness. Why is that? Well, on one level you can say it's that way because God made it that way, and of course that's true. But God has given us minds so that we can understand why he did this. Love is the one human interaction or the one human transaction which is experienced positively by both giver and receiver. Both the lover and the beloved derive happiness from the exchange of love. It is, to use the common terminology, which I don't really like, but which I use, it is a win-win transaction. Okay? In other words, justice, a transaction based on justice, can, under certain circumstances, be a win-lose transaction, or it certainly can be perceived that way, because at some point you may have to give up something by justice that you are attached to. Now, of course, we know ultimately that this is for your benefit, if it's true justice and so on, but you may perceive it as a loss at the time that you But never will you perceive love as a loss. Never, if you are the object of love or if you are the giver of love, will you perceive this as a loss. So love is the one transaction between human beings that creates happiness, if you will, on part both of giver and receiver. Now, what has created this perception that is so widespread that there are no really win-win transactions, that there are always winners and losers? Well, culturally, this comes again from this competitive view of society, which I will talk about and which I alluded to earlier. But more fundamentally, it comes from the following. It comes from an unthinking generalization of materialistic reasoning to spiritual reality. And that, Gins brings us back to the Kitabi Akdas as the causality principle in the spiritual world. Let me explain. It's very simple. A material reality is diminished if it is shared. That's a fact of physical existence. If I have an apple and I share it with you, we each have share half, half apple, right? We each have half of an apple. 
I mean, that's the fact. You know, if I share it with everybody, we each have a little piece of that. And this is the first principle of economics. I mean, right? You go into any economics course anywhere in the world, okay? The first day, what do they tell you? Economics. Economics is competition for limited resources. That's the whole basis of economics, right? That's what they tell you, okay? Resources are limited. The more limited they are, the greater the competition, the more expensive it is. That which is rare is dear, right? This is the fundamental principle of economics. The more unique a thing is, the more rare it is, the less general it is, the more valuable it is. Value is specialness. The more particular a thing is, the more valuable it is. This is the principle that governs material transactions. In any case, it has so far governed material transactions. I will have something to say about that also later on, but only after we've seen it. But my main point here is that this law does not apply to spiritual things. The spiritual law is exactly the opposite. Spiritual realities are multiplied when they're shared, not diminished. If I have a good idea and I share it with you, then we both have a good idea. Is the good idea diminished by being shared, or is it multiplied? If I have love and I share it with you, then we both have love. We all know, is it not the most fundamental fact of life that love calls forth love, right? In other words, the natural response, even if you detest somebody, if you, for certain reasons, have a dislike to somebody, if that person is truly loving towards you, your spontaneous reaction is going to be to respond by being loving towards them. <laughs> because love begets love. That's just the law of love. You know, spiritual realities are multiplied by being sharing. Sharing multiplies spiritual reality, whereas sharing diminishes material reality. Okay? Therefore, the perception that in any transaction there must be gain and loss, which is true in the material sense, because if I want to buy something, I have to give money for it, so there is gain and loss. I gain the thing, but I have to give up the money to get it, you see. So in a material transaction, there is always gain and loss. But in spiritual transactions, this does not apply. This law does not apply to the spiritual world. This whole notion of gain and loss is a materialistic notion. It is not a spiritual notion. Because any transaction that is based on love, there is no loss. There is only gain on the part both of giver and receiver. As Abdu'l-Bahá says, love creates happiness. As he says elsewhere, the spiritual world, which means love again, only gives happiness. The spiritual world cannot give unhappiness. All unhappiness comes from some form of attachment to the material world or to materialistic thinking about the spiritual world. This is in some uh, in Paris talks that he says this, for example. So. Love, then, is the ultimate goal. If love is the greatest value, then love is the only true end, the only thing that we should seek 
is love. Why should we seek anything else? If love will make us happy, why should I seek something that's going to make me unhappy? If I can seek something that will make me happy. So love will make me happy, will make all of us happy. Now, by seeking power instead of love, then, we have made the means to attaining love the end. In other words, power, which can be used to establish justice. And as I say, what is justice? Justice is simply the conditions under which love flourishes. Notice one important thing here. This is crucial. This is absolutely crucial. If you want to understand the Kitabi Agdas, you have to understand this. Love is the only thing that power cannot obtain. Think of that. Power can do a lot. You know, there's a story about one of the Russian czars. I've forgotten which one it was. Uh, but he told one of his ministers, he said, go out and make the people love me. <laughs> In other words, here's a man who had absolute power, but he couldn't have the one thing he wanted, namely that people love him. Why? Because you can't command love. If you don't believe it, think of the person you dislike the most and will yourself to love them. You can't do it, right? An application, the force of will cannot create love. Love can only be invited. And what invites love? Justice. When the proper balance is established, when the proper values are implemented, then the conditions under which love is born and flourished are created. So justice is the conditions under which love is born and flourished. And we can use power to establish justice. So if we expend the power to establish justice, then this serves the goal of establishing love. But what we have done in our history is reverse this process. We have made power the end. We seek power, and therefore we sacrifice justice and love to power. What do we sacrifice in order to get power? We sacrifice the quality of our human relationship. The successful businessman, what does he sacrifice? He sacrifices his wife, his kids, his family, the love of everybody. Everybody hates his guts because all he does is manipulate and control them all day long. And so, sure, he's successful. He gets his power. But he's gotten this at the expense, at the sacrifice of justice and love. So, the proper relationship, the God-intended relationship between love, justice, and power is that power is to be expended, is to serve justice, and justice is to serve love. And what we have done in our history, in our dialogue with God, is turn this around and justice has been enslaved by power and love has been enslaved by injustice. 
And that's why the human race inherits a history of injustice. Now, let me just say one final word. I still have five minutes. Five minutes, according to my wife. <laughs> that how does Baha'u'llah do this? How does Baha'u'llah defeat the seeking of power? Well, this takes place on two levels. On the one level, he gives us the law of prayer. He gives us this individual relationship with God, which allows us to experience a pure love relationship. In other words, we know what pure love is because God is the source of pure love. So in daily prayer and meditation, which is the heart of individual discipline, we experience love and therefore as individuals, we can learn to seek to renounce the seeking of power and to implement love in our own relationship. So that's the individual level. But what about the collective level? What do we do? Well, Baha'u'llah has done a very clever thing. He has devised an entirely unique system called the covenant. The covenant is a system which utterly defeats the seeking of power because the covenant is a system of social order in which it is impossible to be successful in seeking power. You can try. This doesn't mean you can't try. But you cannot succeed. So the covenant of Baha'u'llah, which is given in the Qatambi is the rock on which this future will be built. Because it is a system which is now available to mankind, which utterly defeats the seeking of power. It is impossible to be successful in seeking power in the covenant of Baha'u'llah. If you do, you will destroy yourself. You will destroy yourself. You may be able to live for a certain time under the illusion that you have been successful. You may say, I would really like to be elected to the National Assembly. Maybe you will get elected to the National Assembly. But, of course, what you will discover is that you have a lot of work and not very much glory. And so at that point, you will either readjust your appraisal of this whole thing. You will either meet the challenge and uh, put aside the seeking of power. But if you persist, you will simply destroy yourself. You will simply destroy yourself. Uh, so this is the general framework in which I will uh, treat uh, specific uh, provisions of the Gitabi Akhtas, the dialogue between God and man, uh, the history of injustice, the establishment of a system in which power is the servant of justice, and justice is the servant of love. And the ultimate result of that is simply that we will be happy. That's all. It's just that simple. Okay? It's just that simple. All God says, if you want to be happy, you know, here's the way you do it. You'll be happy. you enjoy it. You know, that's all. And that's why he says, think not we have revealed a code of laws. We have revealed the choice seal wine. What is wine? It's an image of euphoria, of that which makes us supremely happy. I'll talk about that tomorrow.
Well, yesterday we saw that um, from the Baha'i point of view, the human life is a dialogue between God and man, between the highest thing in creation and the highest thing in existence. And uh, we saw that history is a history of the dialogue between God and man. And cultural histories are the history of the dialogue between a given people and God, and individual histories are the history of the story thank you, of the dialogue between a given individual and God. Now, we can say something else, that history is also a growth process. Life is a growth process. And we saw yesterday that Baha'u'llah says that the whole of creation has been created for man. That man is the apogee of creation, that he is the highest thing in creation, because alone in creation, the human reality can reflect all of the attributes of God. And furthermore, in the same passage in the Gleanings, uh, Baha'u'llah says that the whole purpose of creation was to bring forth man. And we know that elsewhere uh, in the Tablet to the True Seeker, which is in the Kitab-i-Yigan, Baha'u'llah says that every atom in existence has been ordained for the training of the human being. In other words, it is not man to find his purpose in creation, but creation finds its purpose in man. The human being is the reason for creation. It is the goal of creation. It is the object of creation. Everything in creation takes its meaning with respect to God's purpose for the human being. And so human history is a growth process. Now the Baha'i writings tell us, as we know, uh, the Guardian has explained this very clearly, that the history of the last 6,000 years has been the history of the childhood of the human being, the infancy and childhood and early youth of the human being. Now, this, of course, is interesting as an analogy as far as it goes, but in fact, it has far deeper implications than, uh, than that, than a simple analogy. Let's think of the nature of childhood with respect to the individual human life. The essence of childhood in human life is that nothing is complete in itself. Everything that pertains to childhood looks forward to a future completion. Everything that relates to childhood is with respect to the adult potential of the child. For example, if a young child produces a drawing, he draws something. Well, we all know what the drawings of young children look like. Um, 
But when a young child produces a drawing, we will praise it. We will say, what a wonderful tree you have designed, or what a wonderful, if it looks like a tree, we'll maybe <laughs> say that it's a tree, or uh, what is this beautiful thing that you have designed if we want to play it safe. Uh, and uh, I remember I uh, I got caught once by my eldest daughter, who was quite precocious, actually. And uh, so I was so used to her... Uh, expressions of childhood creativity that once I went down to her room and uh, she was being playing with with blocks, you know. And so there was this configuration there. And I said, uh, oh, that's wonderful what you've made. What is it? And she says, can't you see, Daddy? It's just a pile of blocks. <laughs> so, um, but in any case, uh, we, um, if the child produces, say, a drawing, uh, we will praise it. We will say, that's wonderful what you did. Now, according to any objective standards of art, it's not wonderful. I mean, it's, it's very crude. But what we are praising is not the objective quality of this work. We are praising the creativity in the child that has brought it forth. And we should praise it. We are right to praise it because... If we do not praise and encourage the creativity in its childhood expression, it will never develop in its mature adult expression. So in other words, the praise, the way we interact with the child is always with respect to the adult potential. It's always in the perspective of the adulthood, which is in the future. And notice that the Adamic cycle in human history is also called the prophetic cycle. And what is the prophetic cycle? It is a cycle which looks forward to a future completion. So everything in the history of, hum of humanity up until now is characteristic of the age of childhood. But this is not a deduction on my part. Abdu'l-Bahá says this explicitly. It's quoted in by the Guardian, for example, in um, in the Call to the Nation. Um, I'm sorry that. You know, if I, if I brought in these quotes explicitly and read from them, you know, it would just take up all the time. Uh, but there is this uh, quote where Abdu'l-Bahá says that, er, that all of human history, that everything that uh, pertains to the past history of the human race is uh, representative of the childhood and the youth of the human race. And now, of course, we know that we're in the transition towards the adulthood of the human race. Now, if we look at this relationship then between a childhood and adulthood, we can see two things. The first is the following. The child acts like a child most of the time. The child acts like a child most of the time. And for the child, the normal functioning of the adult appears as godlike. In other words, Childhood is a period of growth. And how do we grow? We grow by accomplishing certain tasks and then moving on to other tasks. But this is a cumulative process in such wise that we, uh, we at the end of this process, we have a number of uh, abilities that we have developed. So we learn to walk. So at the very moment, if you've ever seen a child taking its first step, it's as if the whole 
forces of the universe converge on this effort that this style is taking to take this one step, if at that moment you ask the child to do anything else, he couldn't. All of his energies are devoted to taking that one step. But once he's taken that step and another step and he learns to walk, then eventually, of course, walking becomes so spontaneous that you don't have to think about it. You can walk and chew gum at the same time as the uh, as the saying goes. Uh, and, of course, there's a certain intrinsic logic to the development. You can't run before you can walk. Uh, you can't go from not walking at all to running. Uh, so it is a staged development, and there's an intrinsic logic, an inherent logic in this development. It is not chaotic. In other words, it's not that you just get this ability here and that ability there, and you have a grab bag of abilities which eventually come together. It is a stage of the process which has an intrinsic, inherent logic to it. Now, so the result of this process of development and when you when one reaches adulthood is that one has accumulated, one has accumulated all of these abilities. One knows how to walk, to run, to read, to do arithmetic. One has intellectual and physical abilities. And so this gives the characteristic of the adult human being, which is his flexibility, his polyvalence, as we say in French, which is, which is a more powerful word than flexibility, but there's not really any translation for polyvalence in, in English. Um, so it means, literally it means, of course it's a Latin word, it means polyvalence, it means many-valued, uh, being able to do many-faceted, being able to do many different things. And so from a sociological or psychological point of view, the definition, I mean, yesterday we saw the, def, the spiritual logical definition of the human being, the sociological psychological definition of the human being is that the human being is indefinable. In other words, we don't know what the limits of the adult human potential are. So every other creature, an animal can be defined. You can say just what a cow can do. And we can presume that we can pretty much circumscribe what a cow can do. Uh, and of course, there are some cows that are more intelligent than other cows, and there are cows that are more lazy than other cows. But we can put absolute limits on what cows can do. So we can define the nature of cowness. We can define the nature of hoarseness. But we can't define, circumscribe the potential of the human being because we don't know what this potential is. Uh, so the, the best definition, the best, if you will, empirical definition of the adult human being is that the human being is the only being in existence that is indefinable, that cannot be a priori circumscribed. Now, as I say, then, for the child growing up, the normal everyday functioning of the adult, the adult who has accumulated all of these abilities, who has this flexibility, this polyvalence, the normal everyday functioning of the, of the, the adult appears godlike to the child. I mean, how is it possible that one human being can do all the things that a, an adult can do, and do them so easily, you know. I mean, he can do work, and he can play music, and he can, you know, uh, talk, uh, hopefully eloquently, and so on. 
physical abilities, artistic abilities, intellectual abilities. He can solve problems. Uh, he can control machines, complicated machines, and so on and so on. And so all every this normal everyday functioning of the adult human being, all of it is above the best level of functioning of the child, of the normal child, because the child is still embedded in this ongoing growth process. So that's the first aspect of childhood. The child is mostly a child, and he is mostly operates on a level that is uh, below the normal functioning of the adult, uh, such functioning which appears godlike to the child. The second characteristic of childhood is that occasionally, nonetheless, the child will show incredibly mature, under certain circumstances, incredibly mature behavior. This is not the norm for the child. This is exceptional. But under certain circumstances, the child will show forth adult functioning and even incredibly mature adult functioning. We've all observed instances of this. I mean, maybe there's some tragedy in the family, and all of a sudden the child, a five- or six-year-old child, will behave with incredible courage, with incredible maturity, with incredible judgment. I've seen some cases of this. Young children who will make judgments in, 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 in circumstances, you know, like when somebody is, maybe there's been an accident and somebody's uh, in danger of dying or something, a child will make an incredibly mature judgment uh, of what to do and will, will, will accomplish incredible tasks. And so we see then in the child flashes, portents of adult functioning. But these are exceptions. These are not the norm for the child. Well, this is the same condition of the history of the human race. Each culture, each stage of development in the history of the human race has developed certain capacities of the human potential to a very high degree, but only certain. In other words, at certain stages we've learned to walk, another stage is to run, another stage to read, and so on. Uh, Professor Bemati talked yesterday about, for example, Arabic culture, uh, developing this language uh, of Arabic to a very high degree, and this was virtually the only identifiable cultural product of that civilization, at least until Muhammad came. Of course, afterwards, it showed forth what eventually became the highest expression of culture uh, in history to that time. Uh, that was after the revelation of the Quran, because, uh, uh, incidentally, I'm particularly aware of this recently because I recently had occasion I was asked by the Encyclopedia Britannica to write the article on foundations of mathematics for the forthcoming edition of Britannica. So I did this this last year in St. Petersburg, uh, and I hired a young Russian as my research assistant. So this was the occasion for me to go back over uh, material that I had been, you know, teaching for, for 30 years. And uh, the contribution to science of the Arabs uh, after Muhammad is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And uh, in fact, um, we can really see the beginning of modern civilization. This is sort of a parenthesis. I mean, take this as the indulgence of a... Of a, of a of an ex-math professor. Uh, so if it's not interesting, just forget it. Uh, but in effect, it's quite interesting that the Greeks developed geometry. 
uh, and they saw everything in geometrical terms. But the study of pure quantities, uh, as far as I can tell from history, I mean, I'm not a historian, but uh, everything that I've read and studied, this came from the Arabs. I mean, the, the Arabs were the first ones to develop the study of pure quantity and abstraction from any context, such as uh, geometrical context. In other words, for the Greeks, numbers represented geometrical entities like links or volumes or whatever. Uh, they were never considered as pure entities. Uh, and um, I don't see any exception to this anywhere in the Greek writings. I mean, in Plato, uh, all of his examples of mathematics are geometrical examples. Whereas the Arabs developed algebra, which uh, is the title of the book by Al-Khwarizmi in the 8th century, uh, in which the science of pure quantity is developed. And this led, led to uh, what's known as the algebraic field of numbers, uh, whereas the Greeks studied what's known as the constructible field of numbers. But this came together in the mind of René Descartes. In other words, analytic geometry of René Descartes we can date the beginning of the modern era from the, the moment in which these two currents of intellectual history, the geometry developed by the Greeks and the algebra developed by the Arabs, fused in the mind of René Descartes. And this is, this is the precise moment in which the modern era was born. Okay? And so, uh, so if I give this example, it's simply to show you how history reflects this childhood nature of development where different cultures concentrated on certain very specific cultural products, you see? Very specific. In other words, it's absolutely incredible, for example, even now, that the Greeks developed geometry to such an incredibly high extent without developing algebra. I mean, <laughs> in other words, it seems almost impossible. It seems like it would be almost more difficult to develop geometry without algebra than to develop it with algebra. But yet, the Greeks did. And of course, this gave a certain insight into the thing. And the, uh, the Arabs, the Hindu Arabic cultures, did exactly the opposite. They developed uh, arithmetic and algebra to a very great extent, with virtually without geometry. And so, we can see then that history shows this development of diff different cultures concentrating on different cultural products, uh, certain aspects of mathematics, certain aspects of philosophy, certain aspects of language, uh, poetry, literature. And so, but none of these are comprehensive. They are all partial, but all develop a certain aspect of the human potential to a very high degree. So obviously, when we say that the Baha'is, uh, the Baha'i era, the era inaugurated by Baha'u'llah inaugurates the maturity of the human being. This means the convergence of all these cultural products. This means that now we're entering the period in which all of these different aspects or facets of the human potential will all be developed in harmony together. Uh, so it will be not just the juxtaposition, not just the convergence of these, but it will be uh, the convergence of these plus the future development that results from the convergence of these. So it won't be just a juxtaposition of all these things. You put geometry with algebra, with uh, Arabic language, 
with uh, English poetry and so on, and that universal culture, it's that this convergence will bring about the basis, the beginning, on which this future, as uh, Elizabeth Martin said yesterday, this shared future history, which will be the beginning, as she very rightly says, of universal history. I mean, this, she's right on with this notion. This is exactly, this is the beginning of universal history. Up until now, we haven't had universal history in the sense of a universally shared history. History has been local, cultural, specific. So, this is the beginning of universal history. Now, so this is the nature of development, is that it is specific, it looks forward to a future completion. But there's also the second aspect. There are these exceptions. There are these places in history where we call them geniuses, saints, uh, have, under certain circumstances, showed forth adult human potential. And these are the people we call the great geniuses of history. Uh, a Beethoven, an Einstein, uh, a Plato, an Aristotle, where in the midst of a, a cultural desert, uh, suddenly a great genius uh, produces uh, a cultural product which is transcendental, which is far beyond anything that exists in the, in the culture around him. And so this gives us an idea of what the adult human potential is. So this leads us to the following principle then. In adulthood, what was the exceptional becomes the norm. The characteristic of maturity is that what in the era of childhood was the exception now becomes the norm. And this is characteristic of the age that we are moving into. What was exceptional in the past will become the normal in the future. So we look at the Beethovens and Einsteins and Newton and Descartes as exceptions, which they were. I mean, with respect to, to what was going on then, they were. But already, you know, you can see this process. I mean, things that were considered for thousands of years to be the highest expression of human intellectual endeavor can now be taught to five-year-old grade school, uh, grade school children, okay? Uh, I mean, arithmetic, which for thousands of years was uh, possessed by only a handful of aristocrats or exceptions in the culture, uh, in most cultures, you know, is now routinely taught uh, and understood by uh, young children and so on. And Abdu'l-Bahá tells us that in the future, uh, the child of the future will be more learned, uh, more erudite than the great scholars of the past. Uh, so uh, there are these statements in the writings, uh, which over and over again, also in the gleanings, Baha'u'llah says, for example, that all of the potential which is latent within the human reality will be made manifest in this dispensation. So... Uh, you can look that up in the concordance of the gleanings. It's towards the end of the gleanings on page 300 and something where he says this, makes this clear statement that all of the potential which is latent in the human reality, it will all be made fully manifest in this day of God and in this dispensation. Um, so 
there again, I say we have no idea of what the ultimate limits of this human potential are. In a certain sense, there are no limits to it. Um, but we have no idea of what it will be. Uh, but again, the basic principle is that what was exceptional in the past will become the norm in the future. That's certain. Now, again, how is this relevant to the Kitabi Akdash? The Kitabi Akdash is the book that tells us how to accomplish this transition. In other words, the Kitabi Akdash is the book that gives us the laws that govern the mature condition of the human being. For example, Baha'u'llah says that God has always loved monogamy. He says, in effect, that monogamy has always been the real law of marriage. Now, we know that, you know, polygamy was, has been practiced in all religions. It was practiced in Judaism. It was practiced in Christianity. It was practiced in Islam. Uh, polygamy has been a feature of all societies at some time or another. Uh, and um, so, um, so polygamy should not be confused with infidelity in marriage. In other words, if you have a, a social institution of polygamy, then uh, still there can be faithfulness in marriage, uh, except that uh, having multiple partners is, uh, is permitted in terms of the law. Uh, for example, so some people have said, for example, well, if Baha'u'llah really meant monogamy, why didn't he say it? Why did he prescribe it in this curious way of saying that a man should have no more wives than two, and then he appoints Abdu'l-Baha's interpreter, and then Abdu'l-Baha comes along and says, well, what is really meant here is monogamy. Why did Baha'u'llah do it in this sort of indirect way? Well, I think there are many reasons, but I think one reason is to show that monogamy was always the law. Because he takes up again the the language of the Quran. Okay? He takes up again the language of the Quran, except where Muhammad says that you shall have no more wives than four. Baha'u'llah says you shall have no more wives than two. Uh, and then he says, but you must treat them with absolute justice. And then Abdu'l Baha says this means, since absolute justice is impossible, only one wife. So what Baha'u'llah is saying is he's looking over his shoulders at the Muslims and saying, you see, this is what Muhammad really meant, okay? But we allowed you to practice polygamy by indulgence uh, for your lack of maturity, for the fact that this was still the age of childhood. So we must be careful that it is not only what is said in the Kitabi Akdash, but the way it is said. Every word, every letter of the Kitabi Akdash has a significance. The way Baha'u'llah says these things has a significance as well as the content of what is said. And it has a spiritual significance uh, as well as the content. The form, to use Professor Bamati's terminology, the form is also part of the revelation. In other words, the revelation is not just a logical content, which cannot be distilled anyway because there are an infinite number of meanings. But any given logical content, any given articulation of the logical content, to say, for example, that Baha'u'llah prescribes monogamy. I mean, this is true. 
I mean, the Ketabiyak dust is codified, so it is possible to codify. Uh, <clears throat> so it is correct to say that the Ketabiyak dust prescribes monogamy. It is the law. But that's not all that is meant by the verse in the Ketabiyak dust in which Baha'u'llah says that you shall have no more wives than two. He's also saying a host of other things, such as that this has always been the law of God and that uh, God has allowed or tolerated polygamy in the past because this was the age of immaturity of the human being. And he's undoubtedly saying a host of other things which will be discovered in the future. So I only mention this to say that when we have this typically Western reaction of saying, well, you know, we would like things to be cut and dried and clear, and why did Baha'u'llah say these things in this somewhat um, veiled manner in some cases? Uh, well, there are reasons for that, and it's up to us to, uh, to find the reasons. Uh, and that's why we studied Kitabi So the Kitabi then, uh, to express it in contemporary Western pragmatic terms, is the how-to book, it is the manual for the adulthood of the human race. That's what it is. It's telling you, okay, now you're adult, and since you are adult, here's what it means to be an adult. <laughs> you want to know what it means to be an adult? That's what it is, right there. Okay? Uh, and so uh, we're no longer being measured by childhood um, uh, criteria. Uh, because we're no longer in the uh, in this house, but we have this promise, this hope, this vision that what was the exception in the past will become the norm in the future. Now, the question becomes: How does it do this? In other words, it's one thing to say that the Kitabi Akdas tells us how to do this, but how does it do this? Well, to understand this, one has to look a little bit at, if you will, Baha'i metaphysics. You have to look a little bit at what the Baha'i faith teaches about the structure of reality. So I want to say a few words about that. And again, this is a synthesis of quite a number of passages from the writings. And so I will not try to justify this passage by passage, okay? But I will, as I go along, indicate some of the places where these things can be found. So the Baha'i Faith teaches first, and this is very important, that there is a fundamental unity to reality. In other words, one could ask the following question. Uh, is ultimately, is reality one or is it multiple? And this is a very old philosophical question. I mean, the ancient Greeks wrestled with this. It's known as the philosophical problem of the one and the many. In other words, ultimately, is the ultimate reality a plurality or a oneness? Uh, and so the Baha'i faith teaches us that ultimately it is oneness because it all comes from God. So here is from the Tablet of the Universe, Abdu'l Baha says, Know then that the all-encompassing framework that governs existence includes within its compass every existent being. 
whether particular or universal, outwardly or inwardly, secretly or openly. Just as particulars are infinite in number, so also the vast universals and the great realities of the universe are without number and beyond computation. The dawning places of unity, the daysprings of singleness, and the sons of holiness are also sanctified beyond the bounds of number. And the luminous spiritual worlds are exalted above limits and restrictions. So there's an infinity of manifestations. There's an infinity of spiritual worlds. I started out by saying that the all-encompassing framework that governs existence includes everything. In other words, reality is, first of all, a whole, a unified, integrated whole. This is the fundamental characteristic of reality, is its unity. So, in other words, there is, there is nothing that is sort of extra that is left out of this all-encompassing framework. However, within this integrated whole, within this all-encompassing whole, there are divisions. There are levels of being. The ontological levels, if you will, are differences of kind as opposed to differences of degree. Now, as I've just read here and as Abdu'l-Baha explains, I'll be talking more about that Sunday night when I talk about destructive existence. There are, in fact, an infinity of levels, but are an infinity of differences, if you want to say. But most of these differences are differences of degree rather than differences of time. So when I'm talking about a level of being, ontological level, I'm talking about differences of as opposed to um, differences of degree. Now, so there are only four levels of existence according to the and these are Within within these levels, there are twelve. The material world talks about the mineral kingdom, the vegetable kingdom, the animal kingdom, and so on. But see, thank you. But these are differences of degree, 
not differences in kind. So the whole of the material world is on one level of reality, is on the same ontological level. Now, there are then fundamental but the most fundamental difference is between the material world and the other two levels. So, so uh, it is most useful to, I'm sorry, but I'm getting very hot. So it is most useful to sometimes just to talk about the two levels, the material world and the spiritual world. And this is what I will do for the next few minutes. But we must remember that the spiritual world itself has levels. Okay? But in a certain sense, the most fundamental difference, the most fundamental difference in time is the difference between the material world and the spiritual world. Now, what is the difference? How can we characterize this difference? Well, Abdu'l-Bahá tells us the principle of existence in the material world is different than the principle of existence in the spiritual world. Whereas in the spiritual world, the principle of existence is unified substance. Spiritual entities exist as unified substance. Okay. Now, let's read where Abdu Baha says this. This is in the booklet that you all have. Um, starting on page 190. This is from some answered questions. Is there anyone who does not have a booklet? On page 190, nature is that condition, that reality, which in appearance consists in life and death, or, in other words, in the composition and decomposition of all things. This nature is subjected to an absolute organization, to determined laws, to a complete order and a finished design from which it will never depart. Well, I'll let you read the rest of that. So, this again, just as Baha'u'llah gives a logical definition of the human reality by saying the human reality is that reality which can reflect all of the attributes of God, here Abdu'l-Bahá gives a logical definition of the material world. The material world is consists of those realities which are composites. 
you want to test to know if something is spiritual or or material if it's a composite then it's material okay now you can see on the next page he elaborates this he says the whole physical creation is perishable this is 191 these material bodies are composed of atoms when these atoms begin to separate decomposition sets in then comes what we call death. This composition of atoms, which constitutes the body or mortal element of any created being, is temporary. When the power of attraction which holds these atoms together is withdrawn, the body as such ceases to exist. So, material... Uh, <laughs> Okay. Uh, so, any material entity has a birth when the its elements, the two things that make a material entity are the components which make it up and the relationships which exist among the components which make of this a macro entity, which make of it a unified whole, all right? In other words, your body is not just the collection of cells that make it up, it's the cells that make it up, several billion cells, plus the relationships that exist between the cells which bind these cells into a unified organism, which make it a whole. So, the... The life of any material entity is temporary, as Abdu'l-Bahá says. It has a discrete beginning and a discrete end. It is born from the particular configuration uh, that constitutes that entity is uh, established. It has an evolution. It, as a system, it can grow and develop like the human organism. And then when decomposition sets in, it dies, it ceases to exist. So this is... this sort of generalized parabola, if you will, is the curve of existence of everything in the material world. It begins, it evolves up into a certain point, and then it declines. Well, Abdu'l-Bahá says this in the next statement on 191. Absolute repose does not exist in nature. All things either make progress or lose ground. Everything moves forward or backward. Nothing is without motion. From his birth, a man progresses physically until he reaches maturity. Then, having arrived at the prime of his life, he begins to decline. The strength and powers of his body decrease, and he gradually arrives at the hour of death. All material things progress to a certain point, then begin to decline. There is your parable. All material things progress to a certain point, then begin to decline and ultimately die. So this parabola, downward open parabola, is more or less the life curve of every material entity. Now, a result of this is the following. There is no progress in the material world the material world totally lacks the capacity to progress. 
The curve of the material world is a periodic motion as things coming to exist, cease to exist, and so on. It is continual motion within fixed limits. This is the law of periodicity. It is the universal law of the material world. Every dynamic feature of the material world obeys this law of periodicity. The beating of your heart, the motion of the planets around the sun, uh, the seasons, everything, everything in the material world has this periodic motion. Now, of course, we speak of material progress, such as the scientific inventions and clean toilets and what have you. But, in fact, Abdu'l-Baha makes it clear that what we call progress is an expression of the spirit in the world of matter. All progress is spiritual. There is no such thing as purely material progress. If I can find this real quickly, I will. Otherwise, I will simply leave you with that. Anyway, it's in, um, it's in Paris Talks. Uh, I'll probably run across it. Um, uh, that I quoted here somewhere. That uh, Abdu'l-Bahá says, by progress, we mean the expression of spirit in the world of matter. Now, the very definition of matter is mass. You all know that. You all learned that in high school physics, right? The basic measure of a material entity is its mass, how much matter is present in it, what its mass is. And what is mass? Mass is a measure of resistance to motion. The greater the mass, the greater the inertia, the greater the resistance to motion. So the very essence of the material world is its resistance to change. So if you amass riches, you are literally reducing your propensity to change. Okay? If you amass material things, you are literally decreasing your capacity to change. So, the nature of the material world, the nature of material objects, is their resistance to change. Change, then, in the material world comes from the action of the spiritual world on the material world. Now, how this action takes place, I will, that's, goes into much more detailed things about science. As I say, again, I'll reserve that for my or seri conference tomorrow night, okay, which is not part of the course. It's optional. Uh, but there I will talk more about this mechanism 
about how how the action of the spiritual world affects change in the material world. But for the moment, we'll just take this uh, on the face value of Abdul Baha's various statements of this fact. So he says that on page 192, quoted in text up on the top of the page, the world of mortality is a world of contradictions, of opposites. Motion being compulsory, everything must either go forward or retreat. So this going forward and retreating is this back and forth motion that is characteristic of the material world. So in effect, in other words, matter is as a resistance, spirit is as a dynamic force which operates on the resistance of matter and this then generates movement. This generates movement. This, in fact, is Newton's first law of motion, that a body will remain in its existing state of motion until it is acted upon by some force. So, in other words, this is almost a direct quote from Abdu'l-Bahá. In other words, he's saying, Newton is saying, nothing material, no material object will do anything on its own accord. Unless some force acts upon it and makes it do something, it will just stay in its existing state. This is the law of inertia. Now, this whole system of material entities is bound together in a reality. In other words, the structure is a modular structure. I mean, we have elementary particles which are little packets of matter of energy, and these elementary particles combine to make protons and neutrons and so on, which combine to make atoms, which combine to make molecules, which combine to make macro objects, which combine to make systems, and the systems combine to make the material universe. So this is a modular system, a modular system. In other words, it is useless to look at the material universe as just an aggregate of elementary particles. Just the same example of the body a minute ago. It's totally useless to look at your body as an aggregate of cells. And this is why. This is the famous principle of indeterminism, such as Heisenberg indeterminism. Whenever you jump a level of organization, then you have a new unit. In other words, the basic unit of life is the cell. It is virtually useless to study a, an organism on the atomic level. In other words, you can study an organism on the atomic level, such as molecular biology, but you do that in order to know what the properties of the cell are. But when you want to understand the organism, you don't go down to the subcellular level you take the properties of the cell, you take the cell as the basic unit, and you study the organism as a function of the cell. So it's the same thing in the physical world in general. It's rather useless to think of the physical universe as all these trees and grass and everything we see as just a big aggregate of elementary particles. You study these, these modular systems on different levels. So this whole system that is the material universe 
is bound together, as Abdu'l Baha says in the first quote I read, in a universal system of law. So let's continue that first quote that I stopped. This nature is subjected to an absolute organization to determine laws, a complete order and finished design from which it will never depart. To such a degree indeed that if you look carefully and with keen sight from the smallest invisible atom up to such large bodies of the world of existence as the globe of the sun and the great stars and luminous spheres, whether you regard their arrangement, their composition, their form or their movement, you will find that all are in the highest degree of organization and are under one law from which they will never depart. So, this system of reality is bound together by this universal law, which is the law of cause and effect. The law Is the law of cause. This is, if you will, the logical law that is universal. The law of causality. Every law, particularly law like the law of gravity, is a particular instance of the law of causality. Now, the law of causality has certain features which are independent of particular laws. In other words, there are certain, like the law of, of gravity obeys a certain, certain principles, such as the inverse square principle. The two bodies are attracted to each other by a force that is proportional to the inverse of the square of the distance between their centers. It's Newton's law of gravity. Uh, so those are particular features of that law, but there are general features of the law of causality. The law of causality then is a binary relation which links to systems in such a way that we say that the system A is the cause of the system B. Now, what this means in practical terms is simply the following. That whenever A occurs, B will necessarily occur. Okay? We say that A is the sufficient reason for B or that A produces B. This is the law of causality. So, the law of causality is such that if I let go of this pin, it will fall to the ground. So, uh, as long as this pin, as this object is supported, like a table, it will uh, not move. But if it is not supported, then it will fall down. So, uh, this is an expression of the law of causality under certain conditions, when certain conditions A are produced, certain results B will always follow from these conditions A. That's the law of causality. It's the basic law of rationality. In other words, human deduction, logic, is simply the abstract expression of the law of causality. When we say that a proposition P implies a proposition Q, this is simply a reflection of the law of causality, mirrored in the human intellect. But then we can say more about that. So this capacity for understanding is the basic capacity of the human being. 
the capacity of human subjectivity to mirror or model the intrinsic law of causality is the essential property of the human soul. Baha'u'llah says, this is in the gleanings, that the greatest gift that God has given to man is the gift of understanding our intellect. And he goes on to mention the other gifts, the heart and the will and so on. But he says the greatest gift is the gift of intellect. And he says the reason that we have the gift of intellect is so that we can know God. But this same gift of understanding also enables us to know that which is right and wrong and to discover the secrets of creation. So, now as we will see ultimately, to know God and to understand the law of causality is the same thing. There is no difference, really. In other words, the law of causality, the properties of the law of causality are in everything is an expression of the nature of God. So ultimately, to understand the law of causality or to understand God or know God is really the same thing. Um, so I just mentioned that in the beginning, but if you don't see why that's the case, don't worry about it because uh, one can only see that after one has made certain um, certain deductions. Um, but you can take my word for it that it works out that way. Okay? Uh, we'll see. So, Abdu'l-Bahá says very clearly that the greatest gift that God has given man is the capacity to understand this law of causality that is embedded in the very structure of existence. So if we look on page 193, he says, the outcome of this human intellectual endowment is science, which is especially characteristic of man. This scientific power investigates and apprehends created objects and the laws surrounding them. It is the discoverer of the hidden and mysterious secrets of the material universe and is peculiar to man alone. The most noble and praiseworthy accomplishment of man, therefore, is scientific knowledge and attainment. And then he says, all blessings are divine in origin, but none can be compared with this power of intellectual investigation and research, which is an eternal gift producing fruits of unending delight. Man is ever partaking of these fruits. All other blessings are temporary, thus material. This is an everlasting possession. It is an eternal blessing, a divine bestowal, the supreme gift of God to man. Science, or the scientific, or the attribute of scientific penetration, is supernatural. Okay. So, the human ability to understand the law of causality, to apprehend the law of causality, is the greatest gift that God has given to man. Now, what does this give us? What does this knowledge give us? It gives us two things. It gives us autonomy, and it gives us 
the power to increase our happiness or our well-being. It gives us autonomy and well-being. So the result of knowledge, knowledge, knowledge of the law of produces two things, autonomy and well-being. So, let's illustrate. Let's illustrate what Yes. Add what? Well, I don't want to add those right now. So let's give some examples. Without knowledge of the material world, the human being still lives in the material world in this stage of his existence and is therefore subject to these laws of causality. In other words, we can never break these laws of causality. I can never contravene the law of gravity. I mean, if I'm standing on the edge of a cliff, then I have the free will to step over the cliff or to draw back from the cliff. In either way, the law of gravity is going to operate. My only choice is to put myself in a favorable condition or an unfavorable condition with respect to the law of gravity. But the law of gravity operates independently of my will. So we are subject to the laws of reality, of the material world particularly. But insofar as we understand these laws, then we can begin to produce configuration by, if you will, the manipulation of these laws, configurations which are conformable to our desires and goals. So let me give a very simple example. Primitive societies, as sociologists never tire of telling us, were hunting and gathering societies, right? So, in other words, man lived in a natural condition in which nature simply provided him with food. I mean, there it was. It was on the trees. It was on the bushes. It was running around the forest. And all he had to do was go get it. And so this produced tribal societies, nomadic societies, uh, because societies were mobile insofar as the, the, the ecosystem in which they lived provided the food and so on. Other they couldn't go to a desert uh, if they lived in a forest. But they were not tied to any one local place. And so the social structures of these tribal societies were built around these activities, the fact you have a very sharp division of labor between the man and the woman. The man goes out and gathers and hunts, which takes a certain aggressiveness, a certain uh, kind of uh, ability. Um, and the woman um, has the children, bears the children, nurtures the children. So she more or less stays home, if you will, raises the children, uh, prepares the food that the husband brings home, and so on. Uh, now, at some point in this process, the human being acquired the knowledge of agriculture. Now, why is agriculture more sophisticated 
than hunting and gathering because agriculture involves a fairly sophisticated knowledge of laws. In particular, I have to know what to plant in the spring so that five or six months later I will have a certain product in the fall. In other words, the ultimate consequences of my planting the seed are not immediately obvious. You see, if I'm going to hunt or gather, I need very little knowledge of the laws. I mean, all I need is a very superficial knowledge of where to look for a certain thing, right? Uh, so, in other words, if I'm hungry for apples, then I go to the apple tree and I pick an apple off the tree. Uh, and if I'm particularly hungry for rabbits, then I go shoot a rabbit uh, and whatever. Uh, so the consequences of my actions are more or less immediate. I want the apple, I pick the apple, and I have an apple. Uh, I want the rabbit, I shoot the rabbit with a bow and arrow or a slingshot or something, and I have the rabbit, and I go home and I cook the rabbit. So there's very little delay between my action and the consequences or results of my action. But with agriculture, it's different. Now I have to know quite a bit about more longer-term processes in the world, you see. I have to know that I have to prepare the soil in a certain way. I have to do certain things to it. I have to plant certain seeds. I have to plant them in a certain way. In other words, so if I want wheat instead of apples, then I have to plant wheat. Uh, you know, I can't get wheat if I, if I plant apples, and I can't get corn if I plant potatoes. So I have to know what to plant, when to plant it, under what conditions to plant it, how to cultivate it, how to provide for it, and so on and so on. And and I have to know enough to know that if I do this, then six months later I will have a certain result. And the acquisition of agriculture is considered, you can look at any textbook on, on uh, anthropology, as one of the major turning points in the social history of the human race because this was the beginning of localized communities because you can no longer be a nomadic community if you are tending your fields because your fields, you can't move them around, okay? So agriculture was the first basis of fixed communities. And fixed communities means that you have a more stable environment, social environment, therefore you have more refined laws and so on and so on and so on. So, you can see then that this is an example of how the knowledge of the law of cause and effect, in this case in the realm of, of ecology, of agriculture, enables us to uh, increase our autonomy and our well-being. In other words, it increases our autonomy because I now no longer have to maybe go out and hunt every day. You know, I'm not living from moment to moment. I can uh, plant my fields. I can work and plant my fields. And then I can go play games and tell stories and make music, uh, you know, and let the earth do the rest. You know, I mean, I have to do some things. But, uh, you know, basically, uh, I am free. I am no longer have to endure the processes of the physical world. I can, in some sense, um, master these processes. Well, if we want to put it in more scientific terms, we can say that a law of cause and effect 
Suppose I want to produce a certain effect. Well, there may be any number of conditions which can produce that effect. I mean, a, a given effect can have more than one cause. There are more than one ways to produce a given effect. So, in other words, if I have, the more I have knowledge of the law of causality, if B is a desired outcome, in other words, if B makes me happy, if it makes me happy to have food, if it makes me happy to have a good harvest, all right, then the more I know about the different ways that I can produce this outcome, the more autonomy I have. Notice this is an increase in freedom or autonomy, and it is also an increase in well-being. It's an increase in well-being because I can produce the outcomes that make me happy. Okay? That make me happy. So, this is the knowledge that science gives us. It is a knowledge of the law of causality in the material world. Knowledge of the law of causality enables me to bring about initial conditions of systems, initial conditions of dynamical systems, which will produce the outcomes which are favorable to me and my goal. And this makes me happy. So, in other words, uh, insofar as I understand the law of cause and effect in, say, the human physiology, human body, this gives me knowledge of medicine, and therefore, if I get a certain disease, if I know how to cure this disease, so the desired outcome of this case is to of the disease. To be free of this disease. So if I have this disease, if I discover that I have this disease, if this is the present reality, well, if I have no knowledge of the laws of medicine, then I have to, I'm simply subject to whatever nature is going to do to me. If I have this disease, and I don't have the resistance to fight it off, then I'm going to die, okay? I'm going to die. I, I will simply be subject to the laws of causality. But if I have knowledge of these laws, then I can take a substance, I can take a drug or a medicine, or I can engage in some activity that will change this condition, that will change the condition of my body and therefore lead to the desired outcome which is the free of the disease. So, uh, this point should be clear. Is this, is anyone for whom this point is not clear? That the law, the understanding of the law of causality and increases our autonomy and our well-being because it gives us the knowledge by which we can bring about certain initial conditions of the which will produce certain desired effects, such as to eat good food, to be free of disease, uh, to have healthy children, and whatever. Okay. Now, you can say that, well, all of this is, this is just science. That's true, it is just science, but science is from God. Uh, but, what the Baha'i writings tell us then is that spiritual reality, remember of the distinction between material reality and spiritual reality, 
the Baha'i writings tell us that spiritual reality is likewise governed by a law of causality that is objective, exactly like in the material world. And because this law of causality is objective, it is potentially discoverable by science. However, because the spiritual world is not accessible to direct observation, it would take an incredibly long time to discover with our unaided intellect these spiritual laws. So God has ordained a second source of valid knowledge of reality, which is religion. In other words, two sources of knowledge of reality have been ordained by God. One is called science and one is called religion. We have just read from Abdu'l-Bahá, his statement that science is from God. Science is supernatural. It is from God. Well, religion, of course, even more obviously, is from God. Religion, by religion, I mean, of course, revelation. The manifestations, the sending of the manifestations. Now, let's see this very clearly. Um... On page 199, on page 199, Abdu'l-Bahá says, it's on the top of the page in text, religion is the essential connection which proceeds from the realities of things. The necessary connection which emanates from the reality of things. Well, that sounds like exactly what he said about material world. Well, it is exactly what he said about the material world, except that it applies to the spiritual world as well. So religion is to the spiritual world what science is to the material world. I mean, there's no difference. Religion, in other words, is a knowledge of the law of causality in the spiritual world. That's what religion is. Religion is not an ideology. It is not a credo. It is not rituals. It is knowledge of the laws of the world of being. Now, here Abdu'l-Bahá says explicitly on page 199 at the bottom, he says, The supreme manifestations of God are aware of the reality of the mysteries of being. Now, I'll explain this in a minute. When we talk about the world of being, we're talking about the spiritual world, not the material world. The material world is the world of appearance, and the spiritual world is the world of being. So, the first philosopher to make this distinction completely clear, as far as I know, was Plato, or Socrates, if you want. It's hard to know what Socrates and what Plato. Uh, but in any case, I mean, one could argue that it was made before, but in any case, it was certainly made very explicitly, very consciously in Plato. So he says, the supreme manifestations of God are aware of the reality, that is the structure, if you will, 
of the mysteries of being, of the unobservable spiritual world. Therefore, they establish laws which are suitable and adopted to the state of the world of man. The supreme manifestations of God are aware of the mysteries of being. Therefore, they understand this essential connection, this connection that we've talked about earlier, emanating from the reality of things, and by this knowledge establish the law of God. Now, notice that this answers one question which I've heard a lot of debate about in the Baha'i community is, and elsewhere, is the manifestation like a sort of like a hollow reed that the revelation simply comes through him? He is a vehicle of the revelation, but he himself does not possess this knowledge. In other words, is God like the source and the manifestation is like a sort of a tube, and God puts the revelation in the tube, one end of the tube, and it comes out the other to us. Uh, this, in fact, is the conception that the Muslims have of Muhammad. This is exactly the conception that they have, that Muhammad is an ordinary man who was a vehicle of revelation. The revelation is perfect, the Quran is perfect, but the vehicle is a human vehicle. And Muhammad, in his lifetime, obviously made no effort to um, to create any other impression. He presented himself to his followers as an ordinary human being who is just a vehicle for the revelation of God. So that the, the Arabs focused on the book and not so much on the personality of Muhammad. However, we can see that quite clearly, as Abdul Baha says here, and it's clear elsewhere in the Baha'i writings, that this is not the Baha'i view of revelation. The manifestation has the knowledge. In other words, he is, as Baha'u'llah says, identical with God. He has all knowledge. He says, the essence of the belief in the unity of God is to regard, as to see no difference between God and his manifestation. Now, of course, ontologically, there is a difference, and we will talk about that. But from the point of view of knowledge, there is no difference. That is, the manifestation has all knowledge. He is given that all knowledge by God, of course. Well, the manifestation himself is not the source of the knowledge. He himself is like a mirror to reflect God, just as we are mirrors that reflect the light that comes from the manifestation. Nevertheless, the manifestation really has this knowledge. He really understands this. It's not that just he is an automat who is simply recording words that come to him. He has active, complete knowledge of these realities, as Abdul Baha says here. So, we have two sources of valid knowledge of reality. Science and religion. Both are God-ordained. This is another point which I will take the last couple of minutes I have to explain. There's a tendency, even in the Baha'i faith, but certainly outside the Baha'i faith, to consider that religion is from God and science is from man. This is false. This is not the Baha'i point of view. Well, look, we just read from Abdu'l-Baha where he says that science is from God and that 
the uh, capacity of scientific penetration is supernatural. It's from God. It's an eternal bound. I mean, we have it. And if you read Promulgation of Universal Peace, he says this a hundred times. Okay? And there's no doubt he repeats this over and over again. So science is from God. And in fact, the split between science and religion is really arbitrary. In other words, there's no absolute line where science leads off religion. This is another false conception, uh, which is an attempt to say that only science gives propositional truth and religion gives only normative truth. In other words, religion gives you the truth that tells you to be a good guy. In other words, it gives you normative truth, that is, value statements. Uh, it is good to do this, it is bad to do this. It gives moral imperatives, which philosophers call normative statements, but not propositional truth. Whereas science gives propositional truth, but not normative statements. This is the materialistic way of seeing the relationship between science and religion. Uh, this is not the Baha'i way. There are many scientific propositional truths contained in the revelation of Baha'u'llah and in all the other revelations as far as that goes. And um, there are many normative statements that can be derived from uh, scientific knowledge. So there is no absolute line between religion. So in other words, ultimately, if you want to look at it from the God point of view, from the objective point of view, there is just reality that is, there is the truth about reality, and there is the knowledge about the truth of reality. And we have God has given us a mind, and the purpose of this mind is to enable us to gain knowledge of reality, to understand the truth about reality. And the truth about reality is the law of causality in reality. This law of causality is universal. That's the first thing I read this morning. It is universal. All of reality is in one coordinated system under one law. But there are levels. And in particular, there is the material world and the laws of the material world, God has more or less said, you have enough. You can discover these on your own. Okay? So the manifestation takes some of his time to tell us the laws of the material world, but mostly he leaves this to science. But the laws that govern the spiritual world are very difficult to discover on our own. And so uh, these are given to us through revelation. But the nature of the laws is the same. It is always the law of causality. So let me end just with this story, because I have two minutes. Um, a few years ago, I had the uh, opportunity to represent the Baha'i faith at a meeting at the Vatican. Uh, this was a meeting on science and theology, and I was the only Baha'i there. And um, so this was a, all representatives of all the major religions were there and materialistic scientists as well. This was science and theology. And the whole idea was to try to sort of establish some kind of a dialogue, as we call it, between, you know, professional theologians and professional scientists and science and religion and so on.
And so I participated in this. I presented a paper and so on. Uh, and so I, um, um, I represented the faith as best I could and so on. And I had some opportunities to teach the faith to people and establish some, um, some friendships and some connections. But towards the end of the thing, as I was observing all this went on for a week, uh, all of a sudden I realized something. It was something that had been, you know, burgeoning within that the discourse about science was invariably negative and the discourse about religion was positive. In other words, everybody's idea was sort of, well, you know, science has been so successful, it has sent people to the moon, it has got them back, it has cured diseases and so on. We have to deal with science because people are impressed with science. But, you know, really it's a bother. I mean, it's just too bad that this science came along and destroyed, you know, the foundation of religion and religious belief and undermined, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of faith that people had in the Middle Ages and so on and so on. Uh, so there was this, so I, I, I took the floor and this was about the, the last meeting and I said, I said, I'm a Baha'i, as you all know, and I said, one of the beliefs of the Baha'i faith is that science is from God just as much as religion. And not only is science from God, but science is just as necessary for the spiritual development of the human being as is religion. I said, we all know that science contributes to the material development of the human being, but science is just as necessary for the spiritual development of the human being as religion. We cannot develop spiritually without science. And I said, I wonder if any other religious group has this point of view. Nobody did. The Muslims, the Jews, the Catholics, the Protestants, all, they were all there. Nobody did. Nobody but the Baha'i faith has this point of view. Uh, so we'll say some more about this tomorrow. basis of our relationship with reality is the law of causality, the law of cause and effect. And we saw that the understanding of the law of cause and effect, well, we took in the first instance material reality. We saw that the understanding of the law of cause and effect enables us to um, relate effectively to the processes of the world rather than just endure them. Because when we understand the law of cause and effect, then we know how to bring about certain initial conditions, causes, which can then produce certain future conditions, effects, which are favorable to our goals and our needs. Now, let me say a word more about this. As we said, life is a dialogue between man and God. Now, the essentials of this dialogue are the fact that God has no needs. God is totally independent of his creatures. This is explicitly said many times in the writings. And of course, in the prayers themselves, 
we, uh, Baha'u'llah has us say over and over again, God is the all-sufficing, the self-sufficient. And uh, this, of course, is confirmed by the whole history of philosophy. The very first truly rational proof of the existence of God was Aristotle's first cause proof, in which Aristotle proves quite effectively the existence of an uncaused cause, which means that God, the uncaused, is self-sufficient. So self-sufficiency, all-sufficiency, is in a certain sense, if you want to put it this way, metaphorically, the most fundamental attribute of God. He is before anything else that unique thing which does not depend on anything else but himself. Because everything else that exists depends on something else and ultimately on God. But only God depends only on himself. So God is the all-sufficing. Now, what this means in our relationship with God is extremely important. Because the human being is a needful creature. He's not only a finite creature, as Dr. Bamati has said yesterday um, so compellingly. Uh, and so I won't bother. I was going to have a, a certain, take a little time to talk about the finiteness of the human being. But since he's done that, I will simply let that be sufficient, which it clearly is. And say, uh, so not only is the human being finite and limited in every way, but the human being is also needful creature. He is a needful creature. He has needs. Now, the result of our having needs is that all human interactions are involve a certain amount of self-interest. There is no human transaction that is free from some degree of self-interest because our needs have to be satisfied. And we seek the satisfaction of our needs in all transactions that we undertake. Now, this means in particular that no human love, no purely human love, is free from some degree of self-interest. So, let's take the example of the most spontaneously unselfish human love, which is the love of a mother for her child. Now, I know that there are bad mothers. But if you look at the way most mothers raise their children, the vast majority of mothers, you will observe that from the moment the child is born until the moment that the child is independent at the age of 15 or 20 or 21, whenever the child becomes autonomous, uh, if ever the child does become autonomous, uh, which of course depends on the quality of his education. But nonetheless, during the whole period of dependency of the child, the mother, at every moment of her existence, will give priority to the needs of the child over her own needs. Is this not a remarkable thing? I mean, what incredible degree of self-sacrifice and the mother will do this spontaneously. I mean, just look any, around you, any mother, just observe the interaction between any mother and any child. Are you raising your hand? Oh. Oh, okay. No, I thought you wanted to say something. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, okay. No, I thought you wanted to say something, and I didn't. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Uh, God has created an infinite abundance. So, um, all things. Uh, so, um, this is a remarkable thing. Uh, this constant self-sacrifice. You see, it's not just one heroic act of self-sacrifice, like the martyr who in the moment of truth gives his life for Baha'u'llah, or uh, the warrior who at the ultimate moment of battle risks his life in one romantic gesture of courage. This is daily momentary, moment-to-moment sacrifice of one's self-interest. Now, this, of course, is exactly what love is. Love is, of course, we much prefer poetic and romantic definitions of love than logical ones, but the logical definition of love, which is nonetheless useful, is simply love is any transaction between, say, two human beings, if we're talking about human beings, in which each gives preference to the needs of the other over his own needs. Uh, In other words, let's put it the other way. Every principle, incidentally, can be stated both positively and negatively. Every principle that exists has both a positive and a negative articulation. And both are useful. Both are useful. So, egotism and the symbol of egotism, of course, in the Kitab Yagdas, Baha'u'llah says the symbol of liberty, but in this sense of the word liberty, he means egotism. The symbol of egotism, in other words, of license, is the animal. Now, the animal, the basis of functioning of any animal is that the animal functions strictly on the basis of the animal's own needs. The animal isn't even aware of anything else but his own needs. In the first place, the animal doesn't have consciousness. He doesn't have self-awareness because the animal doesn't have the self. The self comes from the soul, as Hussein said so brilliantly in his talk last night, that um, the self of modern psychology is really a materialistic attempt to reconstruct the soul. Okay? So if you take, if you substitute soul every time you read in a modern psychological text, the word self, uh, then you will have a better approximation to the truth. So um, the animal then does not have a self. It does not have a soul. It doesn't have a self-concept. It doesn't have self-awareness. But it has awareness in the sense that it feels sensations and so on. And the only thing of which the animal is aware is these sensations, and these sensations arise when the animal has needs, when it's hungry, it feels hungry, and it's motivated to eat. So an animal then, as Baha'u'llah says, is the symbol of egotism. Egotism is acting on the basis of your needs, or one's needs, uh, without any regard for the needs of others. So when the animal is hungry, it eats. When the tiger is hungry, it eats. And if you happen to be in the wrong place when the tiger wants to eat, uh, the tiger is going to eat you. 
And is the tiger going to feel guilty about this? Is the tiger going to worry about what you feel about being eaten? Absolutely not. So this is egotism. This is the, the animal is the embodiment of egotism. And there is a spiritual purpose in this. In other words, why did God not just create the human being and the beautiful uh, physical world of nature that we see? Why did he create all of these creatures like snakes and frogs and uh, so on? Well, there are undoubtedly an infinite number of spiritual reasons for this. But one of them is so that we can learn, so that we can observe what kind of behavior uh, is characteristic of a creature that does not have a soul. Okay? This is one of the spiritual meanings in um, the multiplicity of creation. There are others. So, that is egotism. Uh, on the other extreme, then, uh, love or altruism, as it is sometimes called. Altruism is the opposite of egoism, and altruism is any act or any motivation or any transaction in which I give preference to the needs of others over my own needs. This doesn't mean that I don't have needs. It does not mean that my needs are not legitimate. It doesn't mean that I don't seek to satisfy my needs legitimately. But it means that, and it means in the first place, that I am aware that others have needs like myself. That's Christianity. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. Okay? In other words, that's the first step towards moral sensitivity, towards a decrease in egotism. I become aware of the fact that not only I have needs, that's the animal state of existence, I have needs, but the next stage is there are other people who exist and they also have needs and their needs are just as important to them as my needs are to me. So that is Christianity. That is loving other people in the same way that you love yourself. You, you are sensitive to their needs just as sensitive as you are to your needs. But, as we know, Baha'u'llah now says that we should prefer others to ourselves. And so we can see now that the real implication of love is that we can get to the point where we actually give priority to the needs of other people over our own needs in an interaction. And this is true altruism. This is true love. And this is based on knowledge. This is why every time we hear, uh, we see Baha'u'llah talk about the love of God or, um, or love in general, he always starts with knowledge. You have to know. And if you look in, for example, in Promulgation of the Universal Peace, the talk that Abdu'l Baha gives at, uh, Greenacre, and this is where Abdu'l Baha talks about the four methods of acquiring knowledge, uh, where he talks about reason, uh, about inspiration, uh, about uh, sense experience, and about tradition, authority. And uh, this talk is a talk about love. <laughs> he says, tonight we're going to talk about love. And so if we're talking about love, we have to know what love is. And then he proceeds to give this 
discourse about science <laughs> and the methods of acquiring scientific knowledge. And then he says, now let's apply this to our understanding of love. <laughs> so why is love always linked to knowledge? Because how can I give priority to your needs over mine if I don't know what your needs are? I have to know and understand the nature of the human being and therefore your nature. I have to really understand what that nature is to know what your needs are. So true love is always conscious. It is always based on knowledge. It is not simply a spontaneous emotional reaction. Now, love involves, of course, a feeling, an emotional reaction. And that's what makes love so wonderful. It, it feels so great. And that's a gift from God. I mean, that's why uh, we talk about the wine, which is something which is inebriating, which is euphoric. Love is a euphoria. It is, uh, as I read uh, the first day, it is the greatest universal value. It is that transaction which is experienced as a positive by both giver and receiver. But this love is based on knowledge. It is based on justice. And justice means what? Well, if we take the language of the talk last night, justice is involves the notion of legitimacy. Legitimacy. So I have to understand what are the legitimate needs. What does legitimate mean? It means that which comes from God, that which is given by God. Well, let me say a word more about legitimacy. If you read the chapter in some answered questions about the differences in the characters of men, you will see that Abdu'l-Baha addresses and solves the classic problem of the origin of evil, in which he confronts the following contradiction. How is it that God is good that the creation of God is good, and yet that evil exists. How is this possible? Because how can we say that a good God would create evil? So if evil exists, then God must have created it since he's all-powerful. Uh, and So how can we explain this? And he goes on to explain that, in the first place, he reaffirms that God is good, that Creation is good, and that all God-given, naturally-given instincts, physical or spiritual, are good. Uh, and he gives the example of, he says, for example, you can see in a nursing child signs of anger and greed. And he said, therefore, in seeing this, you would say, well, look, anger and greed are evil. And therefore, God has created evil. Evil is in the nature of man because an, a nursing child has not had enough life experience that we can attribute his anger or his greed to learned experience. We can't say he's learned how to be evil. This is obviously natural. This is from God. And then Abdu'l-Baha says, the answer is that anger, which is the emotional reaction to the perception of injustice, is good. This is a God-given instinct, provided that it is used correctly. 
So he said, he says, in effect, we should be anger, angry at injustice. We should be angry at tyranny. We should be angry at oppressors. In other words, the person who can confront injustice and not feel anger is the morally insensitive person. He's the immoral person, not the angry person. The, the, not the, not the passive person, excuse me. In other words, the passive person, the one who can confront injustice and cruelty and sort of smile and say, well, it's the will of God and uh, that's the way life is and so on. That's not the moral person. That's an insensitive dope. All right? The moral person is the one who, when confronted with genuine injustice and genuine cruelty, will become angry and indignant. And this anger is the proper emotional response to the perception of injustice, and it motivates us like any emotion. An emotion is a motivator. Uh, an emotion moves us to act in a certain way. It gives us the energy to act. It is the spark from God which incites us, which gives us the energy to act in a certain direction. And so the emotion of anger incites us to correct the injustice. And this is a God-given impulse. It is not evil. Uh, now, this goes back. I don't have time to get into this. Perhaps Hussein will get into this in his talk. Uh, you see, this is exactly one of the... Uh, one of the fallacies of materialistic psychology that Hussein was talking about last night, namely that aggression and aggressive behavior has been identified with anger. In other words, uh, pe people say aggression is bad, right? In other words, if I aggress you, if I oppress you violently or physically, this is bad. We all agree. I mean, Baha'u'llah says it's bad, okay? And so we say, what makes people aggressive is anger. Therefore, angry, anger is bad. But aggression is a behavior. It is not an emotion. And aggression, aggressive behavior is learned behavior. It is the misuse of anger. So the resolution of the paradox simply lies in the fact that man has free will, that God has given man free will. All of the natural instincts that God has given us are good. But we can misuse these. We can misuse these. We can misuse them because our will really is free. Now, there is a tablet of Baha'u'llah where Baha'u'llah says that there are three things that we can never understand in this life, uh, which the way he says this, it leaves open the possibility that we will be able to understand these things in the next life. Uh, this is not said explicitly in the tablet, but my own feeling from reading the tablet is that this is the implication, that we will understand them in the next life. But the three things that he says we cannot understand in this life are the nature of the next world, the reason for innocent suffering, that is, unmerited suffering, such as children who are subject to all sorts of horrible abuses and all of this, which obviously they do not deserve. Uh, and the third thing is where the divine will leaves off and human will takes up. In other words, the exact boundary between 
the predestination, if you will, of God and human will. But what we can say, so we do not know this, and we cannot know this in this life. And there's even one passage of Abdu'l-Bahá where he says, if you reflect, if you attempt to define this line between the will of God and your will, uh, you will become confused, and it, it can even lead to a loss of faith, he says, if you attempt to unravel this. Well, what he means by this, we can talk about maybe some other time. But so this is just a warning. In other words, uh, it is saying, you know, here Baha'u'llah has told us that we can't understand it. So if we really believe and understand that Baha'u'llah is a manifestation, then we'll take his word for it, and we won't butt our heads against a brick wall in trying to understand what God has ordained that we can't understand. Now, so we don't know exactly in our lives exactly what comes from us and exactly what comes from God. I mean, we can see certainly some things come from God. I mean, who were our parents, where we were born, the conditions of our early life, all of these are totally beyond our will. That's obvious that that's the will of God. That's not our will. Our will didn't even exist when our parents got married and when we were conceived. So our will could hardly have determined these things. And we can see other things that are clearly in the in the scope of our will. I mean, whether or not I pick up this book or put it down, it's not God that determines that. I'm perfectly free to do it or not to do it. But when we sort of go to the middle, in other words, when we go away from these obvious extremes, then uh, it is impossible to know. What we can know, and what is the only thing that's necessary to know, is that everything that pertains to the human being is a product of God's action and our response to that action. So that's what I mean again when I say that life is a dialogue with God. Everything that pertains to the human being is the result of this intercourse, this continual dialogue between us and God. So everything that happens to us depends in part on the quality of our response to it. Now, it may be that in certain circumstances, 99% of it is predestination. And it may be in other circumstances that 99% of it is our will, and only 1% is predestination. But this dynamic, constantly changing interaction between us and God is such that these are continually interwoven in such a way that you can't even separate it out and say what percentage it is in each case because there's this constant interaction. But what we can know for certain is that everything that happens to us is the result of a combination of God's will and our response, the quality of our response to God. Well, so in human interaction, in human interaction, there's always a certain degree of self-interest because we seek the satisfaction of our needs. However, in our relationship with God, God has no needs. Therefore, since God has no needs, this is the guarantee that 
God's love for us is absolutely pure. There is no self-interest on the part of God. There can be no self-interest on the part of God. This means that everything that God has decreed for us is for our benefit alone. Nothing that God decrees for us is for self-interest on the part of God. Now, this is very fundamental. It also answers a question which is often debated. Uh, most theologies hold that God created out of some kind of need. Most theologies, if you talk with Christians, uh, most Christians hold this, that God created. Sometimes they say, well, that, that God was lonely and God had needed a companion or that, um, or whatever, that God uh, had a need to create. Uh, but here we can see that from the Baha'i point of view, this is not the case. Uh, that God did not create out of any need to create. God is the all-sufficing. He is the self-sufficient. Um, so God created not out of any need, but out of his pure love for us. And so our interaction with God is so fundamental, as we will see in a few minutes, that the fundamental law of the Kitabi Akdas is the law of prayer. That is the most basic law in the Kitabi Akdas is the law of prayer. And that law is the most fundamental because it establishes the relationship between us and God. And this relationship is the central relationship of our existence because it is the only relationship in which there is no self-interest on the part of one of the partners. Of course, we always have our self-interest involved, but God doesn't. And so it is the only experience of pure love, of undefiled love, and therefore it becomes the basis for our transactions with others. So we will see this in a few minutes, okay? In other words, this is the whole conception of human life that is in the Katabiaktas. Namely, that the fundamental relationship is between the individual soul and God. This establishes the necessary basis for altruistic relationships with other human beings. Take away that central relationship and it is impossible to establish authentic relationships with any other human being. Authentic relationships cannot be established in the absence of a relationship with God. Now, let me just open a parenthesis here uh, uh, about this notion of authenticity, because it's very important. And uh, having now spent several years in Russia and gotten to know something of Slavic culture, uh, I have been able to see certain uh, juxtapositions, certain interactions that I previously uh, did not see because my experience had been mainly in, in the West, in North America and Europe. Now, if you go back, we can say that the period just before the coming of Baha'u'llah in history was the apogee of secular humanism. 
Okay? You can see that in every field of endeavor, in every field of endeavor, the period just before the coming of Baha'u'llah, there is an ultimate expression of secular humanism. Uh, we know that liberal humanism began essentially with the Renaissance in Europe. In other words, this creative offspring, this child of the fusion of the Greek and Arabic traditions in the mind of René Descartes, gave rise eventually to such power that the human being, at least in Central Europe and eventually North America, succumbed to the illusion that he was immortal, that he was, uh, what did you say, um, um, the other thing that you said last night? Uh, he was immortal and that uh, the material world was, uh, was substantial and not permanent, right? Not transient, right. In other words, uh, and of course, Descartes himself was a believer. I mean, was 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 a, a very strong believer in God. But of course, Descartes. Uh, I don't know if you're interested in this. I don't know how much I should go into this. Uh, but it's just a little bit of the the prehistory of the Baha'i faith. It's it's relevant to the context of the Gitabi Agha. So let me say it. And if it's not useful, then just wipe it out. Okay. You see. Descartes, I mean, Descartes in a way uh, was almost a prophet. I mean, his vision of, of, of the world was, was incredible because he, as I say, his genius was that he fused, I mean, he really saw, he really married in his philosophy these two, this Greek and the Arabic tradition. I mean, even though he may, I don't know to what extent he was aware historically that he was doing this, but he did it. He did it. And, um, but, in effect, Descartes' philosophy has only one fundamental error. I mean, but this was a crucial error. And that is that, I mean, he believed in the existence of the soul. He believed uh, that the physical world were composite and that the spiritual world were uh, unified substances. I mean, he had it all right. He had it all absolutely right, except that Descartes, claimed that the material world was a sufficient explanation for itself. In other words, that the, that the explanation for material phenomena was material. And this is this famous Cartesian duality in which the spiritual world, which reality is separated into two halves that don't interact. There's the spiritual world and the material world. So even though Descartes believed in the spiritual world and the reality and the primacy of the spiritual world and everything else, uh, in other words, Descartes, uh, if he was consistent with himself, would have been the first Baha'i. I mean, he would have immediately accepted the Baha'i faith. I mean, he would have had no quarrel with anything, except that Descartes was convinced that the material world, everything material had a material explanation and that everything spiritual had a spiritual explanation, uh, rather than, as we saw yesterday, the Baha'i point of view, which is that nothing material has a material explanation, <laughs> that the ultimate explanation for everything is spiritual. In other words, there's a dynamic interaction 
between the material and the spiritual. Uh, well, we can see this very easily. Uh, if I let this thing go, it falls down. Now, you don't see any reason why that falls down. Look, there's nothing that's keeping this from going in any direction, is it? So, why does it keep going down? Well, you say it's the force of gravity. Do you see any force of gravity? Do you see anything pushing or pulling this thing? Do you see any reason that constrains this to go down? No. So, we cannot explain the observable behavior of this book by anything that we can observe. The force of gravity is a spiritual force. It is an invisible force. Even now, nobody understands how it works. The hypothesis is that there is a graviton, that there is a particle which is exchanged between this and the earth, uh, which causes this to take place. Even Newton, who discovered the operation of the law of gravity, he wrote a paper that he never published. He says, I don't really believe this. You know, he says, how is it possible that two bodies that, you know, have no apparent connection with each other can attract each other? Where is this force of attraction? He says, all I can say is that the hypothesis that this invisible force exists explains the way bodies actually behave. You can predict, you know, the movement of the planets and everything else. But this theory of gravity, which is called action at a distance, uh, he says, I really don't believe it. And Einstein didn't believe it either. This is why he developed the theory of relativity in which he tried to explain gravity as a um, curvature in space and so on. He thought that, well, if this curvature is local, then I can understand why it is that this moves is because the mass of the Earth uh, bends space-time in such a way that this uh, a force acts on this. But this is local. In other words, if you look at it globally, uh, there is no uh, action at a distance. But uh, this has been destroyed in 1985 by an experiment in Paris by Alain Aste, who showed definitively that there are, there is action of the difference. There are these global connections. Um, he took two complementary elementary particles and he separated them by several meters, which would be like separating the earth and the sun at an infinite distance, okay? He took two complementary particles that had complementary spin. He separates them by several meters. And then he uh, he affects the spin of one, and uh, the minute he changes the spin of one, at the identical instant, the spin of the complementary particle uh, changes in a complementary fashion, instantly. According to Einstein's theory, uh, the speed of light is the fastest speed. Nothing can be uh, uh, quicker than the speed of light. But this is an instant global connection between two elementary particles. So this experiment definitively refutes the theory of local action, and it definitively establishes the existence of action at a distance and, therefore, of global connections. Well, we could have told them that, right? 
Uh, we could have told them that, but because before all these experiments take place, Abdul Baha says that know then that the all-encompassing framework that governs existence includes within its compass every existent being, whether particular, universal, outwardly or inwardly, and so on. And he says, divine and all-encompassing wisdom hath ordained that motion be an inseparable concomitant of existence, whether inherently or accidentally, spiritually or materially. This movement must be governed by some check or rein, some regulator or director. Otherwise, order will be disrupted and the spheres and bodies will fall from the heavens. For this reason, God brought into being a universal attractive force between these bodies to hold sway over them and govern them. A force deriving from the firm ties and the mighty correspondence that exists, now get this, between the realities of these limitless worlds. Well, that's action at a distance. That's exactly what it is. Infinite action. So, already before Einstein, before Alan Astey, uh, Abdu'l-Bahá said uh, that action at a distance was a reality and that these global forces existed. This is from the Tablet of the Universe. It is not presently published in English, but I'm willing to make it available to anybody who wants to, to have a copy of it. It's going to be the basis of my presentation tonight. Okay. So, um, the centrality then of the relationship between the individual of God is that it is a unique experience, and it is a unique experience because it is the only experience we have of totally disinterested love. Every other relationship between humans is based on, as I say, a certain amount of self-interest. Now, um, before I go further in this, let me uh, point out uh, one thing. Yesterday, I only talked about half of the difference between the spiritual world and the material. I said that the material world, in the material world, the principle of existence was the principle of composition. Okay? Everything was a composite. And we read statements of Baha'u'llah, of Abdu'l-Bahá, about that. The principle of existence in the spiritual world is that of unified substances. That is, these are not composites. These are not composites. Spiritual entities are not composites. The essence of God is not a composite. It is a unified substance. The soul of man is a unified substance. Ideas which reside in the mind of God and in the universal intellect, not in the essence of God. There is no differentiation in the essence of God. Again, we'll talk about this tonight. But ideas, for example, which are abstract entities, but which have objective existence, as Plato already understood 2,000 years ago, are also exist as unified substances. In other words, there's no such thing as a half of an idea, okay, or a part of an idea. 
So spiritual entities exist as unified So this is starting on page 195 in the booklet on the spiritual reality. So we have seen yesterday the result of the fact that material reality is uh, material entities are composites and that the result of the composite nature of material entities is the universal law of material reality, which is periodic motion. Okay? Periodic motion. Okay? The fact that there is no progression without retrogression. Well, let's start by reading that again. It only takes two seconds. Uh... That's on page 191. Let's just read this because we're going to juxtapose it. Absolute repose does not exist in nature. All things either make progress or lose ground. Everything moves forward or backward. Nothing is without motion. From his birth, a man progresses physically until he reaches maturity. Then having arrived at the prime of his life, he begins to decline. The strength and powers of his body decrease and he gradually arrives at the hour of death. All material things progress to a certain point, then begin to decline. This is on page 192. All material things. So this is the universal law of material reality. There is no progress that is not followed by regret. Now, this regression may be very far. In other words, uh, if you take the Big Bang theory, for example, the universe is expanding. Well, the universe will expand to a point at which uh, it is maximally expanding, which it has expended the, the energy from the Big Bang that is making it expand. Then it will begin to collapse in on itself, and eventually it will fold into a big black hole and compress back to this primal egg, and then a new Poincaré cycle will begin, okay? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get into arguments about whether the Big Bang Theory is correct or not. My only point is that even if we accept this theory, according to this theory, we are now in, the universe is expanding, we are now in a period of progress, but even according to this most general cosmological theory, this progress that we are currently experiencing, that we've been experiencing for the last 
15 billion years, will eventually be followed by a regret and ultimately the destruction of the universe, the compression of the universe in on itself. So science has validated this law over and over again. But of course, Abdu'l-Bahá could have told him. Uh, but so, but that's okay. Uh, we can discover that for ourselves. And so then the scientists will come and say, oh yeah, well, Abdu'l-Bahá, uh, he knew that, you know, a hundred years ago. So that will be another confirmation. For, for scientists, when they finally come around and say, my God, you know, all that we've discovered was actually already taught by Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Bahá, you know, before it was discovered by science. So, this is the law of the material world. Now, let's immediately contrast this with spiritual reality. On page 195. The soul is not a combination of elements. This is in the middle of page 195, in text quote. It is not composed of many atoms. It is of one indivisible substance, and therefore eternal. It is entirely out of the order of the physical creation. It is immortal. Notice he says the soul is entirely out of the order of the physical creation. It's not partly physical or a little bit spiritual or more refined physical because tonight in the talk I will explore where Abdu'l-Bahá explains that there is infinite degrees of refinement in the material world. So there is no limit to refinement in the material world itself. But spiritual reality is not just a very refined material reality. I mean, that would already be very good if spiritual reality were just a hyper-refined material reality. But, as he says, the soul is entirely out of the order of the physical creation as immortal. And as we can see, it is non-composite. And then below he says, in the world of spirit, there is no retrogression. The world of mortality is a world of contradictions of opposites. Motion being compulsory, everything must either go forward or retreat. In the realm of spirit, there is no retreat possible. All movement is bound to be towards a perfect state. There it is. Progress is the expression of spirit in the world of matter. There is no progress that is purely material. Okay? So there's the answer about evolution. Progress is the expression of spirit in the world of matter. So everything, any degree of complexity, anything in the material world that is above the order of a pure chaos of random motion, such as the Brownian motion, uh, is the result of the action of a spiritual force on the material world. The intelligence of man, his reasoning powers, his knowledge, his scientific achievements, all of these being manifestations of the spirit, partake of the inevitable law of spiritual progress and are therefore of necessity immortal.
And then on the next page on 196, now let us consider the soul. We have seen that movement is essential to existence. Nothing that has life is without motion. All creation, whether of the mineral, vegetable, or animal kingdom, is compelled to obey the law of motion. It must either ascend or descend. There again, you have ascent, you have descent. But with the human soul, there is no decline. Its only movement is towards perfection. Growth and progress alone constitute the motion of the soul. Divine perfection is infinite. Therefore, the progress of the soul is also infinite. So you can see that the distinction between the material world and the spiritual world is fundamental to understanding the Katabiyakta. Because as I said in the discussion yesterday, you can only understand the laws of the Katabiyakta from the point of view of the properties of the spiritual world. And the fundamental property of the spiritual world is that spiritual entities exist as undivided wholes. They do not have parts. Now, why is this important? Okay, here's why. The property of a composite system is that parts of the system can be alienated from the system without destroying the system. Okay? My body is a system. My body is an integrated whole. But it is possible for me to lose my arm without dying, right? In other words, as Abdu'l-Bahá says, the destruction of the system is the decomposition of the system. That is death, right? So the destruction of my body as an organism will be my death. I mean, that's what death is. It's the destruction of the organism as an organism. As we know, the parts continue to exist in other ways and so on, but it is the destruction of the organism as an organism. Again, let's remind ourselves of this. The curve of existence of any physical object. The beginning, the evolution, the lifetime, and the death. But I could lose both my legs, for example, and still survive as an organism. Now, what will happen if I lose an arm, if I lose both my legs? Well, I I will have lost the capacity that that part of my organism gave me. So if I lose my legs, I will lose the capacity of spontaneous ambulation, right? In other words, I will no longer be able to walk unaided because I don't have any more legs. So the characteristic of a composite system is that parts of the system can be alienated from the system without destroying the system. The system can lose some of its capacity without being destroyed. Now, in contrast, A non-composite system, a unified substance, cannot lose any of its parts. Why? Because it doesn't have any parts. (laughs) You can't alienate a part from something that doesn't have a part. So the capacities of the soul, such as knowledge, love, and will, are inherent in the soul. 
they are, in the language of the Islamic philosophers, essential attributes of the soul. You know, the Islamic philosophers make this very useful distinction between essential attributes and active attributes. They apply this to God, but this also applies to the human being. It applies to anything. In other words, the essential attributes of the soul or of God are those attributes which are inherent in the very nature of the soul or the essence of God. And so these attributes cannot be alienated from the soul because they are the soul. So the capacity of of understanding, which is the greatest gift of God to man, is, as Abdu'l-Bahá says in the Tablet August Ravel, an inherent property of the soul. It inheres in the soul. It cannot be alienated from the soul. And as we see, because the soul is a non-composite entity, it cannot be destroyed. It is immortal. So, the curve of existence in the spiritual world, in the human level, so the material world, we have that curve of existence. In the spiritual world, we have entities such as the human soul, which have a beginning, but which have no end. And then, of course, as I said, there are distinctions. The greatest distinction is between the material world and the spiritual world. But, as I said, I warned you yesterday, there are levels in the spiritual world as well. There are three levels. Well, there are distinctions in quality of existence between these levels. God has neither beginning nor end. Okay? God is eternally existing. He is, as Abdu'l-Bahá says, absolutely pre-existent. So, this is the quality of existence of God. And, of course, we know the manifestation also has a human soul, which is not absolutely pre-existence. It is created at a certain point in time. However, we also know from the writings, this is very explicit, that the soul of the manifestation pre-exists his, his physical life. So whereas our souls, the souls of ordinary human beings, are, as it's clearly said in the writings, created or come into existence at the moment of conception, not so for the souls of the manifestation. The souls of the manifestation pre-exist in the spiritual world. So we then have the four levels of reality can be distinguished between, with respect to the qualities of pre-existence. Material entities have no pre-existence whatsoever. They are temporary and limited. They have a finite lifespan. The human soul is immortal, but it has a beginning which corresponds with the creation of the physical entity, which is the body. I'll say more about that in a minute. The soul of the manifestation is a human soul, but it is created in a state of perfection, and it pre-exists the physical life. The manifestation comes to this earth once, 
not twice. There's no reincarnation of the soul of the manifestation. The guardian has said this explicitly. But it pre-exists this life. Uh, and we will say something. I won't have time today, but tomorrow or the next day, we will say something about the implications for the suffering of the manifestation. Why does the manifestation suffer? Uh, on this point, I differ perhaps slightly, but ever so slightly, from Professor Bamati. I believe that this wronged one, the sufferings of the manifestation, do not come from his human station. They come from his divine station. Why? Because this world is the womb for the next world. Now, the baby does not suffer from being in the womb of his mother because he doesn't know anything else. But imagine what suffering it would be for you as a mature adult knowing <laughs> the conditions of this world to go back and have to live a lifetime in the womb of your mother. You say, well, physically it's not possible. But suppose it was physically. Suppose you could compress yourself down in there somehow. You know, suppose you could do it. But I mean, uh, it would be incredible suffering because every instant that you were in that womb, you would know that outside that was this world uh, with all of its diversity and everything else. Well, this is the consciousness of the manifestation. He descends from the spiritual world in which he is preexistent in full knowledge of his perfection into the material world. So uh, there's a passage which Baha'u'llah says, at every instant that the manifestation is alive, he is intensely aware of the spiritual world. That in effect, his consciousness is in the spiritual world. And yet, he has to live at every moment in this material world. What greater suffering can one imagine? So, you see... The manifestation suffers at every instant of his existence. He suffers from the very condition of being in this material world and having the knowledge of the spiritual world. So, then to elaborate this a little more, then we can say that God, has neither beginning nor end. This is the highest level of existence. This is the essence of God. And God is eternal, changeless, because God is in a state of absolute perfection. Therefore, to what should God change himself? Then already Plato gave this argument, and nobody has ever been able to refute it. Uh, God must be perfect because any change in the nature of God would imply that he was changing to something that is other than what he is. And this would imply then that either God was imperfect to begin with and is evolving towards perfection, but how is something that is imperfect can become perfection? It can't. If it is ever imperfect, then it is always imperfect. Uh, and therefore, if God is perfect to begin with, then he can't change. 
because that would imply a change from a state of perfection to some other state, which would be imperfection. So God, if he is perfect, cannot change, and uh, he is therefore the changeless, the eternal, the perfect. The manifestation is created in a state of perfection. The manifestation then is also changeless. And in a certain sense, the manifestation is God, except in a certain sense, in one sense, the only difference between God and the manifestation is that the manifestation is preceded by a cause, and God isn't preceded by a cause. In one sense. But of course, the manifestation did not always exist either. So there is another distinction that is God exists eternally. The manifestation has a discrete beginning. But the manifestation is created in a state of perfection. So roughly speaking, we've said that the reality of man is that he can reflect to some degree all of the attributes of God. But as Hussein expressed yesterday, it is quite clear from the writings and it's quite clear from our experience of our own reality that this capacity to reflect the attributes of God is a potential. And it has to be developed. Whereas in the manifestation, this is not a potential, it is kinetic, it is active, it is totally actualized. So the manifestation can be thought of, in a certain way, as a fully actualized human being. But of course, the point is, the manifestation doesn't achieve this state of a fully actualized human being. He is created in this state of a fully actualized human being that is as a truly actualized reflection of all the attributes of God. As Shoghi Findi says in the World Order Letters in the Dispensation of Baha'u'llah, the manifestation is the perfect incarnation of every attribute of God. This is beautiful the way Shoghi Findi, in the first place, he, it's the only two places I know where he uses the word incarnation. In the first instance, he refutes the Christian notion of incarnation, stigmatizing it as a crude and fantastic theory. He speaks of the crude and fantastic theory of divine incarnation. And he goes on to say, any God who could incarnate his essence and reveal it to men would cease by that very act to be God. Any God who could limit his essence to the finite, limited frame of a mortal being would cease by the very act of doing that to be God. And he calls it, as I say, a crude and fantastic theory. And then, a couple of paragraphs later, after he has refuted that, he's also refuted pantheism. He said, equally, equally unacceptable to the Baha'i conception is the pantheistic notion uh, that, in some sense, uh, everything is God. And then he says the manifestation, however, is the perfect incarnation of every attribute of God. So he deliberately uses the word incarnation in the wrong sense and in the right sense. He shows you the wrong use of it which the Christians have made for 2,000 years, and then he juxtaposes it with the correct use, saying that the manifestation is the incarnation of every attribute of God. And then we have 
material world, which shows motion but continual movement within fixed limits. Now, as Hussein said yesterday, the human reality is at the juncture of these two worlds. As Abdu'l-Baha explains, it's at the intersection of ascending and descending arc. So we have the ascending arc, which is the physical human reality. That is, the physical human reality is the most perfect combination of elements that is possible. We said that every entity in the material world is a combination of elements. It is a composite. Well, these composites have greater or lesser complexity. So Abdu'l-Bahá talks about this. There's the lowest level of complexity, which is the mineral, and then there's the plant or the vegetable, and then there's the animal. And then he says that the human being represents the most perfect combination that is possible of physical elements. In other words, the human body, as is logically, as is logical, that the temple of the soul would be the most perfect physical reality. Now, science has proved this. Science has proved this. That is, in very quantitative, totally objective, unspiritual or aspiritual terms, we can prove absolutely that the physical human being is the most complex, the most sophisticated set of behaving entities in the known physical universe. Okay? In a precise quantitative sense, it is the most sophisticated dynamic system in existence. And any scientist will admit this. In fact, uh, there's a series of articles. I cite this, actually, in this, in one point, a footnote. Uh, the neurosciences, there are four volumes, about this thick, each one. I don't know how many, several thousand pages of uh, interdisciplinary uh, work uh, called the neurosciences uh, conferences, uh, which exhaustively document the fact that the human being, and in particular the human nervous system, is the most sophisticated set of behaving entities in the known universe. But Abdu'l-Bahá gives us one more bit of information, which couldn't come from science. Science can only talk about what is. Science can't talk about what could be, because science starts with observation. You can only observe something that is, right? You can't observe a possibility. You can imagine a possibility. You can talk about it. You can make what's known as Gedanken experiment, thought experiment. But you can't observe a possibility. You can only observe an actuality. So Abdu'l-Bahá tells us not only is the human reality the most sophisticated reality that exists, it is the most sophisticated reality that is possible to make. It is not possible to make a more refined physical reality than the human being. So the human being is literally, quite literally, scientifically at the apogee of physical. The soul itself, as we say, is completely outside the order of the spiritual world. The soul is an emanation from God. It comes into existence at the moment of conception. 
and then it begins its ascent towards perfection. So the soul is at the intersection of the ascending and descending arc. So as you can see, the soul comes into existence right at the point of the intersection of the apogee of an ascending arc and the nadir of a descending arc. Okay? This is the human reality. It is the apogee of an ascending arc in the material world, which is the lowest level of existence, and the nadir of a descending arc in the spiritual world, which is the highest realm of existence. And notice that Abdu'l-Bahá says that the law of the soul is the law of progress. So this fluctuation that applies to the material world does not apply to the soul in the spiritual world. However, however, what is very clear is that the rate of progress of the soul is different for different people. So even though there is no retrogression, there is no automatic progression either. You see, there is retrogression in the material world because the material world is a world of opposites. Since there are no opposing forces in the material, in the spiritual world, there is no retrogression. But that does not mean that progression is possible. It is, uh, is automatic. Well, this is not a deduction on my part. Abdu'l-Bahá says it. Let's read it. On page 197. My hope for you is that you will progress in the world of spirit as well as in the world of matter that your intelligence will develop, your knowledge will augment, and your understanding be widened. You must ever press forward, never standing still, avoid stagnation. Elsewhere, Abdu'l-Bahá says explicitly that it is possible for the soul to be stationary in the next life. That is, it is possible for the soul not to progress at all. And he says, relative to those souls which are progressing, this will be experienced as retrogression. In other words, let's make this clear. There's two kinds of progress. There's two kinds of regress. Absolute progress and regress and relative progress and regress. Absolute retrogression exists in this life. Things can absolutely retrograde. They can be absolutely on a level lower than they were previously. There is no absolute retrogression in the next life. However, in this life, there is both relative progression and absolute progression. Because uh, I can progress quicker or slower than you. So relative to somebody else, we can progress at different rates. That's relative progression. And in the next life, relative progression exists, and therefore relative retrogression. Because relative progress and relative retrogression are really the same thing, right? In other words, to say that there's a differential rate of progress is to say that there's a differential rate of retrogression. Because if one thing is progressing more 
than another, then relative to, viewed from the point of view of the thing that's progressing, this is progress. Viewed from the point of view of the thing that is progressing slower, it is retrogression. Because relative to the other thing, it is getting further behind. So Abdu'l Baha'i warns us, okay, in the next world, there is no absolute retrogression. Okay? The tests of God are confined to this world. This is the nature of this world, and we will say more about that tomorrow. The tests of God, what we call the test of suffering, are confined only to this world. And this, as we will see, is really a bounty in this world. But, on the other hand, on the other hand, the next world, there is no retrogression. We have no test. But, if we have not learned to progress, if our souls do not progress steadily in the next life, we will experience this as retrogression compared to other souls which are progressing. So in other words, the unpleasant experience that we have in this life of being inferior to others, when we compare ourselves with them and say, I wish I could do what he could do or she could do, I wish I could play the violin like he could or whatever, this feeling of unpleasant comparison we, even though there is no absolute retrogression in the next life, we will still have this experience if we are not progressing, as I said. If we are progressing, then we will be happy with our progression. Because this progression is in relation to God, not in relation to other people. Okay. Now, um, well, I'm sorry, but I have uh, one or two more things that I have to get in before my time is out, and then because we have time for discussion this afternoon. Okay. Now, the thing that I have to get in is the following. Because the soul is a non-composite entity, no part can be alienated from the soul. The capacities of the soul are therefore eternally fixed. Again, Baha'u'llah says this. It's in the gleanings, you know the statement where he says, every human being has been created in the nature made by God and his capacities have been fixed in the book of God. I can't quote it exactly. And then he goes on to say, all that ye potentially possess, however, can be made manifest only as a result of your volition. So he says, on the one hand, the soul is not threatened either by death or by a mutilation of its capacity. In other words, the two threats to the integrity of a system are either the destruction of the system, death, or the mutilation of the system, right? In other words, you're afraid of getting sick or having an accident, of losing your arm, losing your mental faculties. Uh, as a result of an injury to the brain or whatever. But the soul is threatened by neither of these. That derives from the difference in the principle of existence in the material world and the spiritual world. The soul is a non-composite entity. Therefore, it is not threatened by decomposition. It is not threatened by death. It is a unified substance. Therefore, 
its capacities are inherent in it. Therefore, it is not threatened by a mutilation or a loss of its capacity. However, the soul is subject to another more subtle threat. And that is the threat of undevelopment. (laughs) If we do not give the appropriate response in our dialogue with God, our soul will not develop. In other words, the development of the soul is not automatic. The capacities of the soul are given by God. They are eternally fixed. They can neither be added to nor subtracted from. No physical condition can in any way affect the inherent capacities of the soul. As Baha'u'llah says explicitly, know that the soul of man is exalted above and independent of all of infirmities of body or mind. He goes on to compare to the soul to the sun, the body to the earth, and just as the earth depends on the sun, not the sun on the earth, so the body depends on the soul, not the soul on the body. In no wise is the soul dependent on any physical condition. So the capacities of the soul cannot be altered, but they can remain undeveloped. This is the threat of the soul. And this undevelopment of the soul is spiritual death. So physical death and physical mutilation are metaphors for spiritual undevelopment. On page 10 of Thomas' Promulgation of the Universal Peace, Abdu'l-Bahá says, not only is the physical world a mirror or shadow of the spiritual world, everything in the material world has an exact counterpart in the spiritual world. The material world is a total metaphor for spiritual reality. We have understood a material reality only when we have understood what that material reality teaches us about spiritual reality. That's what true science is. True science is not just manipulation of the material world. True science is understanding what material reality teaches us about spirituality. That's why I said yesterday, but I will elaborate this even further, that in the last analysis, the search for scientific truth and the search for knowledge of God are identical. There is no difference between them. It is an illusion, again, as Hussein would say, a materialistic illusion, okay, that there is some difference between science and religion. Science and religion are each the search for God. And the search for God in the material world proceeds by an understanding of the law of cause and effect in the material world and thereby ultimately an understanding of what that material law of cause and effect, teaches us about spiritual reality. Now, the writings tell us that the fundamental capacities of the soul are the understanding capacity, the heart capacity, which is the capacity to feel emotion, and in particular, the emotion of altruism. Remember I said emotion is a motivator, an a-motivator. So, 
love, if you will, is, insofar as it is a feeling, love manifests itself. I mean, love manifests itself as truth in the knowing capacity, as the good in action, and it manifests itself in a feeling of attraction towards beauty in the uh, heart. So, the three fundamental attributes of God are the true, the good, and the beautiful. Again, there is no differentiation in the essence of God. Again, Plato already said this, that ultimately the good, the true, and the beautiful are the same thing. If you find the truly beautiful is what corresponds with reality, in other words, no truth is ultimately ugly. So the good, the true, and the beautiful are really the same thing, but these are differentiated in the realm of creation. And created, these are differentiated. And the differentiation is in these three fundamental capacities of the human being, which is the mind, which is the capacity to know the true, the heart, which is the capacity to love or be attracted to the beautiful, and the will, which is the capacity to implement the good or the right. Now, one more point. You remember that Abdu'l-Bahá uses this analogy of the prism, that the soul or the reality of man is like a prism which refracts the white light into the spectrum of colors. Now, how many colors are there? There's an infinity of colors. I mean, we say blue or purple, but we know that there's an infinity of shades of blue. Well, we know that there are three primary colors. What are they? Red, yellow, and blue. So every one of the infinity of colors of the spectrum results from some combination of the three primary colors. Well, again, it's the same thing the three primary capacities of the human soul, or of God, if you want to say, uh, and the level of differentiation, are the knowing capacity, the loving capacity, and the willing capacity. And these are the primary capacities. Every other attribute of God is some appropriate combination of these three fundamental capacities. So the infinity of attributes of the human being of God that the human reality reflects are simply the infinite degree of refined, subtle combinations of these three fundamental capacities of knowledge, love, and will. And therefore, the purpose of the Kitabi Aktas is to give us the knowledge of the causality principle in spiritual reality, which enables us to develop these three fundamental capacities of knowledge, love, and will, and therefore acquire or manifest this potential to reflect the attributes of God. Thank you. Well, um, before entering into the um, heart of today's lecture, I just had a couple of comments to make. Um, following the 
discussion yesterday in which uh, the question of proof of the existence of God and proof of the existence of spiritual reality uh, was raised. Uh, I believe you were the one who raised it in the discussion yesterday. And um, uh, so, again, we have this king that there is the spiritual world and the material world. Now this, as I say, is a difference in kind. It is an essential difference. Because the principle of existence in the material world is different from the principle of existence in the spiritual world. But there's another way of dividing up reality which we might say, is from the point of view of human experience. And that is the distinction between the visible world and the invisible world. In other words, the observable world and the non-observable world. Well, as we know from science and from what we saw last night in our discussion, In the first place, all of the spiritual world is invisible. We have no direct observation of the spiritual world. But also, as we saw very clearly last night, part of the material world is also unobservable. We can't observe ether, for example, which is the medium in which light, from which light is generated. Uh, we can't directly observe electrons or photons either. Individual electrons or photons. Uh, so, another useful division of reality is between visible and invisible reality. So, in other words, invisible reality encompasses all of spiritual reality and part of material reality as well. Now, for purposes of science and philosophy, the division between the visible and the invisible is more useful, more practically useful than the division between the material and the spiritual. I say more practically useful because the higher levels of material reality, that is the invisible level of material reality, approximates spiritual reality as we saw last night. So, in our dialogue with materialists, we discover that the skepticism of most materialists 
is not just about the existence of a spiritual reality, but the existence of an invisible reality. In other words, positivism, which is the philosophical doctrine that underlies modern materialism, positivism, which emerged in the latter part of the 19th century as the dominant philosophy generated by materialistic paradigm of science and which the expression in psychology is behaviorism. And behaviorism is just positivism in psychology, okay? And it says that the only thing that exists is what we can observe. And we can't observe what goes on inside people's heads. We can only observe their behavior. And since behavior is the only thing we can see, that's the only thing that exists. So a strict behaviorist doesn't even believe in the existence of the self. He only believes that there is a biological machine there that produces some behavior and so on. Um, and um, positivism in, um, say, the realm of um, philosophy uh, is essentially existentialism which says in so many words that the only thing that exists is what is our subjective feelings and experience of what exists, uh, and so on and so on. So, radical materialism is the denial of the existence of invisible reality. In other words, it goes back to this Cartesian notion that I mentioned yesterday, that the material world, the visible world, contains its own explanation. Now, remember when Descartes formulated this doctrine, this was even before Newton had described the law of gravity. And as I mentioned to you yesterday, Newton even wrote in the latter part of his life that he did not really believe in action at a distance, that is, in the existence of this invisible force. But he said, I have to you know, say that this is the only explanation that I can find for the behavior, the observed behavior of bodies, is that there is this attractive force, but I can't really believe that this force is there, that I can't see, and that it's acting on any two bodies. Um, and, uh, of course, Newton himself was not the only one who had doubts about this. The continental scientist, uh, even Leibniz, um, also had doubts about this. Um, so, um, so there has always been a skepticism about the objective existence of invisible reality. In other words, everybody's willing to admit that invisible reality exists in our heads, in other words, in our imagination, but that there is an objective invisible reality is something which people have been reluctant to admit. Now, the reason why I'm going into this is because the demonstration that there exists an invisible reality, if we forget the distinction between spiritual and material, just the demonstration that there is an invisible reality is very simple and very easy to do. And that's just, for example, the example of gravity that I took yesterday. Um, 
Again, I take an object. I take this object. Nothing we can see prevents this object from moving in any direction. Nothing blocks it from moving in any direction. Nor does anything that we can see constrain it to move in one direction or another. Yet, when I let go of it, it goes down. And again, and again, and again. So, do we observe the force of gravity? No, we don't observe the force of gravity. We don't see any force pushing and pulling on this thing. What we observe, strictly speaking, is a persistent deviation from randomness. Okay? In other words, behavior is random if all logical possibilities occur with equal relative frequency. In other words, to put it in common sense terms, if the behavior of this thing was really random, then we would expect that sometime it would go this way, sometime it would go this way, sometimes it would go this way, sometimes it would go this way, right? That would be random behavior. Any of the logically possible directions would be accomplished if we repeat this over and over, right? You know. But what we observe is a deviation from randomness. That is, we observe that one direction is privileged, namely the downward direction. And there is no observable reason for that. Right? We don't observe any reason why. And notice that if we were suddenly transported into space, then that behavior would not occur. But we wouldn't have any, there would be no observable change. In other words, if suddenly the gravitational field of the force were neutralized by, say, another body could come into the to the um, gravitational field that has an equal and opposite attraction to the Earth that would neutralize the gravitational field of the Earth. So if that happened, just at the moment that I let go of this, then it wouldn't fall. But we would not observe any reason why it didn't happen. So we do not observe the force of gravity. The force of gravity is what physicists, modern-day physicists, hard scientists call non-observable. In fact, all of the four basic forces of physics are non-observable. And this is a term that is now very, very frequently used in science, is the non-observable. So when I use the term invisible reality, I'm using this term essentially in exactly the same way that physicists use the term non-observable reality, non-observable entity. And as Abdu'l-Bahá said, the existence of non-observables is deduced from the behavior of observables. In other words, to put it in, uh, directly, what the example of gravity shows, what the example of the downward movement of objects shows, is that the observable world does not contain the explanation for its own behavior. In other words, we cannot explain observable reality observably. So, 
the explanations or the causes the causes for visible reality all lie in invisible reality. It is invisible reality that produces visible reality. Okay? Now this much is totally incontestable. And this will be admitted by any scientist. This is absolutely incontestable. Of course, they don't usually put it in those terms because there is still this materialistic bias. There is still in the heart of the materialist the hope, the faith, if you will, the blind faith, the irrational faith that somehow there will eventually emerge a materialistic explanation to this that will avoid appeal to non-observables. So this is the blind, irrational, fanatic, fundamentalist faith of the materialistic science. Okay? It is irrational. It is unscientific. Uh, it is on the hardest, logical, skeptical terms you want to put it, totally unacceptable. It represents a total lack of intellectual integrity. Yes. I'm not sure that I understand your question, but I prefer not to interrupt what I'm saying right now, if you don't mind. Um, so, we have these objective forces. So far, physics has discovered four of these forces. Gravity, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and electromagnetic force. Now, let me just say a word about this, because this is very interesting. These forces are ranged in a hierarchy of strength. And associated with each force is a radius of action. And, as you would suspect, the stronger the force, the shorter its radius of action. The weakest of the four forces is gravity. And gravity, as we said yesterday, has an infinite radius of action because Gravity is a force of attraction between any two entities in existence, okay? In other words, this is a universal force, as we read in the Tablet of the Universe, where Abdu'l-Bahá says that uh, in order to uh, have order in the universe, God has ordained this universal attractive force and so on. At the other end of the spectrum, the strongest force is the strong nuclear force. And the strong nuclear force has an extremely short radius of action, virtually an infinitesimal radius of action. Here's why. Because the strong nuclear force binds protons together in the nucleus of an atom. Now, you know that protons are positively charged particles. And the laws of electromagnetic force are such that positively charged particles repel each other. So protons 
experience a force which repels them from each other. So if only electromagnetic force exists, then the nucleus of an atom couldn't exist because the protons are right next to each other in the nucleus of an atom. Therefore, there must be a force which is stronger than electromagnetic force and which binds these protons together. And that is the strong nuclear force. However, if you separate the protons just slightly, then the protons go beyond the radius of action of the strong nuclear force. In other words, the radius of action of this strong force is extremely short, virtually infinitesimal, and such that if you separate the protons just a little, then the electromagnetic force of repulsion will dominate the strong nuclear force, and they will fly apart. That's what you do when you split the atom, is you separate the protons to the point that the electromagnetic force of repulsion takes over, and that does the rest of the job. So, in other words, this is the uh, current paradigm of microphysical reality, namely that uh, reality is controlled by four forces. Now, physicists uh, are not dogmatic about this. They're quite open to the fact that there may be any number of other as yet undiscovered forces. But we can say that there are at least four identifiable forces uh, which have increasing strength uh, and an increasingly short radius of action. In other words, it's inversely related the strength of the force and the radius of action. The stronger the force, the shorter its radius of action. The weakest of the forces is gravity, and the um, the um, and gravity has an infinite radius of action. It is a universal force. Now, um, so so according to science, I mean, this is not. Philosophy. I mean, it is philosophy, but it is not. It is not just philosophy. It is the paradigm of modern science that the visible world does not contain its own explanation. That is, we cannot explain observable reality observable observably or to put it in term, terms that exactly that the physicists use, that the essential forces or causes of observable phenomena are non-observable. In other words, the non-observable world is the realm of causes of observable phenomena. The invisible world produces the visible world. The visible world emerges out of the invisible world. And of course, it returns to the invisible world. That is, when these macro entities are dispersed, uh, these particles can be transformed into pure energy, 
by the Einstein equation that E equals MC squared. In other words, there's a conversion, a factor of conversion between matter and pure energy. And of course, we can't observe pure energy. Pure energy is a non-observable. And therefore, we can say that all of observable reality, as Vladimir Nabokov said in one of his novels, uh, of course, he was had this typical Russian uh, pessimism, but uh, nonetheless, it's very poetically said that reality or life is a band of light between two bands of darkness. And this is material reality. This is material reality, namely that material reality, observable reality, I'm sorry, sorry, observable reality is like a band of light between two bands of darkness. It emerges from invisible reality and it returns towards visible reality. So, in a certain sense, observable reality is a transition from one state of non-observable reality to another state of non-observable reality. Okay? Now, uh, Vahid was telling us yesterday, uh, was showing us how to reason about analogies such as the ocean. Now, let's use this analogy of the ocean. Let's suppose that we're standing on the edge of the ocean. We're standing on the shore. We're standing on the shore. And let's say that what is above the ocean, what is visible, is observable reality, okay? We could also call observable reality concrete reality. In other words, it's something to which we have access without the intermediary of any thought process. In other words, we have immediate access to observable reality. So that's another way of characterizing visible reality. It is that reality to which we have unmediated access. You don't depend on anybody else to tell you that this table exists. I mean, you, can, you, you know this by your own uh, perception. So let's say then that we're standing on the edge of an ocean. And this is an analogy. In the analogy, observable reality is what lies above the ocean because, as Vahid said yesterday, we can't see in the depths of the ocean. So the ocean and its depth is invisible reality, non-observable reality. Now, occasionally, a fish jumps out of the water into the air and returns to the water. Now, when a fish jumps out of the ocean into the water, what does that describe? What? No, but what does that describe? 
But what geometrically is that? It's the parabola. It's the parabola again. It is the trajectory of the material world that we talked about, all right? That Abdul Baha said everything in the material world is born, reaches a point of culmination, and then declines, right? That's just the name we give to this geometrical shape. Okay? And it's a it's known as a quadratic form and it's quadratic because of the law of gravity. Because the law of gravity is quadratic. Okay? Okay. So let's read this again. Okay, let's read this again. On page 191-192. Absolute repose does not exist in nature. All things either make progress or lose ground. Everything moves forward or backward. Nothing is without motion. From his birth, a man progresses physically until he reaches maturity. Then, having arrived at the prime of his life, he begins to decline. The strength and powers of his body decrease, and he gradually arrives at the hour of death. All material things progress to a certain point, then begin to decline. All material things progress to a point, then begin to decline. Well, that's exactly the curve. They progress to a certain point, and then they begin to decline. Okay? So the fish jumps out of the ocean and describes this trajectory of all observable reality, of going to a highest point and then declining and then returning to invisible reality. Now, the whole... With respect to invisible reality, the whole of visible reality is like that fish. In other words, what I'm saying is that what modern science has now shown is that the greater part of material reality is non-observable. Non-observable reality is immensely greater than observable reality. So in other words, the radical materialist is not only denying the existence of God and the soul and all of these spiritual entities, he is actually denying the existence of the greater part of material reality itself. Okay? Because the vastness of the ocean and its depth is, is not non-observable reality, and observable reality is like that fish that occasionally jumps out of the water. So all the galaxies, the stars you can see, everything you can observe is like that fish that has jumped out of the ocean and is going back to the ocean. That is the vastness of the created world. So this can be 
easily demonstrated. This can be irrefutably demonstrated. I have given this lecture in a somewhat more elaborated form uh, to academies of science all over the world, uh, all over Russia, uh, and uh, in Kiev, and the Academy of Sciences in Kiev, and the university in Kiev, and universities in St. Petersburg, and Kazan, and every place else. Uh, in, in Belgium, uh, at Leuven University. I have never had anybody refute or even challenge any of this because it's obvious to anybody who knows anything about science. Now, so this, I think, is the most fruitful way to engage the dialogue with materialists. That is, None of this they can refute because this is the product of materialistic science. In other words, in a certain sense, in spite of themselves, the scientists have validated this thing. In other words, it is with reluctance that they have appealed to these non-observables to explain observable reality. It is not that they have set out to prove that there are these non-observable forces because there's a principle of science which is known as Occam's razor which is a very good principle. It's a logical principle. It says you do not posit the existence of an entity unless that hypothesis is absolutely necessary, unavoidable, to explain what you observe. But as we can see, the hypothesis that a force of gravity exists is unavoidable to explain the behavior of this thing. I mean, there's no other way to explain it but to say that there's an invisible force acting on it, right? There is no other explanation. And so, it is with reluctance. It is not gratuitously. It is with reluctance. It is with infinite resistance that materialistic science has grudgingly, gradually accepted the existence of these non-observable realities. And as I said earlier, the materialist in his heart still clings to the hope that somehow there will emerge out of all this a materialistic explanation that will avoid appeal to these non-observable forces. Uh, and there are people who've tried to do this. There was a guy at Oxford who tried to rewrite physics without mathematics because he correctly observed that once you accept mathematics, you've already accepted the existence of a non-observable realm because you can't observe mathematical entities. You can't observe numbers and so on. Uh, and um, the abstract functions of mathematics are already non-observable. Uh, and so he tried to reconstruct physics, say just Newtonian physics, the law of gravity, without the use of mathematics, and he succeeded in proving that it's impossible to do. You know. Um, so... Um, so this, I think, is the most constructive way to engage the dialogue. Now, when we come to the question which Vahid raised yesterday of proving the existence of spiritual entities, that is, of non-composite entities, this is more difficult. This is more difficult because now we're dealing with a part of non-observable reality. In other words, now we have to prove that within the vastness of non-observable reality, there are entities which are not composite. However, this can be done. And this, in fact, has been done. 
And um, this is going to be published. Well, it's already published in the Logic and Logos book, the first version of it. Uh, some of you have seen this book, Logic and Logos, in the chapter from Metaphysics to Logic, a modern version of Avicenna's cosmological proof of the existence of God. Uh, this proof is given. Uh, however, I have since formalized this proof uh, and uh, in a paper called uh, Causality, Composition, and the Origin of Existence. And so this is going to be published, I just thought some of you might be interested, in a book jointly with my brother John called The Law of Love. Enshrined. The Law of Love Enshrined. Um, this will come out with George Ronald in the spring. Uh, we are supposed to get the final manuscript uh, to George Ronald by, by the 1st of October, and I think we will be able to do it. And this will contain a number of essays, both by myself and my brother, and an introduction that is jointly written. And it will begin with a prologue on proving the existence of God. It will contain this more recent version of Avicenna's proof, which proves the existence of non-composite entities, in other words, of spiritual entities, and it will contain the proof of the existence of a fifth force, that is, the force of evolution, which is the action of God in the material world in bringing about the human reality. This is contained in an article called A Scientific Proof of the Existence of God, which is already published in the Journal of Baha'i Studies, um, 5-4-1994. Some of you may have seen that. Uh, so it's Volume 5, Number 4, 1994. It was about two issues ago. It's called uh, A Scientific Proof of the Existence of God. So all of these things that I've said so far this morning are contained in this article. And uh, I presume most of you from Russian-speaking countries, you know that this already exists in Russian. In fact, I published it in Russian before I published it in, in English. In fact, I devised the proof uh, on my first teaching trip to Russia when the first question that the Russians asked was, well, prove to us that God exists. So I proved to them that God exists. <laughs> and so then I published it. But of course, I didn't do it. I mean, Abdu'l-Bahá did it because the proof is based on, on Abdu'l-Bahá's tablet to August Forel. And that's all explained in here as well. What? Uh, right. boga. <laughs> Okay, so, so that I thought was 
worth maybe taking a few minutes to do that. Now, one other thing I want to point out from the Tablet of the Universe, uh, just to show you that my assertion that I made the first day of the course, remember I said that what was exceptional in the past will become the norm in the future. Do you remember that statement that I made? Well, here on page four of the Tablet of the Universe, uh, Abdu'l-Bahá says this explicitly. So let's just look at this. O thou who wingest thy flight in the spacious realms of the love of God, know thou that the knowledges and disciplines, the arts and sciences, sciences, which appeared in previous dispensations, when compared to the divine questions, the eternal verities, and the universal mysteries, which have become veiled, unveiled, manifest and brilliant in their meridian glory in this resplendent revelation, are nothing more than illusions and metaphors. Nay, they are hardly better than superstitious fancy. So in other words, he's saying that the best of everything Plato and Aristotle, Descartes, Leibniz, Newton, all of this, the best of pre-Baha'i culture is nothing but a superstitious fancy compared with the knowledge that is contained in this space. For the all-embracing universal reality is in the eyes of thy Lord, analogous to the all-embracing human reality, which passes in the course of its early development through infancy, childhood, and youth. The growth metaphor again. Even though these various stages may manifest certain of the characteristics and virtues of man, remember, I said that occasionally the child will show forth adult behavior. But this is exceptional. So even though certain of the characteristics of man may be showed. Yet, when what are these early manifestations in comparison to the perfections of the mind, the truths of the kingdom, and the mysteries of God with which the reality of man becomes plentifully endowed after reaching maturity, the period of its fullest expression? Okay? So, I didn't make this up. Okay? There it is. What was exceptional in the past will become the norm in the future. Okay? I cannot resist also taking two minutes to point out another thing, uh, which was, for obvious reasons was particularly pleasing to me. Uh, if you notice on page four of the tablet of the universe in the bottom, Abdu'l-Bahá says, Know then with regard to the mathematical sciences that it was only in this distinguished age, this great century, that their scope was widened, their unresolved difficulties solved, their rules systematized, and their diversity realized. The discoveries made by earlier philosophers and the views they held were not established upon a firm basis or a sound foundation, for they wished to confine the worlds of God within the smallest compass and narrow limits and were quite unable to conceive what lay beyond. Well, I can tell you as a professional mathematician that 
when Abdu'l Baha wrote this, this hadn't happened yet. In other words, he was speaking of a spiritual reality which has only become manifest in the last few years. In other words, when he wrote this, he said, in this century, the mathematical scientists have been systematizing forms. Now, every mathematician will tell you that. I mean, um, they'll say, oh, yeah, well, it's only in this century that we have discovered, we have perfected the axiomatic method and we've systematized the rules and so on and, uh, and so on. Uh, but it hadn't been done when Abdu'l-Bahá said that it had been done. So it had been done on the spiritual plane when Abdu'l-Bahá said it, but it has only become manifest in recent years. Um, and I would like to point out one other thing. Uh, on page 7, and this is for those of you who may feel uncomfortable for whatever reason, with some of the methods that I appear to be using, um, Abdu'l-Bahá says on page 7, Know then that the, those mathematical questions which have stood the test of scrutiny and about the soundness of which there is no doubt are those that are supported by incontrovertible and logically binding proofs, and by the rules of geometry as applied to astronomy. So, as I said yesterday, science is from God just as surely as religion is from God. Logic is the tool, one of the tools, that God has given us to establish clear and incontrovertible conclusions. So, I just thought I would point that out, and for the rest I will leave you to enjoy, as they say, uh, habit of the universe, which can be profitably read more than once. <laughs> okay. So, let's turn now to the business of the Kitabi Akdash, we had gotten to the point where we had seen that the human being has three fundamental capacities, knowledge, love, and will, that these capacities are the primary capacities of the human being, like the three colors blue, yellow, and red are the primary colors, and all other colors of the spectrum are generated by appropriate subtle combinations of these three colors, right? In other words, purple or green, I mean green is red and yellow, as we know, but it can be different shades of green, depending on the proportion of yellow and red that you have, and so on and so on. So, in the same way, this is another truth, incidentally, a fundamental truth, which is reproduced at all levels, namely, that you can generate an infinite reality from a finite number of elements. Now, again, I could spend a whole lecture on just this principle alone. This, incidentally, is the fundamental principle of genetics. There are only a finite number of genes but there's an infinite number, a potentially infinite number, 
of genotypes. Why? Because there's an infinite number of possible arrangements of these genes. Uh, the easiest way to see this is simply with the alphabet. Let's take the English alphabet. How many letters are there in the English alphabet? 26. Now let's ask the following question. How many words can we possibly make with these 26 letters? An infinite number. Because there's no bound on the length of the word. Every word is a finite entity, but there's an infinite number of words. Or, if you want to say the vocabulary is limited, there's an infinite number of sentences that you can make. There's an infinite number of expressions that you can make with this finite number of words. In fact, it is sufficient, as you can easily see, just to have two letters. So anything more than one sufficient suffices to generate uh, infinity. Any more than one of a finite entity can generate infinity. And this is the same principle of genetics. The genes are like the letters of the alphabet, and the genetic code is like finite sequences of the genes. And since there is then an infinite number of possible genotypes, you see. So, and this is a general rule. I mean, as I say, I don't want to go into this, but this is the point. One can generate an infinite number of attributes from a finite number of essential attributes. And this is exactly what God has done with, um, well, what is the case with his own attributes. There's an infinity of attributes of God, but all of these attributes are generated by some combination. fundamental attributes of knowledge, love, and will. All the spiritual attributes, of course, not the physical ones. So, these are the fundamental capacities of the human being. And as we said, because the soul is immortal, because the capacities of the soul are eternally fixed, they can neither be destroyed nor changed, The soul is not threatened either by death nor mutilation. The soul is absolutely uh, above any threat of either death, that is destruction, non-existence, or mutilation. But the, the soul is threatened, if you will, by another thing, and that is undevelopment. Because these capacities are latent within the human reality, as Baha'u'llah said. Because, as Hussein explained so beautifully in his talk the other day, because these capacities are in a state of potential at creation. And Baha'u'llah says that this potential can only be made manifest as a result of our efforts. Then, there is the possibility that we do not respond appropriately, that do we not we do not make sufficient effort, and therefore 
these remain undeveloped. So the essential threat to the soul is undevelopment. Or what amounts to the same thing, false development or improper development. Now, this dialogue with God then, the parameters of which are established in the Kitabi Agda, the parameters of the mature dialogue between God and man, is the context in which this development takes place. And what are the signs of development? Well, we've already said in making the analogy of the material world, this is an increase in autonomy and an increase in well-being. And as I said yesterday, every principle has both a positive articulation and a negative articulation. So we can say, what are the signs of undevelopment? We can turn it around and say, what does it mean not to be developed? And that is the opposite of autonomy and well-being. What is the opposite of autonomy? It is dependency, unnaturally restrictive dependency of which drug abuse and alcohol abuse are only the grossest and most obvious examples. But we know that one can be dependent, unnaturally dependent on anything, on the support of other people or whatever, whatever. In fact, this is sort of the main theme of modern psychology. Uh, Would you agree with this? He's saying that the main preoccupation of modern psychology is How do we get rid of all of these unnatural dependencies? How do we own our life? How do we acquire autonomy? People have suddenly realized that they're not autonomous and they don't know how how do we get in this condition of these unnatural dependencies and how do we get out of it? Would would you agree with that? Well, the California brand seems to be pretty much... (laughs) Okay. Okay, okay. So this is it. You see, the main preoccupation of materialistic psychology is to somehow defeat these unnatural dependencies. And this is what gives rise to you do your own thing and so on and so on. Okay? And this is the whole basis of political correctness. In other words, if you feel unhappy with the fact that you are obviously limited because you have some kind of restriction in your personality, in your functioning, you can't function without a homosexual relationship or without being sexually promiscuous or without having drugs and alcohol, uh, well, what you do then is change the rules so that nobody devalues you because of that. (laughs) In other words, uh, you go out and change society so that it's acceptable to be an alcoholic or a drug addict or a homosexual or sexually promiscuous. Okay? And so it then becomes politically incorrect. It becomes unacceptable socially to even point out that this is unnatural. You know, recently, a... A real estate salesman was successfully sued 
in the United States because he put an ad in the newspaper advertising that he had a house for sale that had a beautiful view. And the Association for the Blind said that this was discrimination against the blind because the blind couldn't see the view. And he was successfully sued for doing that. Okay? So in other words, this is not going to make blind people see anymore. But in other words, it is unacceptable to remind blind people that they're blind or to acknowledge in public discourse that blind people are blind. And another thing which is even more appalling but less but less uh, surprising, recently, this is just a few days, I don't know if you've heard about this one. This is really, this is really great. Because you can probably tell horror stories that are worse than this one. But in Vancouver, you know about this? A gynecologist was successfully sued. He was judged guilty by a human rights panel and forced to pay a fine to a lesbian couple because he refused artificial insemination to the couple. In other words, it was judged that he did not, as a practicing physician, he did not have the right to refuse artificial insemination to a lesbian couple. This was discrimination against this couple. That's pretty far from the concept of the family that's in the Kitabiak, right? So, one form of undevelopment is these unnatural dependencies. The other is the opposite of well-being, or lack of well-being, which is simply a fancy way of saying that you're unhappy. <laughs> okay? In other words, the result of unspirituality is this that you're unhappy. In the same way that physical pain is the sign that something is wrong with your physical body, unhappiness is psychological pain or spiritual pain is the sign that something is wrong spiritually. Okay? So the product of spiritual development is increasing autonomy and increasing happiness and well-being. It's just that simple. Now, how do we achieve autonomy. We achieve, we achieve autonomy by recognizing our total dependency on God. In other words, I said that lack of autonomy was an unnatural dependency. I didn't say that it was just dependency. Because there are dependencies that are natural and healthy. We depend on food, physically. But that's a natural dependency. And that's a healthy dependency. We should eat nutritious food. Dependency on alcohol is an unnatural dependency. It is a created dependency. Now, ultimately, everything comes from God. So we are totally dependent on God. So to have faith in God doesn't mean to become dependent on God. This, again, is the materialistic view of faith. And this is why materialists often 
say that believers in God are weak people. They say, you need the crutch of belief in God. Right? This is what they, they say. Well, belief in God is a crutch. It's a defense mechanism against reality. Or it's an opiate, as Lenin said. Well, of course, some forms of religion are crutches, and some forms of religion are defense mechanisms, and some form of religion are opiates. But true religion, true belief in God, means becoming aware of a reality that is already there, and that reality is our total dependency on God. Let me explain a little bit more what I mean by that. Now, in talking about visible and invisible reality, I took this example of gravity, right? I took this example of gravity. Now, maybe your reaction to this is, well, that's too simple. You know, I mean, that, that's so everyday. Surely, that isn't a convincing argument for invisible reality because what could be more commonplace than gravity? Surely scientists would have realized by now that the gravity, the effect of which everybody observes, is an immediate proof of invisible reality. Why don't they observe this? I'll tell you why. Because they take it for granted. In other words, gravity is so commonplace, we depend on it so unconsciously, we assume it, so thoroughly that we are unaware of its implications. We are unaware that it is an immediate experience of invisible reality. Okay? It is the same thing with God. God is hidden from us, not by His remoteness, but by His very nearness. What hides God from us is that we depend on Him so thoroughly that we take it for granted. And this is why in the Kitabiyatras, Baha'u'llah has this language, such as the passage that we studied yesterday, where he says, you know, where is the glory of those who have gone before you? Uh, what that ye possess can, be, can you claim to be lasting and permanent and so on? This reflection about the fact that whatever degree of stability or permanence we have in our life is due not to the inherent properties of these things, but to God. It is God who allows us to own these things temporarily. If we have prosperity, that comes from God. If we don't have prosperity, that comes from God. In other words, we depend so thoroughly on God we depend so completely on God that we are unaware of it. God is hidden from us, not by farness, but by nearness. There's an example that Abdu'l-Bahá gave which I like very much in this regard. Someone once asked Abdu'l-Bahá, how it is that one could become immersed in God. Abdu'l-Bahá said, 
how can a straw basket contain water? So the person said, oh, you mean a straw basket? He said, yeah, a straw basket. Said, well, if you put water in a straw basket, it just goes right through. So a straw basket can't contain water. And Abdul Baha said, suppose you immerse the straw basket in the ocean. Then it is full of water. So we can't contain God, but we can be contained in God. In fact, we are immersed in this ocean. But because we are constantly immersed in the ocean, we don't know what it would be like not to be immersed in the ocean. And therefore, we succumb to the illusion that we are not immersed in this ocean. So acquiring faith means acquiring knowledge of our dependency on God. This is the Bill Hatcher definition of faith, if you will. Uh, Abdul Baha's definition is faith is conscious knowledge and then good deeds. So I like to say, I mean, probably Abdul Baha said this somewhere, but but I, you know, uh, so I expand this notion of knowledge as simply saying faith is conscious awareness of our dependency on God. The dependency is an objective fact. Nothing changes in reality when we become believers. The only thing that changes is our consciousness of reality. Our awareness of the dependency that is already there. Therefore, the first specific law of the Kitab Yaqdas is the law of prayer. The fundamental relationship of all existence is the relationship between the individual and God. That is, the awareness that we are immersed in the ocean of God at all times. Well, let's see what Shoghi Effendi says about this. Okay? It's on page 213, under the section, The Individual Dialogue with God. Well, let's just read the preamble because it sums up the thing. Having established in the opening passages the fundamental premise of the Kitabi the collective and individual dialogue or covenant between God and humanity, Baha'u'llah now turns in paragraphs 6 to 15 to the first specific and most basic law of the Kitab the law of prayer. Prayer is the foundation of the individual dialogue between God and man. Through it, the individual establishes a direct, unmediated interconnection between his soul and God. Moreover, this relationship is the most fundamental of all relationships accessible to the individual. Unless this relationship be correctly and firmly established, all other relationships, whether with other individuals, with society, or with nature, will be essentially flawed. The following statement, written on behalf of Shoghi Effendi, illustrates the importance Baha'u'llah gives to prayer. Well, I tried to get out all the unnecessary that, but I see I didn't get that one out. Okay. 
How to attain spirituality is indeed a question to which every young man and woman must sooner or later try to find a satisfactory answer. Indeed, the chief reason for the evils now rampant in society is the lack of spirituality. The materialistic civilization of our age has so much absorbed the energy and interest of mankind that people in general do no longer feel the necessity of raising themselves above the forces and conditions of their daily material existence. There is not sufficient demand for things we call spiritual to differentiate them from the needs and requirements of our physical existence. The universal crisis affecting mankind is therefore essentially spiritual in its causes. Well, that's just what we've been talking about. The cause of every observable condition is a spiritual thing. Okay? Whether positive or negative, the cause of negative material conditions is also a spiritual cause. Now get this next phrase. The core of religious faith is that mystic feeling which unites man with God. This state of spiritual communion can be brought about and maintained by means of meditation and prayer. And this is the reason why Baha'u'llah has so much stressed the importance of worship. Get the next phrase. The Baha'i faith, like all other divine religions, is thus fundamentally mystic in character. Its chief goal is the development of the individual and society through the acquisition of spiritual virtues and powers. These powers give us increased autonomy. The virtues give us increased happiness. It is the soul of man which has to be fed, and this spiritual nourishment prayer can best provide. So Baha'u'llah ordains obligatory prayer. But he makes it clear that obligatory prayer is a minimum, not a maximum. It is the minimal obligation. Because, as Shoghi Sindhi here says, we must move to a point where we live in a constant state of spiritual communion with God. So look on page 215, just above the middle of the page, there's a short in-text quotation from Shoghi Effendi where he describes this state of continual spiritual communion with God. He says, quote, We must become entirely selfless and devoted to God so that every day and every moment we seek to do only what God would have us do and in the way he would have us do it. So we must become so thoroughly aware of our dependence on God that at every second of our existence we are consciously aware of the presence of God. And that everything we do, we do from that. Now, 
the way one does this, there's a certain creative latitude involved in this. And this is something which could be the object of a complete course, is what you might call technique for doing this. But I don't like the word technique. I would say rather the spiritual process. But we can maybe talk about this in the discussion this afternoon or whatever. But it is a dialectical process or a dialogue which involves all of the three capacities of knowledge, of love, and of will. In other words, it is not just a question of thinking, oh, now I understand. I am totally dependent on God. The fact that you understand intellectually that you are totally dependent on God does not make you aware of the ways in which you are dependent. Therefore, you must act. You must go pioneering. You must teach the faith. Abdu'l-Bahá says that if we don't teach the faith, then we cannot experience the confirmation of God. Shoghi Effendi goes even further. He makes the frightening statement, the sustaining power of Baha'u'llah himself will be totally withdrawn from any Baha'i who does not in the long run arrive. Let me repeat that. The sustaining power of Baha'u'llah will be totally withdrawn from any Baha'i who does not in the long run arrive. These are realities. Now you say, well, that's right. Well, fear is an appropriate response. Fear is an awareness of a threat. What is the threat? It is the threat of undevelopment. So physical death and physical mutilation are metaphors for spiritual death, which is not non-existence, but undevelopment. So, we are threatened by spiritual death, which is this sleep that Hussein was talking about. This sleep of unawareness, which in its most extreme form is equivalent to death, sleep of death. So, this process is a Dialectical process that involves intellectual understanding, implementation through action of that understanding, and it involves then uh, a pursuit of the love of God, which is experienced as an attraction for that which is valuable. Put another way, we can say that all of morality is summed up in one single slogan. Never sacrifice the higher to the lower. The higher should never be used as a means to attain the lower. Now this presumes, of course, that you already know what is higher and what is lower. So it, it begins with knowledge, that's obvious. But once we have a knowledge of spiritual reality, 
once we understand this hierarchy of higher and lower that we were talking about last night, okay, once we have this knowledge of the law of causality, of this hierarchy of cause and effect, then we implement this knowledge on the basis of the following norm, which is the one universal moral norm, namely, you always use the lower as a means to attain the higher. And this is at every level of existence. In other words, I use the lower levels of material reality to attain the higher levels of material reality, to obtain the lower levels of spiritual reality, to obtain the higher levels of spiritual reality. And so, remember last night, Abdu'l-Baha said that everything is universal with respect to what is below it, in particular with respect to what is above it. He said, specifically, this is incidental and relative. And in some answered questions, he says what? The good deeds of the faithful are the sins of the near one. So what is a good action for an ordinary believer? That same action with the same motivation would be a sin for a person who is more advanced. And there's no limit. This is an eternal process of growth and development. So what is the fundamental principle by which we advance? It is at every moment, as Shoghi Sindhi says, at every, in every day, at every moment, we are intensely aware of the presence of God in our life, and we therefore relate to reality on the basis of its structure. And the essence of that relationship is that we always use the lower as a means to obtain the higher. And this is the latter by which we grow or develop our uh, mount. As Abdu'l-Baha himself has said, that prayer is the latter by which the soul ascends. Now, isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing? Here, for 6,000 years, humanity has awaited the revelation of the most holy book. And we were all trembling in our boots, you know, what is this book of laws going to be? And what is it? It is a love letter from God to us. It says, I love you. You are valuable. I want to commune with you at every moment of your existence. That's the Kataviyaka. It is the law of love. It is the enshrinement of the eternal law of love. So I think I'll stop there, and we have a few minutes for questions that you may have that are specific. To the relationship. Yes.
Um, well, okay, I'll say a few things, but I'm, I'm afraid of, of a too cursory treatment. But at the basis of it, and of course I'm speaking partly from my own personal experience, and what I've observed. So this is necessarily hinged with all the human limitations that are involved. But most fundamentally, it involves a ruthless will to the truth. And most fundamentally, a ruthless will to the truth about oneself. One has to want to know the truth. At some point, one has to make a fundamental decision that it is better to know the truth, however unpleasant it may be initially, because ultimately it is knowledge of the truth that will produce my autonomy and my well-being. In other words, once having become a believer, once having satisfied ourselves that God exists, that God loves us, that God does everything for our benefit, we should then lose our fear of the truth. In other words, the truth cannot ever really hurt us. So what hurts us when we say the truth, when we find out that somebody we thought loved us didn't love us, when somebody betrays us, when we find out that some ability we thought we had, we didn't really have, or whatever, okay? When we discover a truth which is initially unpleasant, we have to have such faith in truth itself, which is nothing more than God. I mean, God is truth. We have to have such faith in the power of truth that we know that truth and knowledge of the truth will increase our autonomy and our well-being. And this will give us the courage to face the initially unpleasant truths. I mean, not all truths will be unpleasant. I mean, some of the truths will be marvelous and exalting and euphoric. Um, you know, just like last night, I mean, we had a lot of fun, right? I mean, you know, it opened up and rising so on. So, I mean, not all truths uh, are, are unpleasant. So I don't want to give the idea that, you know, this is necessarily experienced as a primarily negative process. But let me put it this way. And maybe this is more relevant to North Americans than it is to Europeans and especially Eastern Europeans. But, you know, we Baha'is, we say that society is sick, Right? We say society is sick. We say that the world is suffering from materialism, from ungodliness. It is strayed from God. It has disobeyed God. It does not have knowledge of spiritual reality. It is full of hatred. Instead of love, we have hatred. And we have false loves. In other words, attractions to lower things instead of higher things such as homosexuality and sexual promiscuousness and all these things. 
and drugs and alcohol, which creates temporary happiness or euphoria, but is followed by uh, greater unhappiness and increased dependency and so on. So we see all of these things. And when we teach the faith, that's what we tell people, right? We say, you know, look, you know, you want a solution to the problem? Here it is, my faith. But then, once we're in the faith, when it comes to changing our lifestyle, we're reluctant to do that. You know? I mean, one of the big issues in the North American Baha'i community, and I just gave this same course at Lou Helen, which is a Baha'i school in the United States. And I was, I don't know if I was surprised, but I was certainly dismayed to find out that still, at this stage of the development of the faith in North America, one of the major issues, I mean, this is a hot issue in the American Baha'i community, is what to tell your kids about Santa Claus. Santa Claus. This is a burning issue. I am not kidding. I am not exaggerating. I am, this is not... A, I spent a whole hour discussing this with the class. What? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what my wife told my daughter when she was five years old and saw a a Santa a Santa Claus on the street, you know, uh, uh, Salvation Army Santa Claus ringing a bell. You know, she said. What's that, mommy? She says, it's a old man in a red suit begging for money. That's obvious. <laughs> and there was a woman standing next to her that uh, said, well, I've never heard anything like that and so on. And, uh, but this is what you do about Christmas. I mean, this is really a big issue. This is really a big issue. So I just simply say this to say that, you know, as soon as the Baha'i faith, I mean, you know equivalents of this here in Europe, okay? I mean, I remember, I mean, I was, uh, six years I lived in Switzerland. I was um, even a member of the Swiss NSA in my previous incarnation. And <laughs> and I lived here. I mean, so you Europeans know, I mean, one of the big things is wine is alcohol, you know? I mean, how can, you know, uh, you really do this without offending people, you know? and uh, you know, Baha'is expend immense amounts of time, you know, how can you get around this, you know, without shocking people and so on and so on? Well, I mean, uh, you know, what people resent is self-righteousness. If you tell people anything with an air of presumed superiority, they're not going to like it. But if you tell them anything that's true, in a spirit of true humility and love, they will respect you. They may not agree with you, but they'll respect you. So those are some thoughts. There are other thoughts. That's, that's all right with that sort of upbeatity. <laughs> <laughs> He's my brother-in-law, okay? <laughs>
the causality principle in the world of being, uh, because I will, unfortunately I'll have to leave early tomorrow morning, I will not be able to participate in the final panel discussion, but of course I will be at the discussion this afternoon. There are of course uh, many things that I haven't talked about, but since I have given you this uh, booklet, which you can read uh, at your leisure, um, you can see that I do treat um, more detailed laws like hukukula and zakat and the inheritance laws and so on uh, within the framework of this fundamental notion of causality. Um, so I won't take our time together to go into these uh, detailed laws. So I intend to leave uh, more time than previously for discussion, but I do have uh, a few things that I want to uh, say to lay the groundwork for our last exchange. Yesterday we saw that according to the Kitabi Akdath, the fundamental relationship that we humans have is between us and God. To recall again the statement of Shoghi Effendi, um, to that effect, he says, this is on page 213, the core of religious faith is that mystic feeling which unites man with God. And then on page 214, the Baha'i faith, like all other divine religions, is thus fundamentally mystic in character. Now what does he mean by fundamentally mystic? Well, he means what he just said, that the core of religious faith is that mystic feeling which unites man with God. In other words, religion is the relationship between God, the highest thing in existence, and the human being, the highest thing in creation, and the connection. I said it is a relationship. So, Whenever you have a relationship, you have three things involved. You have the two things that are related, and you have the link or relationship between them. So a relationship involves three things, not two things. And so religion is the relationship between God and man. So you have God, you have man, and you have the connection between them. And the connection is the manifestation. That is exactly the ringstone symbol, right? That's exactly what the ringstone symbol has. The world of God, the world of man, and the connection between them, which is the manifestation. 
And this connection is both horizontal and vertical. That is, it is horizontal. Okay. The, uh, we know that the symbol for the manifestation is the same as the symbol for the Holy Spirit in the ringstone symbol. So, I will make not even a, uh, false attempt to, uh, do uh, Arabic calligraphy. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but if you notice the ringstone symbol, uh, that the symbol for the manifestation is the same as the symbol for the Holy Spirit. Well, it cuts through like that, right? It's the same as the symbol for the Holy Spirit. So you have God, you have man, and then you have the connection between God and man, which is the manifestation. The manifestation is both an intermediate level of being between God and man, and it is at the same time the vertical connection between God and man. So this this ringstone symbol uh, sums up the um, essential metaphysical relationship that are the foundation of reality. Now, I've spoken quite a bit about the law of causality. And we tend to think of the law of causality as an impersonal thing. Uh, because the example that one most often uses, and it's not just me, it's the example that's most frequent in hand, is gravity. And gravity operates independently of our will. And therefore, when we are thinking about causality, we tend to think, uh, or a causal law, we tend to think of it as being something that is impersonal, right? Whereas, what Baha'u'llah is saying when he gives us the law of prayer is that our wills are a causal agent. In other words, to say that we have a free will is to say that our will is an entity, an objectively existing entity, which is a causal agent. So, in other words, our will, the exercise we make of our will, determines the way reality functions. In other words, Again, to take the simple example I took yesterday, I pick up this glass, I put it here. Why is this glass here instead of here? Because I have a free will, okay? If I didn't have a free will, that glass would still be there right now, okay? Because it's only the exercise of my free will that has put that glass there. So the exercise of our will is one of the determinants of reality. So our will, your will, what the use you make of your God-given capacities is part of the law of causality. Now, this is both a wonderful and a frightening thing. It is wonderful because it means that God allows us to participate in creation, if you will, in reality. It is also frightening because it means that we have an incredible responsibility in the way that we use our faculties and our will.
Now, so this relationship between God and man is the fundamental relationship that we humans have. It is the foundation of all other relationships. If this relationship is wrong, nothing else will be right. And if this relationship is right, everything will eventually be right. Maybe not tomorrow, but everything flows from this relationship. Now, just as we've seen that there are hierarchies in reality, there are hierarchies in um, in the physical world, there are hierarchies in the spiritual world. There's a hierarchy in the human world. There's a hierarchy of human relationships. And the second most important human relationship is the relationship between husband and wife. And this, as Dr. Danish points out, and as I pointed out, point out in this uh, booklet, uh, if you take the order in the Kitabiyaktas, and I agree completely with Hussein that there is an extremely fine logical order in the Kitabiyaktas, uh, far from being haphazard, and far from being just a unique literary style, which it already is. I mean, that's fine. But there is, from the purely logical point of view, Hussein talks from the psychological point of view, uh, but from the purely logical point of view, there is a fine and exact order in every word and letter in the Kitab Yaqba. Uh, and so, um, essentially, let me just say what the order is, is that Baha'u'llah sees the family as the prototype for the whole of the human reality. In other words, the Kitabi Akhtas recreates human society in the image of the healthy family. So when we speak, as we sometimes do, of the family of nations or the family of man or the human family, this is, according to the Kitab the most appropriate metaphor for the collectivity of human beings. Baha'u'llah views human society as an extension of the family. Now, Let's try to look at this with the eye of Baha'u'llah. We've talked about this. Bahid has talked about this. Hussein has talked about this. About looking at the Kitabi Akdas according to the, through the eyes of God and not through our own eyes. So, I'm going to say a few things about marriage, but let me be very frank in the beginning. Look, marriage is going through a very rough time in our society, right? And we all suffer from this. We all suffer from this. So, I have no doubt that every person in this room is either unmarried or divorced or married with various degrees of satisfaction. Okay? And 
there's no one in this modern world who has not experienced terrible tests in relationship to his marriage. I mean, I have been fortunate to be happily married for 35 years to a wonderful woman, but we have had our tests. And we have had to struggle extremely hard at times in our marriage. And so, uh, so this is the reality. We know this is the reality. And so, uh, let's, for a few moments, let's suspend the reaction that we have of seeing what Baha'u'llah says about marriage from the point of view of our own limited and perhaps unhappy or painful experience. And let's try to see the image that Baha'u'llah has. Now, as we know, the goal of the Baha'i faith is unity. Unity in diversity. So, this notion of unity and diversity is a much more subtle notion than we Baha'is give it credit. Okay? I mean, we, this phrase, unity and diversity, rolls off of our tongues just like water, but we do not realize how profound this concept is. It means, of course, as we teach people, that the unity in the Baha'i faith is not a uniformity. The uniformity is not making everybody the same. It is not a hyper-egalitarian form of unity. It is a unity which has differences, appropriate differences. Well, nowhere is this more clear than in the relationship between the sexes, between husband and wife. I mean, here you have in marriage a unity. You have a unity but obviously you have difference, and you have the most fundamental difference that exists in created reality, the difference between the sexes, between man and woman. So marriage itself is a unity and diversity. In other words, you have, uh, you know, the, the word in Russian is very good here for sex is uh, polarnost, polarity. And this is really what sexual difference is. It's a polarity. Let me say a word about polarity. Maybe I shouldn't get into this. I don't know. Polarity, you see, well, the whole discourse about the faith is shot through with profound philosophical confusion in which we unconsciously transfer the principles that are true of one area to another area in which they do not apply. I've given you one example of that uh, when I talked about the difference between um, applying materialistic reasoning to spiritual things the other day. When Remember I said that a material thing is diminished when it's shared, but a spiritual thing is multiplied when it's shared. Um, well, one of the confusion that is endemic in our discourse is the confusion between duality and polarity. 
These are not the same thing. Duality refers to an essential difference. So good and evil are dual. You can't have good and evil together. If it is good, it is by definition not evil. So it's like light and darkness. You can't have light and darkness at the same time. If you have light, you don't have dark. If you have dark, which is the absence of light, you don't have light. I mean, just take the definition of dark. Darkness is the absence of light. So you can't have light and the absence of light at the same time. That's a formal logical contradiction. I cannot have a thing and not that thing at the same time. So duality is opposition. It is exclusion. Duality is a mutual exclusion. Good and evil, light and dark, heat and cold, these are dualities. Polarity, well, and of course, ultimately we know that on the highest level, there is no duality. Because God is one. This is one of the meanings, the philosophical or metaphysical meaning of the oneness of God. That, I mean, because this is a fundamental question of philosophy. It's called the question of the one and the many. And uh, it preoccupied the best minds of ancient Greece, and it has, continues to be a controversy today. Monism versus pluralism. And so the first question is, is the ultimate reality, I mean, we have both oneness and plurality on the level of creation. That's obvious. Everybody knows that. The question of the one and the many is whether the ultimate reality is one or dual. And of course, the Baha'i faith gives us the answer to this. The ultimate reality, which is God, is absolutely one. There is no duality on the highest level of existence. Uh, there is, as Abdu'l-Baha says, no differentiation within the essence of God. However, on lower levels of reality, we do have duality because, well, I'm sorry, let me back up. The fact that the ultimate reality is one means that there is only one source of energy in the universe. In other words, there are not two sources of energy. So this is the Baha'i notion of the non-existence of evil. There are not, so the, the notion of a devil or a Satan is a dualistic notion. In other words, the fact that you have a god and an anti-god of some sort, okay, as a positively existing force, like a devil, this is a dualistic notion of ultimate reality. So, when Abdu'l-Baha says, that evil does not exist as an objective force. This is simply a re-articulation of the notion of the oneness of God. There cannot be a single source of reality, namely God, who is all good, and at the same time that there be evil. Metaphysical evil. That's, that's, these are logically incompatible. So, there is only one energy. It all comes from God. However, on the lower levels of existence, this energy can be either manifest or not manifest in a certain situation. So, to take, again, the simple analogy, physical analogy to understand this, is the sun. If we were to go to the sun, 
Of course, it would physically destroy us if we did, but I mean, just in imagination, if we were to go to the sun, there is only light in the sun. In other words, you would find no shadow in the sun, right? There's no duality in the sun itself. But the sun generates its rays, and when these rays are incident on a lower reality, which is the earth, then it creates patterns of darkness and lightness, of shadow. And the shadow is the absence of the light. So duality is a relative notion. But duality means opposites. And duality means this opposition that is created by the relative incidence of primal energy in the lower levels of existence. Okay? So that's duality. Duality is opposition. It is mutual exclusion. Polarity means the manifestation of the same energy in complementary form. So plus and minus in electricity, for example, is an example of polarity, not duality. All right? In other words, Positive charge or negative charge is the same energy, but manifested in two different forms. Okay? That's polarity, not duality. Now, the most potent example of polarity, not duality, but polarity in existence is sexual polarity in the human being, because we know that the human being is the highest form of existence, is the highest created thing. We've gone over this again and again and again. And therefore, the polarity that exists in the human race is the highest, most refined, ultimate expression of polarity in creation. Again, there is no polarity in God. And of course, this this, uh, you know, destroys completely all of this sort of pseudo-feminist stuff about whether God is masculine or feminine and so on. On the level of the essence of God, there is no differentiation. Therefore, there is no manifestation of polarity whatsoever in the essence of God. Polarity, sexual polarity, is the manifestation of the same energy but in complementary form. Now, what does this mean in complementary form? This means, well, as we've already said, every individual, individuation, particularization means what? Particularization means that an individual has certain Dominant attributes, in other words, certain strong points and certain weak points. Okay? Just as we've said, every individual person and every individual culture has certain strong points and certain weak points. Certain natural strong points, certain natural weak points. So that is individuation. Universality, which is the manifestation of God, is to have all the attributes to the maximum degree. So the manifestation is universal. He is not particular. He is universal. Remember, 
the other night we talked about this hierarchy of universal to particular. So the characteristic of particularity is that particularity selects some attributes to a greater degree than others. Okay? Now, what sexual polarity does is it creates a complementary selection of attributes. And what does this complementarity mean? It means that the strong points of one are the weak points of the other. In other words, each one has what the other lacks. In other words, the strongest point of the masculine pole correspond exactly to the weak points of the feminine pole, and the strong points of the feminine pole correspond to the weak points of the masculine pole. So each has what the other lacks. Now, if we have a duality, what happens when there is a confrontation between dualities? When there's a confrontation between dualities, there is a sharp border. There is a absolute frontier that is created. So in other words, there is no, there is no ambiguity between light and dark. Okay? In other words, if you shine a bright light, the point at which the light stops and the dark begins is a clear frontier. And the stronger the light, the clearer the frontier. I mean, of course, you can have a fuzzy line if you have gradations. You have less and less and less light. But if you have the confrontation of light with absolute absence of light, then you have an absolutely sharply defined frontier, right? But what happens when you have the confrontation between polar opposites? What you have is creativity. What you have is creativity. In other words, the joining or the confrontation or the linking of opposite polarities creates unity. It creates love. Now, so this is the unity and diversity. Now, what is unity? Unity is justice plus love. So that's a simple, straightforward definition of unity. Notice that the unity of the material world is a result of two things. The justice, which is the laws governing it, and the love, which are these four fundamental forces I talked about the other day, that is, the dynamic forces of attraction between these entities. So you cannot have unity without both justice and love. If you have justice without love, what you have is a framework for unity. You have a formal juxtaposition but you have no dynamism. It is dead. 
And this is what we call in religion legalism and formalism. A body without life. Love without justice is dynamism. It is the force of attraction. But if it is not regulated or channeled by justice, then of course, uh, even though the force of love itself is positive, it can be dissipated or misused if it is not regulated by justice. So unity is the result of the marriage, if you will, the creative marriage between the polarities of love and justice. Of course, again, ultimately, (laughs) on the level of the essence of God, these are the same thing. There is no difference between the mercy of God and the justice of God. The justice of God is the mercy of God. The mercy of God is the justice of God. Ultimately, but we experience these as differentiated realities. In fact, as polarities in a certain sense. Because just think again of the law of gravity. Think of the the earth going around the sun. The force of gravity, which is like love, okay, attracts these two together. This is the force of love. But the law of gravity, that is, what regulates the force, which says that this force takes place within certain limits, which is the inverse square law of Newton, means that the centrifugal force of the earth going around the sun uh, holds the earth in an orbit. In other words, it is the balance or justice, adjustment between these two forces, the centrifugal force of the earth going around the sun, balancing the... uh, the um, gravitational force that makes the expression of this force, of this love, this attraction, uh, to be ordered and productive. Yes, or, or dissipated. Yes, or dissipated. Unwisely used. Love is always positive in itself. But love can be inappropriately expressed or used. Wow. A perfect example, if two people truly love each other and are not married and have sexual relationships, then that's unjust, according to the Kitabiagda. So that is an unjust expression of love. That doesn't mean that the love is not a true love. This is a very subtle point, okay? People, when this happens, as it sometimes happens, (laughs) that people fall in love with each other and love each other very much. And they say, well, we really love each other. We know that we love each other. So uh, there are momentary reasons uh, that we can't get married, but there's no reason why we shouldn't express our love physically because we know this is a true love. And uh, so... Um, they are led maybe to violate the law of God on this point. Uh, and then afterwards, when there are consequences to this, then people go through the contortions of saying, well, it wasn't really true love. 
it wasn't really love. Uh, it was just uh, infatuation. It was just fascination. Well, maybe it was true love. I mean, we don't have to go through those contortions. You know, we know in the first place that all human love has a degree of self-interest, so there's no doubt that ego is involved in the thing. But we don't have to destroy this. We don't have to say that this was not a true love. All love comes from God. There is no love that doesn't come from God. But God not only gives us the love, he gives us the love manual that tells us how to use the love that he gives us. And that's justice. So what happens if one is led to express love in a way that is contrary to justice, it destroys the love. That's what happens. So, can love exist in the absence of justice? Yes. Can love endure in the absence of justice? No. If injustice persists, love will be destroyed. Let, let me give you, let me give a very practical example of this. A couple meets. They fall in love. They get married. Now, you know how it is when you're in love with somebody. The only thought you have is to please the other person, right? I mean, this, when you love, this is the only thought you have is, how can I make this person happy? Now, a, uh, a cynic would say, well, this is simply a disguised form of egotism. All you want is the approval of this other person, and so on and so on. But I don't believe that's true. Love is the recognition of the value of the other. So when we recognize this value, we want to enhance that value. You know, if I love a woman, I want to say how beautiful she is. I want others to see how beautiful she is. I feel proud when we go out and other people look and say, what a beautiful wife you have, or what a, you know, and so on and so on. When we recognize the value, we want to enhance the value. That is the natural expression of love. So, people fall in love, they get married. Each seeks to please the other. That's your greatest desire, is to please the beloved. Well, as things go on in the relationship, there are challenges. And it may happen, for example, I'll just take one possible example. Love is a transaction. Love is expressed as a series of transactions, of giving and receiving. Now, <laughs> it, this relationship may evolve to the point where one partner is doing all the giving and the other is doing all the receiving. Now, what will happen at this point? Well, the person who's doing all the giving will begin to feel certain resentment. The person will begin to say, you know, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm making all these meals. I'm, uh, you know, doing all these things and showing all this affection, and, uh, you know, I don't get very much expression in return, you know. This seems to be taken for granted. But, of course, I shouldn't feel this because I love this person. So you sit on this for a while. You suppress this, you know. You say, I shouldn't be feeling this. You begin to feel guilty that you feel this. But the feeling persists. 
the feeling persists. And finally, it can't be contained. And so the partner is confronted with this. Look, you know, this relationship is unsatisfactory because, in effect, I'm doing all the giving and you're doing all the receiving. And so, typically, the other partner will say, well, I thought it was a perfectly fine relationship. I thought everything was great. Of course everything was great. (laughs) For that partner, everything was great. So, at this point, the original love has gradually been replaced by feelings of resentment by negative feelings, by lack of love. What has destroyed the love? The injustice in the relationship. This lack of symmetry in the relationship has destroyed the love. Now, how can we restore the love to the relationship? There's only one way. You can pray till you're blue in the face. You can make professions of love till you're blue in the face, there is only one way to restore love to that relationship, and that is by reestablishing or establishing justice. In other words, the couple has to confront the asymmetry that is in the relationship, they have to recognize it, they have to deal with it, and they have to change their attitudes and their behavior in such wise that justice is established And when justice is reestablished, then love will flow from it. Because, as I said the other day, the definition, one definition of justice is simply to say that justice is the conditions under which love flourishes. That's all justice is. You know, I mean, we can talk about justice in terms of laws and rules, and that's correct as far as it goes. Justice does express itself as rules, in other words, of uh, statements of limitation. But on the deeper spiritual level, justice is simply the conditions under which love flourishes. Yes. Well, that's one expression of justice. It is not the only expression of justice but it is one very fundamental expression of justice. Surely, the golden rule is, uh, is a, one of the central expressions of justice. Right. Of reciprocity, of symmetry. That's right. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Now, as I say, when these polarities of male and female come together, This is a complementary difference. And so there is creativity. There is the greatest creativity that exists that is possible in human relationships. And of course, the physical metaphor for that creativity is the fact that another human being is actually created by that union. What could be a more powerful symbol of the creativity of the meeting of the sexes than that that creativity produces another human being. Could there be a more powerful creativity than that? 
obviously they cannot. So, sexual polarity is complementary, creative, dynamic. It is capable of producing the greatest unity that can exist between human beings. As Abdu'l-Bahá says in Star of the West, no mind can conceive of the unity that God has destined for man and wife. No man can conceive of the unity and harmony. I, I, this is quoted in, in the booklet, in paraphrase. No man can conceive of the unity and harmony that is destined for husband and wife. So this is the potential of the marriage relationship. Well, look, one fundamental rule of existence is the following. Whatever has a great potential for good, has an equally great potential for evil when it is misused. In other words, if you are, if something is, has very little potential for good, that means it has very little energy, it has very little power. So it has very little potential for being misused either. But the greater the potential for good, when properly used, the greater the potential for evil when misused. So, uh, what is the greatest good that there is? Well, Baha'u'llah tells us, the greatest gift of God to man is revelation, is the manifestation. He says first, the greatest gift of God to man that is inherent in man is the gift of understanding. And he says the gifts of the heart and the sight and the hearing and the like are also among the gifts which God has given man. Then he says, all of these gifts are inherent in man himself, but that gift which is greater than all of these and is supreme over all other gifts is the gift of revelation. So religion, true religion, this connection between God and man, which is true religion, the manifestation, if you will, is the greatest of all gifts that God has given man. Well, if we follow this principle then, which is really the duality principle, if you negate the greatest good, you get the greatest evil. Okay? That's the duality principle. The greatest evil is obtained by negating the greatest good. Okay? Good, good evil is the negation of good. Okay? That's duality, not polarity. And the greater the good, the greater the evil. Okay? So what does Baha'u'llah tell us is the greatest evil? What does he tell us? It's explicit in the writing. Numerous. What? What? No. What does he say is the greatest of all evils? But religious fanaticism. The greatest of all evils, he says, is religious fanaticism. Religious fanaticism is the flame which will devour everything. 
religious fanaticism is the misuse of religion. It is the negation of the greatest gift, which is revelation. That's why, if we look in the history of mankind, the greatest contributions to the progress of mankind have been inspired by religion. Okay? All the sciences and the arts and the good works, as Baha'u'llah says in that one passage, you know, for 2,000 years after the sacrifice of Jesus, all of the arts, the power exercised by the greatest monarchs, and so on and so on. In other words, all of the truth, the beauty, and the goodness, all of the legitimate expressions of knowledge, love, and will were due to the influence of the manifestation of Jesus, in this case, I'm speaking about. And if you look into history, as any agnostic or atheist will tell you, the greatest cruelties and evils in history, have been done in the name of religion. Well, the psychologic of it is simple. Why does one do evil? One does evil because one wants to obtain something. I mean, you do evil from some motivation. I mean, you can do evil out of ignorance, of course, but that's not deliberate evil, okay? So conscious evil, the perpetration of conscious cruelty, is in order to get something. As we say in modern psych, what is the payoff, right? We, we have to find out what is the payoff. So, I mean, a thief steals because he wants those material things. And a person murders another person because that other person is somehow interfering with that person's desire to get something he wants. Maybe fame or the other guy's wife or whatever, okay? So, we perpetrate acts of evil for a reason. But the religious fanatic perpetrates acts of evil for the reason that he is convinced that God wants him to do this. And therefore, nothing will stop a religious fanatic. In other words, if, which would you rather deal with? The, the godfather of the mafia or a radical Muslim fanatic? Okay? I mean, the godfather of the mafia, all he wants is your money. As soon as he gets out of you what he wants, he doesn't care about you. You know, a, the fact that he doesn't care anything about you is a blessing, right? In other words, because He's purely selfish. I mean, we can say he's purely egotistical. He's purely selfish. So that means that he's not concerned with your needs. All he is concerned with is his needs. But once he satisfies his needs, then he doesn't care. You can go on your way as, long, as soon as he's gotten your, your money or whatever he wants to get out of you. But the religious fanatic thinks you're an infidel and a blasphemer, and he's not going to just let you alone. He thinks it's his job to go either convert you or kill you. And nothing is going to stop him. So, religious fanaticism, as Baha'u'llah says explicitly, is the greatest evil because it is the negation of the greatest good. So this, incidentally, 
is the logical explanation for the argument that skeptics give us when they say, how can religion be the source of good, as you say? Look at history, look at all the evil done in the name of religion that has even been caused by religion. And usually we sort of mumble something and say, well, that's not the will of God, and so on and so on, which is true, of course. But the point is that these great evils have been done in the name of religion precisely because religion is such a source of good. And you have to see the whole thing. You have to see the fact that all progress has come from religion as well. So, yes, cruelties have been done in the name of religion because religion has been misused by man. But only because religion is such a source of good. The same principle then applies to marriage. So let me quote Hatcher. Since I can't quote Baha'u'llah on this. There's nothing better than a good marriage and there's nothing worse than a bed. Okay? There's nothing better than a good marriage. There's nothing worse than a bed. Okay? But Baha'u'llah recognizes this, right? Because he allows the law of divorce. If that wasn't true, then Baha'u'llah said, any marriage is better than no marriage, right? The law that would deny divorce, right? They would say, under no circumstances can you divorce. That would express the principle what? That would express the principle that any marriage is better than no marriage. But Baha'u'llah doesn't say that. He allows the law of divorce. And what is the conditions of divorce? When there is hatred, when there is antipathy between the partners. In other words, when love is absent, this unity cannot be maintained, and therefore just the justice, that is the formality of the relationship, without the component of genuine love, becomes a negative thing. And therefore, it is morally better to divorce under those circumstances. Now, we should make every legitimate effort, every effort to reestablish love, which we do by reestablishing justice in the relationship. So it's really not possible, of course, that a relationship could have justice without having love. If love goes out of the relationship, it is because justice has gone out of the relationship. So all of the laws of Baha'u'llah, all of the principles in the Gitabi Akhtar are based on this polarity of love and justice. Love and justice are polarity. Unity is the creative marriage of love and justice. Now, in the marriage relationship, according to the Kitabi Akhtas, the marriage relationship is founded on two poles to support. And this is equality or reciprocity, justice, and absolute fidelity. What is fidelity? It is an expression of love. So, these are the two fundaments of the marriage relationship. Fidelity and 
equality. Love and justice. If these two things exist in the marriage relationship, then the relationship will grow and be healthy and produce ever greater unity to the degree that injustice creeps into the relationship, love will be vitiated and antipathies will be generated. But if this is recognized soon enough, this process can be reversed. It can even be reversed at very advanced stages, but there can be stages beyond which it is simply impossible to reverse the process. And more especially, this is the case when one of the parties is less willing than the other to put the effort into doing it. In other words, you can only take responsibility for yourself. You may be willing to put the necessary effort to restore the justice in the relationship, but if your partner isn't, well, that's between him or her and God, right? In other words, you're not responsible that you can't take that on. It's not up to you to take that on. So, Abdu'l-Bahá says that to be the cause of a divorce will bring great depression and unhappiness to a person. But we must be careful. We must be clear in our own conscience between us and God that we are not the cause of the divorce. But there may be a case where we have to divorce, that we are involved in a divorce, but it's between us and God to determine that we are not the cause of the divorce. And as I say in particular, if we are sincerely willing to put the necessary effort into reestablishing justice in the relationship and our partner isn't, and ultimately that's the situation, then there is divorce, and it's not our fault. I mean, uh, it's unhappy still, but we should not feel guilty for that because divorce is a law that Baha'u'llah has given. If he has given the law of divorce, that means that in some instances divorce is morally superior. It is better than to maintain the formalities of a destructive marriage relationship. So, I hope you understand me. Don't quote me in saying that I'm encouraging divorce and so on and so on. But I'm simply saying that this is the logic of the law of marriage and divorce that is in the Kitabiyakta. Okay? Yes, you had a question? Kitabi Magyar? No. <laughs> That's my name. <laughs> Okay, now let me say just one or two other things and then I am going to stop to give us time for discussion. Another way of seeing, we could say why this polarity, why this extreme polarity between male and female. In other words, one could, as we say, every individual has his strong and weak points why not have an asexual society? In other words, why have these extremes? Why have a polarity such as sexual polarity? Well, 
let's observe that human relationships generally are of two kinds. One are the universalizable relationships or the generalizable relationships and the other are the non-repeatable or singular relationships. Let me explain what I mean. A universal or generalizable relationship is a relationship which can exist between any two human beings. The prototypical example is friendship. Right? It is possible for any two human beings on the face of the earth to be friends. Now, they may not be friends. They may even be enemies and so on and so on. But it is possible, it is conceivable that any two people on earth could be friends, right? So friendship is a universal relationship, potentially universal, if you will. That's why I say generalizable relationship. I don't mean universal in the sense that everybody is friends, but it is generalizable. And of course, that's the very purpose of the Baha'i faith, is to create those conditions, that is, the conditions of unity, justice, and love, which means that ultimately, in the ideal configuration, any two people in the world who meet will be genuine friends. This is why the Baha'is are called the friends of God. We speak of the Baha'is as the friends. In other words, let's look at it another way. What is the impediment to you and I being friends? Okay? What is the impediment to you and I being friends? Well, the first impediment is cultural differences, right? That we simply, we're so different culturally that we just can't understand each other. In other words, you act in a certain way and I interpret your behavior in terms of my culture, you interpret my behavior in terms of your culture, and these cultures are so different, okay, these are so different that you're constantly misinterpreting me, I'm constantly misinterpreting you, and this interferes so much in the communication that we simply can't establish a relationship of mutual trust and friendship. So that's essentially ignorance, if you will. Ignorance is a barrier. Another barrier is conflict of interest, right? We both want the same thing and we both can't have the same thing. And so we have conflicting interests. And so each of us is egotistical to a degree that means that we put our self-interest in wanting this thing above the interest of the other person and therefore uh, we don't establish a relationship or friendship. So you can see, I don't have to spell it out, that the laws and principles of the faith and the love that comes to us through Baha'u'llah is precisely designed to defeat these impediments to true friendship. So when we implement these universal values, these transcultural values, then it doesn't matter how many cultural differences there are, we will relate to each other on the basis of the universal values, and even if there are misunderstandings, even if there are cultural differences, we will be able to transcend those 
because we will know that the other person is sincere and that we're relating on these universal values. So I have no doubt, I have absolutely no doubt that I have offended culturally many of my Russian friends without knowing it. Now, I try as best as I can to learn about Russian culture, to be sensitive to things uh, that are Russian culture, but I have no doubt that I've offended my Russian friends. But I feel genuine love from my Russian friends, and I know that they forgive me for whatever way I have offended them because they know I'm sincere, I know they're sincere. So we relate on the basis of these universal values that Baha'u'llah has given us, and not on the basis of either my cultural values or their cultural values. They show respect for my cultural values, even though they may not necessarily share them. I show respect for their cultural values, though I don't necessarily share them, and I don't adopt all of their cultural ways. But that's not an impediment to the love. You see? So this is the miracle of Baha'u'llah. It's not that he effaces cultural differences. It's that he gives us the tools to transcend cultural differences so that even when they exist, they no longer become barriers to true love and friendship. So friendship is a universal relationship. But there are non-repeatable singular relationships the prototypical example is motherhood. Throughout all eternity, you will have only had one mother, <laughs> right? So whatever mother you had, that's the mother you will always have had. You will never have another mother. For good or bad, that's the mother you have. So your relationship with your mother or your non-relationship with your mother if that's the case, it's unhappily the case with some of us, okay? Whatever it is, that is a unique relationship. That is non-repeatable. You can't have that relationship with anybody else because nobody else carried you in their womb. Nobody else nursed you when you were a helpless infant. Nobody else did, and so on and so on, you see? So the history of that relationship between the child and the mother is a unique history. You see, friendship is the history of, is the product of universal history of the history of the human race. The unity of mankind is the product of the history of mankind. But the unity of husband and wife is the product of a particular history. It is not the product of universal history. So, the relationships within the family, parent to child, husband to wife, are unique, non-repeatable relationships. Now, you will say, well, of course, you could have several marriage partners in your lifetime and so on. That's true. But the point, as you see, is that this is not a generalizable relationship. You may, in fact, have several singular relationships with several different marriage partners. Okay, if they die or you have a divorce and remarry. But that doesn't change the fact that marriage, in its essence, is a non-repeatable relationship. 
It is an intimate relationship. Now, why has God ordained these two types of relationships? The universal or generalizable and the particular or intimate relationship. Because these two types of relationships are necessary for certain kinds of growth. In other words, if we remember that the purpose of our existence is growth. It is autonomy and well-being, which is just to say that we grow in happiness. We grow in well-being. This is the purpose of our existence. And all of the laws, the law of causality itself is designed for, uh, to enable us to achieve our autonomy and our well-being. And remember, Baha'u'llah says that every atom in existence has been ordained for our training. So these two types of relationships, the universal and the particular, have been ordained for enabling us to develop certain kinds of capacities, develop in certain ways. So the marriage relationship is like a mirror of our most intimate self. In other words, certain aspects of our character are revealed in the marriage, the intimacy of the marriage relationship that simply aren't revealed in any other context. In other words, it's quite conceivable that I could be a very loving person and a friend to everybody, a genuine friend to everybody, and be a disastrous marriage partner. In other words, this is the kind of person that you see who has a good public personality, okay? And, you know, then you find out that this guy who's a successful businessman and who's everybody's friend and is generous and everybody loves him, and it turned out he's been abusing his kids or beating his wife, and you say, how could this man, I've been with this man for 30 years, I've worked with him every day, how could this man be this monster? Well, he's this monster because he's developed a public personality, but he has not developed these other capacities for intimacy. So in a word, the marriage relationship is ordained to develop our capacity for intimacy. And remember that our relationship with God is the most intimate relationship because it is this prayer, this inner feeling, this mystic feeling which unites man with God. So our relationship with God is the most intimate relationship we have and the next most intimate relationship is the marriage relationship. So general relationships develop our capacity for certain kinds of social, spiritual, psychological skills and the marriage relationships and our other intimate relationships such as parent-child, brother-sister, and so on develop our capacities in other ways, in certain intimate ways. So, if a marriage is embarked upon with the following attitude, this marriage is an opportunity for growth, for my growth, and for my becoming an instrument for the growth of my partner. 
It is a creative relationship in which, as Abdu'l-Bahá says, each strives to improve the character of the other. Well, if we embark on marriage with that commitment, then we have the proper expectations, namely that there are going to be things that we have to correct. The marriage relationship is going to reveal intimate aspects of ourselves. It's going to be a mirror of our most intimate faults. And when those faults are revealed to us, then we have to be prepared to recognize them and to deal with them. Now, if instead we embark on the marriage relationship, we're saying the purpose of marriage is to satisfy my needs. In other words, this marriage is satisfactory, this relationship is so satisfactory because I satisfy her needs and she satisfies my needs. It's mutual satisfaction of needs. Well, that is part of it. That's the complementarity. I'm saying each has what the other lacks. So that is certainly part of it, is this mutual satisfaction of needs. And it is the justice in the relationship which guarantees that. In other words, the giving and receiving, the back and forth, the reciprocity, the equality in the marriage relationship, the equality of man and woman in the relationship, means that each gives priority to the needs of the other and therefore each seeks to satisfy the needs of the other. But, no matter how satisfactory the relationship is in the beginning, the very fact that life means growth, what does that mean? That life means growth. Growth means change. And what does it mean to change? It means that what your needs were at one time are not going to be your needs five or ten years from now. Or maybe even tomorrow. It's development, sure. It's development. So the very fact, what does it mean to grow? It means to satisfy legitimately certain of your needs so that you can forget about that and move on to higher needs, right? In other words, I eat a meal. I'm hungry, I eat a meal. I'm satisfied. But then a few hours later, I'm going to be hungry again. So I eat in order to satisfy that need, but I satisfy that need so that I can then, for the time being, forget about eating and satisfying physical needs, and go do something else. Satisfy a spiritual need by doing some useful work or whatever. So I satisfy a lower need in order to free me to develop higher. Development, right. That's a very good word. For certain reasons I put it in terms of needs, but development is just as good and in some ways better. So we develop, we grow, but we change. That's the point. We change. So that means that if our expectations remain what they were in the beginning, then when these changes begin to occur, then we will perceive this change as threatening to the marriage relationship. It's not the same as it once was. Well, sure. Hooray. It's not the same as it once was. It's growing. But again, 
if people do not have expectations of this growth, then they're setting themselves up for an unhappy situation. But when we enter marriage with the expectation of growth, and not only the expectation, but with the joyous anticipation, I mean, why not? It's fun. Okay? In other words, if I say, okay, you know, isn't that wonderful that my wife can show me these faults that I had that I didn't even know and nobody else was willing to tell me about them, you know? And if I forget that I have them, she's going to remind me that I have them. And she's going to remind me every day that I have these faults. Well, you know, I can say, well, this is nagging. My wife doesn't nag, of course. I'm just using this as a humorous uh, illustration. Um, she doesn't at all. Uh, but, in other words, I can take this behavior as an irritation or I can take it as an opportunity for my growth. And so, if we enter marriage with not only the expectation that growth is inevitable, but with actually the positive, joyous anticipation that it is an arena of growth, then we will experience these changes not as threats and as irritations, but as a positive process. So, um, I think that's all I want to say. And so we have about 10 or 15 minutes to uh, 12 minutes or whatever to discuss if you want. Uh, there are many other things I could say, but as I say, most of this is in the booklet. Uh, so I will let that be sufficient unto itself. Uh, the relationship between the child and father and mother. So it should be equal, or how does that work? I mean, it's not can... equal. This I explain this in the booklet clearly. Unity is justice and love, but what is justice depends on the nature of the relationship. The marriage relationship is a relationship between two mature adults. So it is a relationship between equals. And therefore, equality is the expression of justice or reciprocity. I prefer more than equality. But equality is good, as long as we don't understand it as identity. Equality or reciprocity or complete mutuality is the expression of justice in the marriage relationship. But the relationship between parent and child is a relationship between unequals. And therefore, justice in the relationship between the parent and child is not a relationship of mutuality. Now, what is the mutual relationship? The mutual relationship, as I already said, is that there's an equal amount of giving and receiving on both parts. Okay? In other words, justice in the marriage relationship is that I give to you and you give to me in roughly equal measure. Now, it doesn't mean that we calculate the measure. 
okay? That would be an absence of love. It means that I give to you as much as I can. I give constant priority to your needs, but you do the same to me. You know, so I cannot give priority to your needs for you, okay? So justice in the marriage relationship is this reciprocity in which there is an equal measure of giving and receiving, but not because it's calculated, not manipulation, not that I give in order to receive, okay, but that I spontaneously give to you and you spontaneously give to me, and because we love each other, this dynamic goes back and forth because love calls forth love. The more I give priority to your needs, the more you're going to feel like giving priority to my needs. But the relationship between parent and child is not a relationship between equals. Therefore, the Kitabi Akdas prescribes the parameters of the relationship between parent and child. What is the relationship? There is also a relationship of giving and receiving, but it is not an equal measure. The relationship between parent and child is an asymmetric relationship because the child is weak and vulnerable and the parent is strong and competent. Therefore, it is the parent who must give to the child. And the child, the parent does most of the giving and the child does most of the receiving. And what is it that the parent gives to the child? Spiritual education. This is what's in the Kitabodas. We read this yesterday, so I won't even go over it again. Hussein Danish read these passages. And Vahid read these also. The purpose of marriage, the fundamental, and Vadim also, Vadim read this when he did his thing on marriage, right? That the purpose of marriage is that there will come forth he who will remember me. In other words, the spiritual education of the children. And we know these strong statements in the Gitabi Akdas that a father who does not educate his children can lose his right of fatherhood. Okay? He can be divested of his rights of fatherhood. So this is a sacred obligation. Right? So the parents and the mother is the first educator. So of course, if the mother were to be derelict in her duty, this is even spiritually more grave because the damage will be even worse if the mother rejects the child or whatever. But morally, the responsibility is equally on both parents. In other words, the roles are different, but the moral responsibility is the same. So, justice in the relationship between the parents and the child is that the parents give spiritual education which means love to the child, and the child receives this education. But the child does have an obligation in return. What is it? Obedience and gratitude. Now, the nature of the parent-child relationship is such that it is impossible for the child to be sufficiently grateful to his parents. Why? Because the child, it is not reasonable for the child to understand the degree of sacrifice that is involved in what his parents do. He can't. I mean, he is, he is a child. 
he is limited in his understanding. He can't possibly know. I remember my eldest daughter, when she, when she grew up and had children, she now has two of her own, uh, she said, you know, said, I'm astonished. I always, I realize now how I took for granted all these things you did. Said, I thought, she said, she said, I thought that you didn't have anything else to worry about but me. He said, you know, I knew that dad worked at the university. I knew that mom was a translator and so on. And I knew this, but said, I never thought that you had thought about anything else but us children. I never, it never occurred to me that you had any other concern but our welfare. I'm astonished to realize that while you were doing this, you were doing all these other things. You know, so a child cannot, and I mean it's the nature of childhood, cannot be sufficiently grateful for the sacrifice of children. He can't. And it is unreasonable that we should expect that he, he do this. And if we expect that the child is sufficiently grateful, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment, you see. This is attachment. This is attachment if we do that. We have to do it for God, not for the approval of the child. If we do these sacrifices and our reward is the approval of the child, if we get the approval, fine. I mean, that's wonderful. It's a bounty. But we have to do it for Baha'u'llah. Because only Baha'u'llah knows the sacrifices we go. We can't expect that the child is going to recognize. However, Baha'u'llah has ordained nonetheless that the child must give forth gracious behavior. He must at least act as if he is grateful. Because this action, as if he is grateful, will create in the child the true gratitude when he is an adult. And this acting as if you are grateful is obedience. The child must obey the parent. Because, so this is justice in the relationship between parent and child. So no, the relationship between parent and child is not a relationship between equals. The family is not a democracy. <laughs> All right? And, um, so, you have to look in every area of life, you have to say the following thing. The purpose of the Baha'i faith is unity. Unity is the implementation of justice and love. And then you have to see, in any given context, what is justice? And what does justice tell you? What is the most appropriate expression of love? Okay? In other words, love between husband and wife is expressed by this complete reciprocity. But love between the parent and child is not expressed by complete reciprocity. It is expressed by the parents giving the child a spiritual education, which includes love, okay? This doesn't mean authoritarian parenting, okay? And the child has the obligation to be obedient. That's an expression of love, of gratitude of the child towards the parent. 
So justice, we look to the Kitabiaktas. The Kitabiaktas describes what is justice in a given context. And justice guides us as to the appropriate expression of love. So the parent who indulges his child, who treats his child as an equal, this is not an appropriate expression of love. And it is destructive. And it leads to the destruction of the spiritual integrity of the child. Permissive child raising is the most destructive form of child raising. It is even more instructive, destructive than authoritarianism. Not that that's an argument for authoritarianism. So let me leave you with the last Hatcher aphorism, which is the only way to do it right is to do it right. In other words, you can't do it right by doing it wrong another way. You don't correct authoritarian parenting, which is wrong, by over-permissive parenting, which is equally wrong. You will simply fall from one form of destruction to another form of destruction. So you can't do it right by doing it wrong another way. You can only do it right by doing it right. Okay.